Ramones tribute to the Ramones coming out of Forest Hills, but singing about the Irish Riviera, Rockaway Beach, Breezy Point, Broad Channel, that whole area when it had Rockaway Playland. As Tony Orlando was speaking, hitting the beach, Rockaway Playland, that was my favorite location to be, not as crowded as Coney Island. You get the uh, Atlantic Ocean out there, so you didn't have to deal with the flotsam and jetsam like if you hit the beach at Coney Island, Manhattan Beach, or Brighton Beach, or Plum Beach, along the very polluted Jamaica Bay at that time. But the reason that I'm playing the Ramones is there are a number of groups who played in the Palladium over the many years that it was open. And I think with the revival of the Palladium in Times Square, we've been running those ads. It's a perfect time to go on a retrospective because this new Palladium has some of the old Palladium. But then again, as you can see in terms of the uh, advertisements, it's a little different in nature. But it certainly has revived the memories. So if we can, uh, let's play that ad we've been running for the new Palladium in Times Square right here on WABC. The Palladium. The Palladium. The Palladium. Palladium. Times Square. New York's newest live music venue in the heart of Times Square. Saturday night, April 30th, you'll be wowed by America's top psychic medium, Matt Fraser, best-selling author and star of the hit television series, Meet the Frasers. Don't miss Matt Fraser and his live reading show, Palladium Times Square. May 7th, it's Tommy James and the Shondells. Palladium Times Square. Plan now for June 3rd. It's Felix Cavalieri's Rascals and the one and only Mickey Dolans of the Monkees. June 10th, it's the Happy Together Tour 2022. The Turtles, the Buckinghams, Gary Puckett and the Union Gap, the Association, the Vogues, and the Cow Sills. It's all happening at Palladium Times Square, 44th and 7th Avenue. Shows brought to you by Baker Concerts. Tickets on sale now at PalladiumTimesSquare.com and Ticketmaster. And enter discount code radio on the Ticketmaster page to unlock a special discount. Palladium Times Square. Oh, it's got some of the old, but some of the new. And in fact, it's conjured up memories of the old Palladium for me, and I'm sure for many of you, we can open up our phone lines, test out the discronificator and the spectrometer, which uh, monitors the calls coming in on the uh, 50,000 powerful watts of sound. The uh, most powerful news talk station in the nation at this point in the morning, reaching 38 states, parts of Canada, parts of Europe, and way down towards Bermuda and the Bahamas in the Bermuda Triangle. That's how powerful this, uh, this signal is. But I'd love to be able to reconnect with all of you as we get into the time machine and go back to the Palladium, which... Uh, Remember, it was right on Irving Place off the 3rd Avenue off East 14th Street. At one point, it had been a movie theater. That's what I remember it to be. Then the concert hall. That's when it was really in prime time. And then it turned into a, a disco, nightclub. I remember after uh, Studio 54 was opened up by Steve Rebell and Ian Schrager, they then went about setting up uh, a disco, large disco, large nightclub, in that Palladium Center, and then eventually it was uh, taken over by Peter Gation, the Canadian who wore the eye patch. Oh, what a hot mess he was. And it went down, down, down. 
But talking about the new Palladium, as advertised, it's right there on the corner of 44th and Broadway. And if I can remember in all of its uh, original uh, variations, if I remember correctly, that was the Lowe's Astor Plaza. It then became the Best Buy Theater. And I think the last uh, last thing it was called was this PlayStation Theater. I remember I had, was chosen to interview Nick Cannon. Right on that stage of the Best Buy Theater for a national uh, radio gathering. place was packed. I remember I was talking to Nick Cannon, one-on-one, who was like the uh, Ryan Seacrest uh, of black personalities. The guy said it's nothing. At least he said nothing at that time. He has since flipped his script. But back then, he was like the black Ryan Seacrest. I spoke to the guy for 28 minutes. And I, I tell you... I couldn't get anything out of him. It's like interviewing Derek Jeter in his prime as a New York Yankee. And, yeah, later on we're going to talk about the Yankees and Mets because I got beefs with both. Even though you cut my veins and arteries, I'm a uh, lifetime Yankee fan. I really, really lost a lot of the interest uh, in baseball in general, but particularly my beloved New York Yankees. And, as you know, I hate, I hate, I hate the New York Mets. But I guess back... um, In the 70s and 80s, in the prime of the Palladium. Remember, that opened up because the Fillmore East down on 2nd Avenue had closed. So the Palladium and the Beacon Theater sort of filled the void. The Beacon Theater up on the west side off of Broadway. But there were all kinds uh, of acts that were performing at the Palladium. The Ramones uh, were a regular fixture at the Palladium. I remember there was George Clinton and the Parliament Funkadelics. Who could ever forget George Clinton with his um, marshmallow shoes, the platform shoes? Uh, they had an album out called uh, Maggot Brain. And these guys were like uh, real Fruit Loop troopers. And then it was Culture Club, remember, with Boy George? Boy George, who eventually got busted because the cops came, uh, because some of his neighbors, I think down in Soho, Noho, wherever he was living at that time, were complaining about noise in the apartment. He let him in, and there was cocaine all on the table. And they, they took boy George out in handcuffs. And the next thing you knew, he was giving community service, and he was seen along the west side of the highway with a broom, and that's right, a sanitation uh, can, and he was sweeping the streets as part of his community service. And then, remember, there was, um, was that Devo... I think they were out of Akron, Ohio, where LeBron James came from. They they were like a brother's act. Uh, There was Phil Collins. uh, It was Peter Gabriel uh, of Genesis. Boy, they had a lot of great acts there. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. And then there was Patti Smith. I'll never forget Patti Smith. Well, she ended up getting married to uh, McEnroe, the crazy one, the guy with anger management issues on the tennis court. And she was at a fundraiser, and then all of a sudden somebody said, "Hey, hey, Curtis, uh, why don't we uh, why don't we raffle off your red beret, the one you're wearing on your head, one of the original ones, and let's see who will bid on that, and the proceeds will go to the Guardian Angels New York City effort." And we definitely needed the money at the time. And Patty Smith got up and made the highest bid, four thousand bucks, for my stinky wool beret. By that time, that it had some holes in it. You know, it's sort of like termites were beginning to burrow their way in. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, she performed on the stage of the Palladium. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. And I probably most remember the emergence of, remember, Pat Benatar. Love is a battlefield. We belong. Let me hit you with uh, my best shot. You know, that was sort of like coming out of the age of feminism, if I remember correctly. Uh, Pat Benatar came out of Greenpoint, Brooklyn, Polish area. I think it's, I think her father was Polish. Then she moved out to Babylon and then ended up, uh, actually going to Stony Brook College. Well, it sounds a lot like my wife, uh, Nancy, all Polish, came out of Greenpoint. The family moved out to Bohemia in Suffolk County and she ended up going to Stony Brook. And subsidizing her education by making upwards of 400 pizza pies a day in the student lounge. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. And then there was the freakazoid. I can never figure him out. Maybe some of you out there can connect the dots for me. But he was like all over the map. Frank Zappa. I think he was out of Baltimore. I'm not quite sure, but obviously he ended up spending most of his time on the West Coast and back in New York. And I remember songs that he had that were really freaky deaky, like Don't Eat the Yellow Snow. Remember as a kid, you always told, hey, you're going to make snowballs. Your aunt would tell you, "Uh, don't make it with the yellow snow, because that's obviously where the dogs had relieved themselves. And certainly don't swallow the yellow snow. And I think, I'm trying to remember a song that he had, which was like, uh, all of a sudden, what was it, uh, at the time, uh, Tipper Gore and Secretary of State Baker's uh, wives had gotten together and wanted to censor music, and they really hated this song, My Guitar Wants to Kill Your Mama. Yeah, yeah, that was like, <laughs> that was like before Eminem, Slim Shady, who wanted to rape his mom and kill his girlfriend who had his child. That freak. Oh, but you see, the freakier you are, the more the more acknowledgement you get in the rock and roll world, the rap community. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. I'm trying to remember what that movie was that Frank Zappa had made, 200 Motels. I didn't get a chance to see it, but I'm sure some of you freaks out there are lighting up a dupe, which he would not have been in support of. I mean, you look at him. Look at how he was dressed. He looked like a combination of Rasputin. And I would say uh, before there was, what can I say? Before there was uh, Sasha Barracon, Borat, Ali G, there was Frank Zappa. He looked like him. He looked like a combination of both. And you would have thought for sure he was a hippie. No, no, he hated hippies. He hated uh, dope-smoking hippies. In fact, he would have been more aligned at some point with um, Nancy Reagan, just say no, uh, than, let's say, with, uh, hmm, oh, <laughs> Garcia, for sure. Uh, I remember they hated each other. They hated each other. This guy was totally not into drugs, wouldn't permit his bandmates to indulge in drugs. And yet, look like the biggest freak of all. How many of you remember any performances that Frank Zappa and his band made and then probably spent your money to go to see that movie, that cult classic, 
200 motels. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Oh, boy. There's a lot of history in the Palladium. So, hey, I, I think you ought to all check out the Palladium. It's advertising here on WABC, which seems to have some of the old Palladium, but not all of it. Seems to have different acts that aren't necessarily musical or entertainment. Boy, I remember they took that wrecking ball to the old Palladium. And then NYU built that, what, that 12-story residency hall that's uh, there on 14th Street. Now, they don't pay any freaking taxes. NYU pays no taxes, property taxes. Columbia University up in Morningside Heights, they don't pay any property taxes. They should have to pay property taxes like Jimmy Dolan, who owns Madison Square Garden, the guy who cannot even chew gum and think at the same time, pays no property taxes. You know, they could pay enough property tax. You could put that billion dollars back into the city budget that was taken out to support our police back by uh, Comrade Bill de Blasio, the part-time mayor of the Dope from Park Slope, and the city council that you could put that billion dollars back and you could hire class after class of desperately needed police officers, tax, because all they've done at NYU downtown in Greenwich Village and Columbia up in Morningside Heights is buy property. Buy property, buy property, take it off the tax rolls. And Jimmy Dolan, oh, what a disgraziata. What a shanda. Hit him with ta- How the hell do you not pay taxes on property taxes on Madison Square Garden? 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. I'm trying to remember some of the other groups that were advertised on the marquee. I know Santani was living at the Lower East Side, uh, not too far from the director, Oliver Stone at the time. Boy, what an apartment that guy had. It was all painted in black. That guy was constantly doing lines of cocaine, Oliver Stone. And Santa Ana, not Santa Ana, <laughs> General Santa Ana, remember the Alamo, who ended up seeking sanctuary in, believe it or not, when he was run out of Mexico as the emperor, Staten Island, where he was raising money to try to form a new Mexican army and go back to Mexico and become the autocrat, totalitarian dictator. Other than that, he... Uh, Ended up inventing chiclets while on Staten Island with his wooden leg. But Santana, yeah, they, they were living in the Lower East Side there. Ninth Precinct was constantly making runs over there. Uh, crazy activity in their apartment in the wee hours of the morning. And, of course, it was Jefferson Starship. Who could ever forget? But I'm sure that some of you there were out there in the crowd or watching the endless number of Elton John concerts that were at the Palladium on 14th Street or Blondie. I mean, they had an eclectic group of entertainers. And I remember the Marshall Tucker Band. Oh, boy, they were Southerners. Now, I, I don't think uh, they would be permitted to perform. You know, it's like Leonard Skinner would uh, be flying the uh, uh, Johnny Reb flag, flag of trees in the stars and bars. Uh, that wouldn't be permitted now. You know, politically correct people would say you can't do that. Marshall Tucker, no. And uh, eat a peach uh, pit. Uh, the Ullman brothers, they would probably not, not be permitted to play and fly their Johnny Reb flag. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Howard, who's calling from New York. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Howard. Hi, Curtis. 
I I called to see if you ever saw Blondie. I saw Blondie, not in concert. Obviously, I saw her videos, uh, but I saw her in the streets of the Lower East Side. I was living right across the street from Tompkins Square Park uh, on Avenue A in St. Mark's uh, Place when it was considered the alphabet jungle and all the trendoids were starting to move in there. Uh, the Blondies uh-huh. of the world, Madonnas, uh, a lot of the artists, uh, they were all down there in that area. Did you introduce yourself to Debbie Harry? No. No, no, I didn't introduce uh, myself to Debbie Harry. I saw her as she was walking down St. Mark's. Uh, the Clash, which was the counter group of that time, counterculture group in the 80s, they were actually at uh, some cafe and they would see me and the Guardian Angels going up and down. And they actually dedicated a song to us, Red Angel yeah, Dragnet. The, the, yeah, on combat rock. Right. Right, so we were considered counterculture at that time. So it wouldn't have been... Yeah, it wouldn't have at all been odd uh, for those artists to have identified with the uh, Guardian Angels because we were outliers. In fact, it was uh, Africa, Bambada, uh, and Zulu Nation. Uh, They appeared at a concert at the second opening of Studio 54 on behalf of the Guardian Angels. So, yeah, we were embraced by the counterculture. There's no doubt about that. Do you remember Blondie? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw her in Roslyn, Long Island, at a place called My Father's Place. I was in the first row with my foot on the stage. She's tiny, and she's beautiful. Yeah, no, no, no. She was uh, drop-dead gorgeous. There's no doubt about that. Uh, Was she good in concert, though? I saw them before their first album even came out. Chris Stein, with her boyfriend, the guitar player, was the most arrogant son of a bee I've ever heard in my life. But they were good. They were really good. Well, you got to preserve those memories, Howard. Got to preserve those memories as we're trying to conjure up the memories of all of you who are at the original Palladium. We're advertising the new Palladium now, which is right on West 44th Street and 7th Avenue in the heart of Times Square. I guess most people would remember it when... um, I would say in its two uh, uh, original uh, existences, the Lowy's, uh, Astor Plaza, and Best Buy Theater. That's where it is. And it's got a lot of what the Palladium had years ago. But then again, it's got a lot of other things that the Palladium on 14th Street off of 3rd Avenue would not have had. 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Lou in Long Island. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Lou. Yes, uh, good morning, Curtis. Uh, Frank Zappa is a genius, was a genius, will always be a genius. I had a friend that worked security for a lot of uh, arenas and, and whatnot, and Frank Zappa always came in. His musicians had sheet music. It was all staged, rehearsed, right down to the last note. You know, and to think this guy did this all while he was straight and made all this crazy music, <laughs> that's another point. You know, Lou, uh, he was on Crossfire at uh, one point. I think they had like a a celebrity edition of Crossfire. You know, Pat Buchanan, the conservative, would... I believe I saw that. Right, would debate uh, liberals. I forget who he debated, but he said, I'm a conservative. And then remember, he had to go up to the the Capitol Hill, and he was being uh, cross-examined as a result of... The Parents Music Resource Center, Tipper and Mrs. Baker, who was the wife of the Secretary of State. And by the way, the most interesting thing is, 
while Tippecor is like giving him grief, it turns out, I don't know if this was true or maybe just dumb for political consumption, but Al Gore and Tippecor were big fans of Jerry Garcia and the Dead. Oh, they would the wear, dead, yes. yeah, they would wear tie dyed oh, yeah. shirts and go to their concerts. Yeah, they were deadheads. Yeah, that's why they I, didn't I like recommend, that. uh, there was a, an interview on Merv Griffin with Frank Zappa. And it lasted a good 10, 15 minutes, and he played at the end with, guess what, Merv Griffin's band. Figure that. Wow. But he laid it all out. He was so anti-drug. I was amazed because I thought he was a stoner because of the kind of music he made, you know? Yeah, you would have definitely thought that. He looked like, uh, you know, if you had had to say, what did Satan look like? Oh, that was Frank Zappa. No, I wouldn't go that far. Well, uh, uh, Rasputin looked like Rasputin, right? Well, okay. He looked like Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, Borat, Ali G, right? Yeah, that's true. Okay, so we got close to it. His music, (laughs) Zappa is such a polarizing musician. You either love him or you hate him. There's no in between. Yeah, and even though he was against drugs, he didn't like Ronald Reagan. He hated MTV, and he hated televangelists. Oh, yeah, with a passion. Man, that is incredible. And then he's the one who started the trend of giving your kids these weird, bizarre names. Like, I think his daughter was Moon Unit. Moon Moon Unit, Solel, yeah, DeWeasel. I mean, those are weird. I mean, imagine those kids must have had a concept. Imagine being called Moon Unit. I'd rather be called a Sue. A Sue. Yeah. Run around Sue. But by the way, uh, you know, I th- Johnny Cash, a boy named Sue. Right. Was that song Valley Girl written in honor of his kid Moon Unit? Because you know they play the typical I Valley Girl. So. I think I, I, I think so. that was the only commercially successful song that he ever put out. Yeah, it might have hit like the top one hundred on AM. I have a feeling uh, it may have made the playlist. Of WABC. Really? I'm going to have to have a conversation with Bruce Morrow, a.k.a. Cousin Brucey. Cousin, he would know. I'll see if he'll play Valley Girl. I mean, that was a hit. That was a, the other music. Oh, that was, yeah. That would never have made the playlist of Harry Harrison, Herb Oscar Anderson. Uh, 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 would certainly not have made Cousin Brucey's playlist or any oh, number of not. other DJs. Uh, I have to ask you a question, Curtis. Have you ever actually sat down and listened to Frank Zappa, say, like an album side or a few uh, a full album? Well, I've tried to sample. I, I like to sample, but you know what happens? Yeah, it's like me with yeah, it's like me with um, uh, but uh, jeez, oh, I'm losing my mind now. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's those old uh, those old acid flashbacks you have in there. I mean, yeah, no, that's yeah, yeah it's okay. Hey, Lou, come on. Possible, you know. But the group that he had, that was Mothers of Invention, right? Yes, correct. Mothers of Invention. Captain Beefheart. Yeah, and then he, and then I remember he had a group of U.S. Marines in full garb come up on a stage, dismembered a plastic doll dressed as a Vietnamese baby. I do not remember that. That guy was out of his mind. Yeah, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty abhorrible. Man, but you loved him, right? Yeah, I loved him because of his the music was. If you really listen to it, it is it is very intricate. 
everything is planned. Every note is written down and done to to his perfection. Well, he had the long hair. He had the bell bottoms at that time, but he just. So did I. You did, huh? Uh, I'm 65 years old. I grew up in the 70s. Ah, you hit the you hit those. Uh, did you hit the Palladium? No, no, I never made it to the Palladium. I went to the Felt Forum a few times. Uh, Felt Forum. What about the Beacon Theater, Upper West Side, along Broadway? I've been to the Beacon, yes. I saw the Allman Brothers there uh, once or twice. Yeah, eat a peach pit. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, did uh, you-know-who uh, come out on the stage as she was uh, uh, fornicating and copulating with one of their band members, Cher? No idea. Oh, man, you missed it. You missed it, Lou. Glad I did. Glad I missed it. Wow. I don't know. I don't know, Lou, but I, I appreciate the... You know, uh, Curtis, I'd like to leave with a joke. Of course. You know the Who? You remember the Who? The yeah. last, uh, the, the album in the 70s, Who's Next? Yes. Well, they are coming up with a follow-up album. It's called Who's Left? Oh. Ah! It's pretty damn good, Lou, because they are on their Depends tour again, believe it or not. <laughs> no. And it was like one of my all-time favorite uh, groups, rock and roll groups, The Who. The Who is my favorite rock and roll band par none. Well, the best. it would compete with Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin, in my mind, and Steppenwolf. Oh, Steppenwolf's right up there, too, for hard, you know, hard rock. Yeah. And how, you know, how... Me, what, what, what defines rock and roll in the 60s and 70s? I always say The Who because they had a rebellious streak. Uh, you know, the music was all very... Rebellious. Speaking you know, like, of rebellious, was there anybody more rebellious than Jim Morrison of the Doors? Remember before there was no one. Before there was Little Nas X, who was oh uh, yeah, the wannabe, who was masturbating himself on the Grammys Award. That's twenty twenty two, right? Jim Morrison in the Doors, and he was like from Melbourne, Florida. He was a Floridian. So they're in Miami you doing it. His father was a colonel in the Air Force. Yeah, yeah. So he, he's in concert with the Doors, I think, in Miami at that time. And he was doing a little Nas X. And let me tell you something. It so offended so many people that they had this huge <laughs> gathering at the Orange Bowl. The people who appeared to denounce him as a hedonist, Jackie Gleason, Anita Bryant. Oh, I remember, yeah. And I think Kate Smith. Oh, I, probably so, yeah. I mean, yeah, he dressed in all black leather. He dressed in black leather pants, you know, black vest, you know, no shirt. Oh, uh, I, I love the door. Guy riding around the stage. I mean, he looked, made Elvis Presley look like a priest. I know, but they, they were such, they wanted, they wanted to ban him because they were overseas after that concert. They were saying, you can't, you can't come back. It's 1969, right? And Lil Nas X, uh, you know, he's uh, masturbating on the stage there, the Grammys. And I'm saying to myself, yeah, you think that's new? (laughs) Jim Morrison, 1969. 1969, Summer of Woodstock. Remember the Knicks, Willis Reed against Will Chamberlain and the Lakers? That's right. That's right. He came came, uh, out for a few minutes to help lead the Knicks against... 
Elgin Baylor, Jerry West, and Will Chamberlain. And we go, and actually, Joe Willie Namath and the Jets, and the summer of Woodstock. And let's not forget, as much as I hate to remember it, the miracle Mets of Tom Seaver, Jerry Kuzman, Ron Swoboda, Tommy Agee, Cleon Jones, as they beat the Baltimore Orioles, who had, like, I think, four, five, 20-game winners, considered impossible. And all of that in 1969. Uh, Patrick Juve, a Frenchman who made this great dance song that I believe played at the Palladium when it became a nightclub in honor of America. Uh, Take that, Macron, who may end up losing to Le Pen in the general election because you were too busy speaking to Putin every five seconds instead attending to the business of being the leader of the French people. The election uh, begins uh, in just a few hours. And who knows? There may be no more Macron. 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Ray calling from New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Ray. Yeah, I called last night about the Palladium. I had saw uh, Judas Priest there when they first hit America back in the... 75, 76, and uh, that place was, it seemed, if I remember, it was like an old movie theater, it seemed like, but it, the sound was great in there. The concert was just great. I never forgot it. it yeah, was, no, no, uh, it was. Originally, it was a movie theater before it became the concert hall that we all remembered as the Palladium, and then they took the wrecking ball to it after it was a disco to build that 12-story residency hall for NYU that they pay no property taxes on. Yeah. I wonder, uh, before you said Patty Smith was married to McEnroe, that was Patty Smythe from, uh, you know, Patty Smith was, she used to go out with the guitarist for Blue Oyster Cult. Oh, you know, I, I, I stand to be corrected there. Can you imagine that, Ray? Yeah. That I would confuse them. I know I have her yeah. image in my head. So, yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe I did, uh, uh, miscombobulate, which sometimes yeah, I do. Boy, Patty lucky. Smith was the one, she sang The Warrior, and uh, she had another hit. And man, lucky uh, I, I, wasn't in, I wasn't in a lineup trying to identify the right Patty Smythe or Patty Smith. I would have picked the wrong person, and she would have been doing Triple Life Without Parole. So which, you, were, you were trying to talk about Patty Smythe, though, right? You, I, I've got vertigo now. I've got vertigo. I think I'm, I'm like you too with vertigo. Yeah. Oh man, yeah, you spun me like a, a top. I just heard you say that, and I know Patty Smith. She was kind of a weird type, but she used to go out with Alan Lanier. He was the uh, keyboardist, guitarist, the late Alan Lanier. Well, look, Blue Oyster Cult from Long Island. Look, uh, I, I want to thank you for giving me constructive criticism. I've got to do my mea copas, my mea maxima copas. You know, it's already uh, Palm Sunday, and this is one of two days in the year that I go to church. I'm an A&P Catholic. Ashes yeah. on Wednesday, Palms on Sunday, and then you don't see me for a month of Sundays. Well, you're usually uh, perfect, Curtis, so don't worry about it. No, no, I got it. Oh, now I'm going to obsess over this. How could I mistake Patty Smythe for Patty Smith? Oh. All oh. right, Curtis. Oh, now, now you see, I, 
Now, now, you're making me uh, nauseous here. I'm nauseous, Ray. Uh, no, no, I, I'm not going to be able to think straight now, Ray. You, you ruined my morning, Ray. Oh, gee. Although, now, what am I going to do? Although, you are absolutely correct. I should have known that. I should have known better than that. Should have known better than that. Thank you. Thank you, you know, Ray. You know the difference. All right. Good night, Curtis. Do appreciate it. No, no, I don't. If I knew the difference, would I have made that kind of a dumb mistake? You see, why do you keep trying to cover up for me, callers? If I made a mistake, if I slipped and fell, right, and there was no banana peel on the floor, would you then testify, oh, there was a banana peel on the floor. That's why Sliwa fell. Giving me the benefit of the doubt, huh? 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Pamela in New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Pamela, as we do our retrospective on the old Palladium, comparing it to the new Palladium, which has just opened up in Times Square. Well, you're, you're talking about oldies. I'm at the younger spectrum of the baby boomers, but I always love Steppenwolf and the doors and everything. And I got a chance to see Steppenwolf in an intimate area where I don't think anybody knew, you know, it was there. Uh, Suntan Lake, do you remember that one between Riverdale and Kinlon, New Jersey? No, no, I don't. Okay, it was a, a resort, like a small, you know, like a little camp. Now it's a parking lot. But anyway, one day, uh, one week, they were, uh, they had Steppenwolf, and I was like, oh, my God. So uh, I went up there, and um, they had picnic tables right on top of this tiny stage, and it was all full of bikers and everything, so I guess everybody was afraid to sit near them. <laughs> But I walked right up to the stage. I was like right on top of John Kay. And and I got to see Steppenwolf, who I've always loved, and uh, along with the doors and all those people that I missed because I was too young for, for that. And my brother saw Steppenwolf in Wiesbaden when he was stationed over there. And I, I couldn't believe it. We had like, we were right next to them. And it was fan. They were fantastic. And, you know, they weren't that old at that point. They were still like, wow. And actually, John Kay is still in good shape. He does a lot of charity work and everything. So it was really, really cool. And how were they uh, in concert? Oh, great. Fantastic. Like, you know, the real deal. Now, were the groupies out there in force? Were the biker chicks out there going gaga goo goo? No, they were very calm, very quiet, sitting at, uh, they had all the picnic tables. So I had to kind of sit on a bench off to the side. And, um, no, they were very good. Everybody was very good. I did get hit and run in the parking lot, but... Well, what do you mean? What do you mean a hit and run? Uh, What do you mean by that? Somebody smashed into my car and took off. Oh, because, you know, there's psychosexual terminology to that. I wanted to make sure, Pamela, that's not what you were referring to, a hit and run. (laughs) Oh, no, no. This is the uh, practical hitting the car and taking off. But now, given a choice, if you had one choice, one choice only, Steppenwolf in concert or the resurrection, the revival, the uh, re- the return of Jim Morrison and the Doors, which concert would you be going to, Pamela? Uh, that would be tough. That would be really tough. Now, you do realize that Jim Morrison in 1969 was pleasurizing himself on stage. That was considered, oh... Uh, that was like triple life without parole. Meantime, at the Grammys, right, last Sunday, Lil Nas X, a little pisher there, 
was uh, masturbating, and everybody was like, oh, that's art. That's art. Well, I don't like it when it gets too crazy. My friend and I went to the Beacon Theater with Greg uh, Allman performing, and and it got crazy in that place. They had the fire doors open. The wind was blowing. People were scorching the chairs with their smoking pot. And, and so was actually, uh, was Cher on stage with Greg Allman? No, that, that was way after Cher. And, oh, you mean uh, they had parted ways? We asked the usher if we could move, and he told us to, to bleep. So I guess we got our answer on that. Wow. 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 You were a bit of a wild one, Pamela. Come on now. Steppenwolf, Greg Allman, the Allman Brothers at the Beacon Theater. Come on. You had a little bit of that wild side in you, Pamela. Well, good music is good music. Oh, definitely was. I love the Allman Brothers. I love Steppenwolf. But I got to tell you, Jim Morrison and the Doors could play for hours and hours. And they had videos back then in the 60s, you know, when people didn't associate videos really with groups that were out of this world, Pamela. Yeah. And who would have thought? Who would have thought the guy was from Melbourne, Florida, right? Oh, yeah. If you look up his history online, he was really, like, nerdy and everything. and. At the beginning. I see, that's why he became an exhibitionist. He was nerdy growing up. He got no respect. The girls were giving him no play. And then all of a sudden he said, I'll have my revenge, my little pretties. And he got up on that stage, tore his shirt off, started uh, pleasurizing himself in the middle of the Miami Bowl, and then all of a sudden, Jackie Gleason and Anita Bryan and Kate Smith said, oh, no, that's Sodom and Gomorrah. And they had 30,000 people in the Orange Bowl denouncing Jim Morrison and the door saying, lock them up, lock them up, lock them up. Oh, so good. Yeah. What a great song. This guy in 1969. I'm surprised he didn't make it to Woodstock. So good. So good. And I believe he's alive. I know they say he died of an overdose in Paris and he's buried there. I don't believe that. I believe that he's probably in the Ozark Mountains in Arkansas playing a banjo and having become a revivalist, a televangelist. Yeah, yeah, that's what I think. <laughs> I really do, Pamela. He is alive! The real shame, two talents. Uh, Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And remember, at that time, remember the big three. The big three. Jim Morrison, as you said. Janis Joplin. And how can you forget... The man with a thousand fingers on that guitar coming out of Seattle, Jimi Hendrix. Yep. In fact, Pamela, can you imagine when uh, at the Forest Hill Stadium, when they would play the U.S. Open there, they had concerts. That Jimi Hendrix was the opening act for the Monkees and the crowd booed Jimi Hendrix, Pamela. Oh, wow. Uh. Oh, oh, I gotta calm myself down. I gotta calm myself. I gotta calm myself down. Oh, yeah.
so good. Here's the punchline coming up. Any better than that. Yeah, that was a great competition. Steppenwolf or Jim Morrison and the Doors. Writing music. I mean, that was it. The bikers. You know, they had their choice back then. And depending on what kind of bikers you were, you were just a biker for sport. If you were all turned on by the movie with Peter Fonda. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Easy Rider. Oh, that was great. Jack Nicholson, remember at the gravesite there? Who could forget? What a great era that was. In fact, it so inspired me. I went out and got one of those jackets, you know, that had those, um, it's like a leather jacket. You should have never worn it in the summer. I made a big mistake with that because it eats holes right into that leather with a little, uh, what could we call that? The frayed leather straps on it. Oh, so good. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Mike in Manhattan. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Mike. Well, uh, I had I was had the uh, the fortune of uh, of uh, spanning like a, a number of decades. I'm like your age, a little younger, maybe. Uh, I went to the Palladium when it was still, it was also called the Academy of Music. And I saw uh, Santana there and Gato Barbieri. Uh-huh. The old days, like he was... 1976. He was Gal Barbieri was the the saxophone player on uh, I think it's called uh, Baker Street by Guy Rafferty. Uh, big solo he did, and uh, he opened. He was the opening act, and Santana came on later. And there was like the hype was like like 76. I was like 19, but when I was in my early 30s, it was like I wouldn't. It, it was changed into a, uh, a dance club. I also went there. It was more of a at the time, they had a lot of video dance clubs where there was all these video uh, screens, and they would they would show videos, and uh, sometimes they would, uh, the video like these individual screens would all become one big screen, and they would show this huge like uh, video. And uh, I used to go there with the first wife there, all the way, uh, I guess in the late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, that was, uh, was that was a c- yeah. club owned by Steve Rebell and Ian Schrager, uh, right yeah, after right. they uh, became such a success with Studio Fifty Four. Uh, uh, Phil Graham was the uh, the promoter for the uh, when I went to see Santana. He was still alive at the time. Phil Graham. Yeah, and uh, remember he had the Fillmore East down on Second Avenue, didn't? Uh, not off, but just virtually around the corner. It yeah, was like, you know, like it's, and uh, so uh, you know, I just I just curious. Uh, you're you're roughly my age group, uh, about sixty five or so. Yeah, I'm sixty eight. I just wonder. I, I have a tendency to ask people of my age, my cohorts, is it like when was the last time you actually went out to a dance club? Wow, for me, it was quite some time ago. Quite some time ago. But when I went, boy, I went hard and heavy, Mike. I mean, I'd go to the main club, and then I'd go to the after-hours club until the break of dawn when we'd break through the doors, and the bright light in the morning was so intense that you had to cover up your eyes. It's called the walk of shame. (laughs) Oh, I loved it. But it was definitely dangerous and risque. I wouldn't recommend anybody do it. I had a lot of uh, real close calls in those after-hour joints because uh, the kind of people who would frequent those uh, after-hours joints would soon end up being locked up in the joint. 
Yeah, they were like cocaine dealers. Uh, they stay up until like one o'clock in the afternoon. Let's say if it was a Saturday to Sunday, they would close to like one o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday, and the people that had been out literally twelve to sixteen hours that night. Yeah, yeah, and I was like a whirling dervish. I loved uh, to dance, and uh, a lot of these guys uh, they they thought it was uh, not macho to dance. But then right. again, if you started, uh, I think it was Costello. Uh, Costello said, uh, "Tough guys don't dance." Yeah, yeah, no, that was the common uh, mentality. And I learned early on that if you're a good dancer, I looked at my uncle Vincenz. Uh, boy, was he a good dancer. He ballroom dancing. He won all kinds of trophies. He looked like Bella Lugosi, so he was a bit frightening. But, boy, this guy could dance. And I said, hmm. And my grandfather, Fidel Bianchino, he was a great dancer, too. So I said, you know, these guys got all the girls. Uh, and they didn't have to try all that hard because – the girls would be sitting there with sometimes nothing to do but to dance with one another. And so if you could just get up and dance with them, it didn't mean that you, you were going to have sex with them or you're going to be necking with them or making out, but just having a good time. They, to them, this was like worth the night out, but their boyfriends, real gavones, just sitting there, I fornicating you and mad dogging you. Like, how come you're dancing with my girl? Well, like I said, uh, I went out last night dancing uh, out in Brooklyn, like Kiwanis, Red Hook area. It's called the Bell House. Hmm. The Bell House. And again, that that, that I, I don't know what you're talking about because, like I said, I was. Uh, it, they have like a dance club. It's again a video dance club, and they they were showing videos from the '90s, and they were showed uh, Depeche Mode, uh, Personal Jesus, my own Personal Jesus, and I was like dancing to it and. Uh, I said, this girl, I guess everybody there is under 30, all right? I'm like, so I'm like 30, even 40 years older than the people. And uh, I guess she's around 29, 30. And she's hanging out, know, a hipster Brooklyn type with, you know, the, the stocking cap on their head and, you know, the, yeah, the fake, I, I uh, see, truckers. For some reason. You know, shirt that says Bob on it. Yeah. For and she, you know, the, he's, she's just standing there with the boyfriend doing nothing. And also she breaks away the boyfriend and starts dancing dance with me. For the most part, people, even the young kids don't dance. They just watch. Yeah. Okay? They yeah, that's true. And I was just basically me and her dancing and then basically an, an empty dance floor, you know. Yeah, well, you see, I guess it, you lucked out. You lucked out, Mike. Uh, it, yeah. I thought that was an EDM club, electronic dance music. They have everything there. It's, they have, like, a lot of 90s revivals because it's like the, you know, the, the Generation Z crowd is like we live in their childhood, their childhood of the 90s. That's why that's why mature that was my mature adulthood. But to them was they they were kids and like watching MTV at age six or something like that. And now that's twenty or thirty years later, you know, kind of thing. There, that's their nostalgia. Your or my nostalgia might be Frank Zappa. It might be Greg Allman. It might be The Doors. But to them, they don't even know these people. So they're they're nostalgic. And these are to them old. It's like Pink or Britney Spears or. Uh, like I said, The Offspring or Nirvana or uh, Jane's Addiction or Inex- that, you know, like bands from 30 years ago and more are considered you know nostalgic to them because it was their childhood. Hmm. I never thought of it that way. Mike spans the ages, you see. He's in his 60s. He's going to that club. He's able to dance. Even guys of this generation don't want to dance. I don't know what to, what's wrong. It doesn't mean you're making a personal commitment. Like, you're going to have to give a ring. You're going to have to get married. You're just up there dancing, having a good time. Everybody goes their way afterwards, but not in those old disco clubs. Oh, boy.
Feet don't fail me now. Time to get out of here. Let's go to Jeff in New York. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Jeff. Hey, Curtis. How are you, buddy? How you doing? Uh, I'm going to let you pass. I'm going to let you pass on that because, you know, I've had better days, Jeff. Yeah, right? Listen, uh, back in the days, I went and saw Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Oh, so good. So good, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Uh, that fentanyl oh, took hey. took him out. That fentanyl took him out. Yeah, it's terrible, terrible. And also, uh, you forget about 1969. What else happened in 69 that the whole world was watching? Man, I, I thought I hit everything. What did I miss? We landed on the moon. Oh, that's right. Landing on the moon. And you know, some Gavon, the, some Gavon the other morning... On Frank's show, you know, uh, you get $1,000 if you can get 10 questions uh, in uh, one minute, said John Glenn. John Glenn. John Glenn. John Glenn, yep. And then on the moon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I disappointed you. I'm sorry. I, I really, I, I disappointed you. I yeah, Tom Petty, great stuff. Let's go to Juan calling all the way from the Bronx. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Juan. Hey, Curtis, let me tell you something. This is your best show in years, okay? Wow, that's saying a lot, Juan. That's a lot of years. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Listen, Curtis, I want to ask you two questions. The first one is, who would you pick between Three Dog Night and Rare Earth? Oh, Rare Earth, without a doubt. Rare Earth. I never liked Three Dog Night. Never liked them. Okay, one last question. I hope nobody's offended or anything. But, Curtis, what the hell is a bunch of rappers doing in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, for Christ's sake? And people like, um, well, name them, you know? Uh, what's up with that, Curtis? I got to tell you, Juan, that uh, I got hurt to, to see Kid Creole is going to be doing a manslaughter rap after five years in jail for killing a homeless guy. One of the great, well, the greatest rap group of all time uh, with the song, The Message, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, Kid Creole. Hmm. We'll talk about that in a few hours when I come back from uh, 9 to 12. Yeah, I'll tie that into the whole homeless situation that we're going through here in New York City. He Creole, man. I remember he came into the McDonald's that I was night manager at. You know, they were stealing electricity in the back. They were doing jams at Teddy Roosevelt High School, and they'd come in there, and they'd be all cheapened up. No, I didn't have beef with him. I didn't have beef. Let's go to Ron in Michigan. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Ron. Hi, Curtis. Curtis, in 1968, the uh, Frank Zappa was opening up for Cream in Chicago. And that was, uh, <clears throat> we, did, we had just gotten over the Democratic Convention. And Frank Zappa, they, they opened up with their weird music. And they instantly, the crowd got real violent booing. And uh, Frank Zappa tried to, you know, get it, get his band going. But the booze got real, real, real bad, and, and they walked off the stage real fast. And Cream came on right away. And, man, they jammed. They jammed. They settled the crowd down. They got them rocking. Was that when uh, Clapton was with them? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. 
<clears throat> but I'll tell you the best music I heard was when I used to be going down to Maxwell Street, my mother and father, or sometimes just my dad would go down to my brothers. And a lot of the blues guys, like I saw Muddy Waters playing there because they would they would set up, uh, plug into a garage and, you know, their band, because they were still, you know, flying from a from a gig to, that night before. So they would come to Maxwell Street, like, to settle down. You know what I mean? And uh, it, <laughs> it was really, you know, beautiful. And then I saw Muddy Waters later, you know, like places at the electric factory in Chicago and stuff like that. But I'll tell you, Janis Joplin, she was doing a show at the Cheetah. <clears throat> then it, it was the Aragon ballroom used to be. And she, me and my girlfriend were right up front dancing our asses off. And I swear Janis Joplin, she came out, she had a bottle of, of uh, what was that? Southern uh, Comfort. Drink. Exactly right. And she was rocking. And I swear, she pulled up her dress, and she had no underpants on, and she was looking right at me. And I should have told my girlfriend, here's 20 bucks, take a cab, because me ah. and Janice are going <laughs> to... She was, she was ready, man. Uh, she was ready. Uh, yeah, that's what we call theater of the mind, Ron, as you were sitting there thinking that Janice Joplin wanted to have the urge to merge with you after drinking a quart. Of Southern Comfort, blitzed out of a mind. But unfortunately, the big three, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, and Jimi Hendrix, all would soon become room temperature. Boy, that was our era, ladies and gentlemen. And I still believe that Jim Morrison is alive. Oh, such a great song. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And it really resonates as United States Senate lawmakers, both uh, Republicans and Democrats, are eyeing a hearing on Title 42 that is expected to be repealed uh, by May 23rd. And uh, there will definitely be uh, immigrant surge, an illegal alien surge at the border. And I want to ask this question because we see that in the queue of uh, those hoping to gain entry into the United States at the Mexican border are now a lot of Ukrainians. Ukrainians who have had the wherewithal to fly to Mexico City and then take buses up to uh, Tijuana, hoping to get to the other side, San Diego, uh, or um, over to uh, Nuevo Laredo then uh, cross that bridge over the Rio Grande into Laredo, Texas, or into Juarez, and then cross the bridge, uh, cross the Rio Grande into El Paso. So there are more and more Ukrainians who are adding to the mix of those seeking asylum. So you have uh, Nigerians, you have those from Haiti, you have people from Kenya, you have people from uh, Afghanistan, You have people from, naturally, uh, Central America, Guatemala, Honduras, uh, El Salvador, Mexico, uh, you name it. They're there, Cuba. So the question is, should the Ukrainians be given the opportunity to come to the front of the line because they're in a war-torn country now, or should they just have to stand in queue and wait and wait until their number is called on the Mexican side, not being permitted to come on the American side. Remember, 
by May 23rd, if Joe Biden uh, has his way, uh, they'll be able to come across the border, say that they seek asylum on the American side. And then uh, Limigre, Immigration and Naturalization Service, will process them, will give them a Obama cell phone. And they'll be scattered into the wind with the hope that they will uh, show up for an asylum hearing at one of the many immigration courts around the United States. The question is, should Ukrainians be given uh, the opportunity to come to the front of the line? Now, President Joe Biden has said that we will accept uh, a total of 100,000 Ukrainians as um, immigrants into the country and refugee status, asylum status. But if they show up at the Canadian border, or let's say uh, they fly into Canada and show up at the Canadian border and want to come in through uh, Buffalo or Detroit, which is an easy hop, skip, and a jump uh, from Ontario, should they be permitted to be at the front of the line. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Now, the White House uh, had this statement to make about all asylum seekers. We also have to be honest about what's happening at the border. We have people showing up with asylum claims from places like Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, uh, Brazil, people fleeing uh, regimes where they are feeling persecution, coming here to make asylum claims. That's the uh, Joe Biden administration uh, sound out on asylum seekers. Here's our own Rudy Giuliani, Mike Kumbadicic, talking about the dangers that groups like MS-13, the cutthroat gang members, would find their way through our porous southern border. When Donald Trump said that some of the people coming in are animals, back in 2015, he was referring to this group. Because they had come in before, but I think this was a, that was around the time of their first notorious crime in New York when they were taking over Central Islip. And I think they cut somebody's head off and just stuck the person on the beach. That's what they do to set their territory so you don't mess around with them. They kill two or three innocent people. These guys, they macheted to death for not really not much of a purpose except exercise. Except for exercise. And then finally, my favorite show here, the many great shows here at WABC, Greg Kelly, that you can hear Monday through Fridays from 1 to 3, talks about what asylum seekers will get. Hey, uh, don't forget about the border situation. It is totally screwed up. Uh, They're letting people in on purpose, giving them cell phones, cell phones, cell phones, smartphones even. Smartphones so that they'll be equipped, so they can register to vote. When they get to wherever they're going to go, <laughs> they get a change of clothes. They get a little bus trip. They get a bus to the airport, and then they fly to Westchester County. Yeah, Westchester County or Republic Airport out in Long Island. Uh, but they don't fly to Linden Airport. Nobody flies. I don't think anybody flies to Linden Airport off Route 1 or 9. Does anybody, ladies and gentlemen? Please uh, enlighten me. I've never seen aircraft land at Linden Airport right off of Routes 1 and 9, across the street from what the old automobile plant would have been there. I forget the, uh, I, don't think, I don't think it was Ford. Maybe, maybe it was Ford. Fix or repair daily. Or maybe it was General Motors. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Tom in Brooklyn. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Tommy. Morning, Curtis. Always an education. Thank you. Thank you. 
I hope the Ukrainians at the border get here safely. And I say let them in. Biden said they'll accept 100,000 to put them on the list. Um, I guess the other people, I, you know, I have no problem with people coming in on the border as long as they're here for the right reasons. Uh, going to the original Palladium, uh, I never had a chance. Uh, I never had the pleasure to go there, but I'd like to go to the new one before I die. I have a couple of um, uh, trivia for you. Do you know who inspired the name for Led Zeppelin? Ah, who uh, inspired the name? Well, we know it wasn't uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, right? No. Who no. was it? Who was I, it? I'll give, I think, I'll give you a hint. He was one of the best drummers in the world. Huh. And he said, he said, they're going to shake like lead balloon. Wow. No, no, you got me. Who is it? All right, it's Keith Moon from The Who. Wow. And wow. Also, those, you know, there's a lot of people in the 27 Club. I just thought it was a few, Brian Jones and Hendrix and Joplin, Morrison, with that 27 Club. Did you know Kurt Cobain died at 27, too? Yeah, but we know he didn't just die a normal death or an OD death. Mm-hmm. You know what happened, Tom. Uh, yeah, I got to remember you. Yeah, well, you know, the sawed-off shotgun that he put to his chin, they claim he killed himself. I want to know where was his wife, Courtney Love. That's what I want to know, Tom. Yeah, did you get a big insurance check? I mean, I'm married. Anyway, um, I, I, you know, we talked about, you talked about Pat Bennett earlier. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, she, let me tell you, she's a great, great performer. I, I saw her twice, uh, in 86 and 88, and one was at the Meadowlands and one was at Jones Beach. And she really is a beautiful woman. She's feisty on stage, but she's only five foot. She wears these long shim. I couldn't believe she could run around that stage with them. It was amazing. That's incredible. Now, uh, when I think of Pat Benatar, I think of my own wife, Nancy, because they were both born in Greenpoint, Polish, mm-hmm. Polish. Polacco, Polacco. Right. Uh, then Pat Benatar went out to Babylon. Nancy's family went out to uh, Bohemia. And both of them went to Stony Brook. Wow. Except my wife can't sing a note, you know, keep it in the shower. Keep it in the shower, you know, keep it in the shower. So I got a joke before we go, all right? I I heard Joe Biden was doing some carpentry the other day. He cut the board twice and it was still too short. Oh. Oh, open mic night, huh? Anyway, let's go to the phones. Let's go to Joan uh, calling from Manhattan. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Joan. Hi, Curtis. I I have a trivia thing, too, in a way. I guess nobody wants to get too serious tonight, it looks like. But they will, I'm sure, eventually. It's a very good question you're asking about the border. But like I say, I don't want to deal with that right now. What I want to ask you is... The show that was on, that was on tonight, right? That's on before Cousin Brucey. The man who does that show. Do you know him? Named Vinny Madunio. Yes, yeah, you know he's him? a he's a teacher, uh, and uh, Cousin Brucey uh, is like his mentor. Oh, okay. When you say a teacher, you mean in the elementary school, public school? What? Yeah, I, I don't know what specific school, but oftentimes in one hour he has here on Saturdays, uh, right before. Cousin Brucey, he talks right. about being in the classroom as a teacher, his fellow uh-huh. students, and his fellow teachers. 
Okay. Now, the name Modugno, I don't know how common that is, but I was just mentioning to Joe Piscopo the other day, uh, Joe Pisco was, Piscopo was talking about Bobby Rydell, you know, who just passed. Sure, sure. And he mentioned some of the songs that Rydell had done, and he did Volare, and, and um, Joe mentioned that uh, Dean Martin had recorded Volare, and I called up and reminded Joe that the original Volare, the big hit, which I found out later, I didn't even know, later I heard somebody say it, was, it got the Grammy that year and was the, was the number one hit on the hit parade, the original Volare sung by a real Italian guy whose name was Domenico Modugno. Oh. Same name as Vinny. Is Vinny related to Domenico Modugno by any chance, or is this just a big uh, coincidence? No, no, no. You know, I'm going to have to find that out. It may well be. Uh, kid, obviously, I call him a kid. He's a grown man, but... Uh, he was young, though. He has a young voice. Yes, yes, so very young, and obviously... Uh, he mm-hmm. wants to follow in the tradition of uh, Tony Orlando without Dawn and obviously Cousin Brucey. He's doing a right. great job, but I will definitely yeah. find out for you. Definitely. So do you recognize the name Domenico Modugno, or is that a little before your time? No, no, no. That was the uh, song that my grandmother, oh, wow. Nicoletta Bianchino, listened to, Volare. Uh, she, did Nicole, not listen, right? she did not listen to Dean Martin's version or to Bobby Rydell's version. My, my older sister, Alita, loved Bobby Rydell. She had his pictures all over her room. Right. right. But uh, who, who was it who listened to Domenico Modugno, your, your aunt? No, no, my grandmother, Nicoletta Bianchino. Right, and she listened to the real Italian guy with the Italian accent. Yes. And, and uh, what I heard uh, after I told Joe Piscopo about it, he, he, he had forgotten a little bit about Domenico Modugno. He said, oh, right, right. And what I heard later, which I did not know, was that it was the first, maybe only, I don't know, uh, song in a foreign language that became number one on the hit parade. It was a great song. He had a beautiful voice. And he also won the Grammy that year. And, um, you know, Americans usually don't speak too many languages. Most Americans speak one language and they're proud of it, right? <laughs> well, I speak American. I don't speak any of those foreign languages. <laughs> yeah, but they, they, most Americans, they love the Italian language, the flow, the flow of the Italian language. Right. And if you listen to the voice, I don't know if you have it there. I'd love to hear it. I haven't heard it in like 20 years or something. But um, the man had a beautiful voice. And it's, it's, it's that he, his spirit was so great that you knew how happy he was. The, the only word I did understand in there, I knew a little Spanish at the time. And I heard him say felice, which, you know, is Italian for happy. But you don't need to understand a single word. I think that's why it became number one, because you hear this, his whole voice is smiling throughout the whole song. He is happy and there's no doubt about it because he's a great great singer no but i promise you uh joan i will find out please if the uh there is a a lineage with uh vinnie maduro uh who is on before cousin brucey he's on every uh saturday from uh five to six does he sing at all do you know you ever heard him at all Mm, no but i'm gonna find out all I can remember is the original Volare that my grandmother, Nicoletta Bianchino, listened to. Uh, I guess it's not really a phonograph, but on the Victrola. They had a Victrola in their, uh, in their part of the house. We all lived in the same house. 
And in their house, they had the 13-inch RCA uh, black and white TV with the Victrola. It was all part in the console. And she would spin the record that way. And both she and my grandfather, they just loved it. And my grandfather would always be looking for Caruso records. Caruso! Bravo, fortissimo, Caruso. 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to John in New York. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Johnny. Yes, hello, John. Hey, hey, Curtis, good to hear you, man. Thank you. Thank you, John. Hey, listen, uh, called for a couple of different reasons. You, 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 you know, I, t- I tuned in and you guys are all over the place, so it's it's kind of kind of fun listening in. First of all, I want to talk to you about your question uh, after the hour came up about the Ukrainians. I think they should be put up uh, on the queue and, and allowed to come in. I don't think you've given your uh, thoughts on it yet, but I'd be curious to hear what you think. I think that's a, a great idea and, and should be done. Uh, secondly, uh, the Palladium, I was there from 79 to 82, many a Saturday night, and um, looking forward to the new Palladium. Thirdly, trivia seems to be something that's uh, happening tonight on the show. I wanted to ask you a question, Curtis. Sure. Uh, there's a young lady that has had a hit song that is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She's had a hit song in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and 2010. I cannot figure out why she's not in the Hall of Fame. It bothers the heck out of me. Do you have any idea who it is? I'll give you a hint. You mentioned her about 25 minutes ago. Kate Smith. Try again. Anita Bryant. Cher. 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 That's right. Cher. Can you believe that? She is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She must have pissed somebody off big time. That's the way I think of it. Well, think of it. Um, You have Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren claiming to be part Cherokee. She's not. Uh, And then uh, Cher, who is. Cher, who's legitimately uh, Cherokee Indian. And you would have thought on that ground alone, John, you know, because of political correctness. I mean, other than Redbone, right? Uh, I love the group Redbone. They were legitimately uh, Native Indians. Come and Get Your Love was their hit. That's right. Uh, but, Come and Get Your Love. Sure. But, but Cher had so many hits. And, in fact... Even though she was, she was. I'm not kidding you. Yeah, yeah, but uh, even though she was the ultimate diva, she could show up two hours late, Madison Square Garden, and her crowd would not leave. Uh. Would not leave. Uh, I remember uh, one of the promoters there, uh, Vito Bruno, was saying he was having a heart attack because uh, uh, apparently Cher did not want to show up because Bette Midler was coming on before her. And she didn't want to show up at Madison Square Garden until Bette Midler had completely cleared out of Madison Square Garden. So naturally, you had two divas, right? Like two scorpions in a brandy glass. You know, Bette Midler saying, I'll take my sweet pippy time leaving the dressing room. So Shat would not come to Madison Square Garden. If this story is true, obviously I was hearing it third hand from Vito Bruno, until... uh until Bette Midler had completely cleared out, her entourage would gone. Remember, no cell phones back then. Uh, so um, the promoter, you can imagine the promoter's thinking he's going to be lynched, Vito Bruno and the other guys. 
And then eventually she showed up, and not one of her fans left Madison Square Garden. They were waiting for two hours, John. Uh, her fans loved her, but she must be, she must, if you call her a diva, and I guess she is, she must have pissed somebody off big time because I don't get it. I've never gotten that. Well, listen, she's got, got she's got, got the she's got about. the perfect entry now. I don't know what percentage of Native Indian she is, but she legitimately is. Boy, right. you know she could easily get the uh, you know the uh, American uh, uh, Indian Association to uh, say this is prejudicial. Look, they were able to get Cleveland, where the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is, to get rid of Chief Wahoo, and they're now called the Cleveland Guardians. Unbelievable! Oh my God, Cleveland Curtis, Guardians! Yeah, yeah, yes, go ahead. Questions for you, brother. Yes, saw you when you were running for mayor. By the way, props, man. Uh, I, I I thought you did a good job, and I, I thought you uh, had a chance to win. So uh, good for you for doing that. You went after your dream. Congratulations. <clears throat> Do you have further aspirations? Stay tuned. Okay. Secondly, uh, I, I saw an interview with you. Is it true you live in an apartment and you got like fifty cats in there? Not quite 50. Uh, let's look at about one-third of that. It generally uh, averages about 16 to 18 rescue cats that my wife Nancy runs off to the shelters before they're going to be destroyed and killed and claims them. And then uh, a lot of these cats, they have to be taken care of. You know, they have been abused. So she gets them back to the point where they'll socialize. They won't hide from people. And then she adopts them out and forces them out. And then we bring more cats in. We have a feral cat colony in Canarsie and in Sunset Park. So I think all total, you're right, we have about 50 cats that have been rescued uh, from the shelters or from the streets. Has that been your love for a while, or is it uh, because of your wife, Nancy? No, I always liked cats and dogs growing up because uh, in Canarsie, my grandfather, Fidelo Bianchino, had the dog, uh, German, he was called, a hunting dog, in the yard. Uh, but he had cats in the basement, and I said, Pop, why do you have cats in the basement? He goes, because there are mice. And when you have cats, there are no mice. So it was it, it was very pragmatic. But naturally, once I met my wife, uh, Nancy, it was obvious she was a cat woman. Uh, and cat, I got to tell you, cats, they all have their own unique personalities. They clean themselves. And most importantly, when I was having issues, medical issues, my uh, blood pressure would go up sometimes at 238 over 140, really dangerous. And the cats wow. instinctively know to lay on your chest, and do you know your blood pressure goes down? Mm. Mm. That is incredible. Amazing. I would never yeah, have known that, that if I hadn't experienced it. Wow, that is incredible. I have one last question for you. I'm all over the place tonight, so forgive me. Curtis, I used to listen to Bill O'Reilly quite a bit for a lot of my information. Um, I'm running out of people to listen to, to try to think, try to realize who's talking, who's talking the truth, who's walking the walk, who's talking the talk. Uh, I don't know who to pay attention to much these days. I thought maybe Rudy Giuliani could do it, but I don't, I, I don't think he, I think he's behind in his game the last couple of years. He's hard to, uh, he's hard to appreciate Who's out there, man, that I can pay a little bit more attention to that's going to give me the real deal, not the right side, not the left side, not the craziness, not the Meshuggah. I wish. Who's out, who's out there? Yeah, I wish there was like one individual I could point to, but you almost got to cherry pick. And I know that's difficult for working men, working women, because they have a limited amount of time. 
But you really do have to cherry pick uh, because there are very few independent and autonomous voices out there, John. Yeah. You know, they, they oftentimes they're not given an opportunity uh, because it's thought, well, they won't have an audience. You know, if if uh, if again, they have different points of view about different subjects, they won't have a built in audience. If you're far left or you're far right, you immediately fall right into an audience. Uh, I've never been that kind of personality, but uh, uh, many, many people in our business uh, do because it's so easy to do. You just uh, lip sync what you think is popular and you have an immediate audience. No, you know, you're right. You, you Oftentimes, listening to you, I think when you were on before you ran for mayor, what were you on, like between 1 and 3? Yes. Uh, in fact, no, actually 12 uh, midday to 3 in the afternoon, correct? Yeah, 12 to twelve to 3. I had a hard time figuring out, you know, because you, you were all over the place and you were fair. I had a hard time figuring out what your game was. Like, I have no idea. Were you a Trump supporter? No, no, I did not support Trump, but I did not support uh uh, Hillary, I did not support Joe Biden. Uh, I voted independent. Uh, trust me, there were a lot of Republicans uh, who wondered, what the hell are you running as a Republican? I had more problems in, with Republicans, John, than I did with Democrats. Huh. You, The Republican leadership, for the most part, not all of them, for the most part, banded up against me. Uh, that's why they were surprised that I won the primary uh, and then uh, totally uh, many of them abandoned ship in the general election when the deck was already stacked against me. But still, uh, I will never forgive and I will never forget. I know who they are, John. And one day, one day we will settle all scores. Well, I know you paid, probably paid attention to Mayor Koch when he was on the radio. And he, what, what was that thing he used to say? You, you voted me out. You're not going to have the opportunity to, you know, he, he didn't accept anybody saying, hey, May, you got to run. He said, nope, you voted me out, I'm done. That's right. He said, you voted me out. Now it's like you got to live with it. Exactly. You got to live with exactly. it. Exactly. Although what's happened now, what's happened now in the first 100 days uh, of Eric Adams in some of the areas that I won against him, like Bayside, Whitestone, College Point, um, over in uh, Middle Village, uh, Maspeth, people are actually circulating bumper stickers that said, don't blame me, I voted for Curtis Sliwa. <laughs> right, right. I, Curtis, I don't think you're the type of guy who is going to root against the mayor of New York, the current mayor, the guy you ran against. I don't appreciate Rudy going so hard against the guy. Don't you think you got to give somebody a little bit of time before you decide whether he's worse than the last mayor and he's and he's horrible and all this stuff? Well, 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 well uh, imagine about the guy. I know. But imagine, John, we all know what Rudy was able to accomplish as mayor. He inherited exactly. a city from David Dinkins, 2000 murders a year, 5000 unsolved shootings. By the time he left eight years later, we were the safest big city in America. Eric Adams has now had two dinners with Andrew Evilize Cuomo and one with Shamu El Jefe Chris Christie because he says, I want to learn things from them. Well, what are you going to learn from them about fighting crime? The best the best person ever to do it is Rudy Giuliani. Just just take a 45-minute meeting, tell him I don't want to talk about Trump, Dominion, Smartmatic, the election. I just want to talk about what you did to turn this city around. He said he'll meet with anybody but for some reason, he refuses to meet with Rudy, who's the only man in New York City who's ever done it. Yes. No, the guy was tremendous. Tremendous mayor, no doubt about it. Tremendous. I thought he was going to be the next president of the United States, but uh, it didn't happen, unfortunately. No, no, but I will tell you this. 
is a wealth of information. I have an opportunity to speak with Rudy because we're both working uh, to qualify his son, Andrew, to get enough signatures so he can uh, be in the Republican primary against Lee Zeldin, the congressman, Rob Astorino, former Westchester County executive, and another guy named Wilson. Uh, and uh, we've had a lot of discussions about uh, the advice that he would have given Eric Adams or me if I was fortunate enough to uh, become mayor. He tells a great story. This is a great story, and maybe it might sink into Eric Adams. A lot of people don't understand Eric Adams voted for Rudy Giuliani. When Rudy Giuliani first ran for mayor, first ran for mayor, you know what Eric Adams was? A Republican. And he actually said, oh, David Dinkins is my friend, but he's soft on crime. Rudy Giuliani does a great job on crime. Now all of a sudden he's forgotten all that. Oh, I don't remember saying that. Oh, I remember. John Lindsay was a horrible mayor. No doubt about it. Uh, Crime was rampant. Uh, He was a Republican who then lost the Republican nomination when he ran for re-election and was given the Liberal Party line by Alex Rose and David Dubinsky. Very liberal, very progressive. Uh, He was able to win. He beat uh, Mario Procaccino, who uh, coined the phrase limousine uh, liberal when describing uh, former mayor John Lindsay and the patrician from Staten Island State Senator John Markey. Yet, when Rudy Giuliani was running against David Dinkins, John Lindsay supported David Dinkins. Supported David Dinkins the first time when David Dinkins won in 1988 and supported David Dinkins the second time for re-election when Rudy beat him just barely in 1992. And Rudy Giuliani understood, I need to meet with as many different people as possible who have been mayors. I'm not going to hold this against John Lindsay, that a former Republican actually supported my adversary, David Dinkins, twice. And he had long meetings with John Lindsay because, uh, as uh, Rudy Giuliani explained to me, John Lindsay knew a lot of things about running the city of New York. Not all of them were wrong. See, that's the difference between Rudy Giuliani and Eric Adams. Uh, he's failing in, uh, in uh, reducing crime. Crime stats indicate there's more crime now than what we had with uh, Bill de Blasio. Hard as that is to figure out. Uh, I never thought anybody would be worse than Bill de Blasio, but when you look at the stats, Eric Adams is, it behooves him to have a 45-minute hour meeting with the man who knows how to roll back violent crime problems in New York City because he already did it. Eric Adams said, oh, we're going to put into place broken windows, but it's not Rudy Giuliani's broken windows. Well, then it's not broken windows. You can't be a half-stepper and make this the biggest city with the least amount of crime in America like Rudy Giuliani did. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. How many of you? Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. 
Bruno.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. Two baby boomers uh, rode the Marrakesh Express in North Africa where you went to the Sook and you sampled uh, all the various products that they had grown. The bricks of hash, the marijuana, and the other um, hmm, psychosomatic uh, drugs that you could, just couldn't find uh, being dealt with in the streets uh, of Connecticut, Pennsylvania, New York, or New Jersey. And by the way, where was the Marrakesh Express, huh? What was Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young singing about? 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Dan, who's been patiently waiting on the line in Long Island. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Dan. Yeah, Curtis, we're the, we're the same age. And uh, let me just preface this by saying I did a tour of duty working at the Palladium. And I'll give you a little bit of trivia. The first group that kicked off the Palladium, do you know which one it was? No. The band. Wow. And that's, you see, I saw the band there. I don't think I was at the first show. Uh, I think it was a latter show. Uh, the opening acts were Tower of Power from the uh, Oakland, San Francisco area. They were the first act. Then followed by War, which was from uh, Oaktown, Oakland. And then followed by The Band, which was up in the Mid-Hudson Valley. Boy, that uh, that was a great. I, I paid for two tickets, 18 bucks a piece. A uh, young lady was supposed to uh, join me. Her father didn't want her to have anything to do with me, so I ended up going by myself, and I had a great time sitting there in the Palladium. Well, the band was the only group that evening, and uh, you talk about uh, some of the acts over the years that played there, just amazing. Like uh, we saw the debut of Blondie, and they had a special shirt made, and it was pink with white letters saying, Blondie is a group, because I guess... People maybe didn't know who Blondie was at the time. <laughs> but you, you've had the Stones that played there. You had Asia. You had the Bay City Rollers. I mean, I look back at it, and it's just amazing the amount of uh, groups that played there. Now, we are talking about Frank Zappa. You know, he had a monopoly on one particular date at the Palladium, and that was the Halloween show. Hmm. So every Halloween, Zappa would play. And uh, I, I believe he was a musical genius in that he, I think he was even classically tra- uh, trained. Uh, he would uh, conduct his group with a baton, and, and right in the middle of a song, he would have them stop, and they would stop on a dime. They were very tight, very well organized. And since you were saying uh, what type of individual he was, you know, you have the dressing rooms, and uh, you know what he required in his dressing room. No. Some people have some weird things that they want or they won't play. Zappa, the only thing he would require was a pot of black coffee and Winston cigarettes. That's it. That was it. And, uh, you know, he was was quite the performer. And uh, the Halloween show was his date. Now you mentioned uh, you mentioned other performers. Uh, we'll be kind to them and say they were a bit eccentric in terms of their demands. Who was uh, the most difficult? Would you say for the promoters to deal with, uh, or to try to make sense with? You know, when when obviously they had been booked to do a concert, 
Uh, they were either late, uh, they weren't showing up, or they were already there and they were having a hissy fit. Well, you know, they all had writers, and of course, uh, the promoter would cross off most of it. So it, it's really hard to say, but I will say that the Outlaws, when the Outlaws played the Palladium, the Hells Angels crashed it. And uh, there was a big to-do. They had a song, Angels High or something. And the Angels wanted them to change the lyric of the song. Otherwise, they were going to create some uh, trouble. When the Stones played there, uh, there was a special shirt. And all it said was, they're here. So it's just amazing the amount of stories that you would, uh, you know, you talk about the Grateful Dead. You'd have people who would uh, fall out on the floor come to and the the, uh, the show is still going on you know what I mean so it, it was uh, quite quite an experience and uh, you look back at it and you can say wow you know yeah I saw that I did that I mean Elton John when he performed there went to Studio 54 so you know uh, it, it was just amazing the type of acts and the amount of acts that played there so it's a lot of history was there uh, an act that you had witnessed that was not well-received that uh, ultimately turned out to be a really good group? You know, that's interesting. Uh, Brown-Eyed Girl. Uh, I can't think of the uh, the performer, but he was so wasted on stage that he had to leave. Hmm. And, um, you know, he just... Uh, you know, uh, one of the favorite groups uh, that I liked was Southside Johnny. And, you know, Southside, when he'd be on stage, he'd, he'd look like a bum, basically, you know. And there was one security guard who pulled him off the stage. And he was laughing. He thought it was a joke, but they wouldn't let him back on. So finally, they figured it out that he, he was the performer. And it, it was uh, hilarious in that uh, <laughs> my my brother had uh, cut his hand, so he had it bandaged. And Southside uh, had a bandage on his hand. So it was kids bit when they uh, both saw each other and, uh, you know. But there was a lot. I, I liked Asia myself. You had Rossington Collins Band, excellent. I mean, there were a lot of good shows. I mean, there was something for everybody. Were there uh, shows in which uh, the turnout was very disappointing, audience turnout? Uh, geez, you know, you're taking me back uh, too long. I mean, everybody had a following. Um, and that's really what the promoters were uh, depending on, is that the band, uh, in addition to anybody you could get in off the street uh, who would read about it in the Village Voice or wherever it was advertised at that time, uh, that they would have a following in which people would find out where they were playing and just be there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, think about it. That That's in a day and an age where there was no Internet, no cell phones, no uh, emails, no texts, nothing. It was basically by word of mouth. Well, just remember anybody who saw Zapper at the Palladium, chances are it was Halloween. Hmm. Well, I appreciate those memories, Dan. All right. You be well, Curtis. Keep up uh, the good fight. And that's why uh, we went into this retrospective, because uh, we are, uh, in fact, running advertisements for the new Palladium, 
which is on 44th and 7th Avenue in Times Square. It has a little bit of what the old Palladium had and a lot of uh, new stuff that this new Palladium has. Uh, the last uh, thing that I knew it was was the Best Buy Theater when I actually interviewed Nick Cannon on the stage for 28 minutes. And Nick Cannon was like uh, Ryan Seacrest, milk toast at that time. This is before he weirded out. He would not say anything of meaning or significance. I felt I was uh, interviewing Derek Jeter, who was another person who would never, ever say anything of significance, would never sort of get out of his lockdown mentality, which obviously had uh, he was convinced would keep his image like Ryan Seacrest or like Nick Cannon had for a while until all of a sudden he uh, got hooked up with those uh, Hebrew Israelites, and he just flipped the script. What the hell happened, Nick? 1-800-848-9222. Could it have been hooking up with Mariah Carey? You you lost your mind? 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Roger, who's calling from Ohio, the Buckeye State. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Roger. Hey, Curtis. How come I never hear you guys talk about the balloon farm down in the village of New York? The balloon farm? Yes. I brought that club back to mid-Ohio back in 69. It closed, but it was a busy place down in Greenwich Village. All right. Now, describe it. Describe it because, you know, I I must acknowledge, I'm not going to say I knew anything about it when I didn't. Uh, describe what it was and why it was popular. Well, it, it attracted people. Oh, we just drove from all over to get to the balloon farm in New York in 65, 66, and 7. But it was all good rock and roll. Tim Buckley, uh, I think uh, Zappa might have played there. And uh, it was quite the place, the balloon farm. And then when they closed, we brought the name down here to Mansfield, Ohio, by the airport, and we had a hell of a good business running the balloon farm down there. Now, why? Why? Why and roll. Why the farm. name? Why the name the balloon farm? Kid, I don't know. They just called it the balloon farm. I got to tell you, man, you put out a good radio program for me down here in Ohio. I hear you so loud and clear, but I can't answer all those questions. I, I, I just know the balloon farm was. Somebody's going to call in now. Yes, yes, they will. Tell us about the damn balloon farm. Now, uh, could it have been on Bleecker Street? Uh, I know the bar, the back fence was right across, right around the corner. Hmm. Well, well, Roger in Ohio uh, has put out a call. Uh, I can't seem to uh, scratch my medulla and cerebellum and remember where the balloon farm was in uh, the village. But if anybody out there knows, please uh, come to our aid. Throw us a lifeline. Give us the answer. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. So you're out in Mansfield, Ohio, correct? Right. Okay. What? Right off Route 71. All right. And how long had you been in New York City? I haven't been there. I haven't been in New York in a long time, since 1968. Wow. So what caused you to leave? Uh, the Vietnam War was over, and I, I quit hanging around up there. And where did you hang out when you were in New York City? I hung out, oh, heck, 
kid. I'm so old now. I don't even remember the streets or anything. I just remember the village. Fillmore. I went to Fillmore, and I went to, uh, oh, my gosh. Uh, well, then, wait, if you went, if you we went, were, went we to. We little, little poor guys, you know, the tickets. I mean, you could see Jimi Hendrix in Cleveland for a $4 ticket, okay? $4 ticket. $4 I could go watch Jimi Hendrix at in Cleveland. That is amazing. And, and a lot of people, I tell this story over and over. Jimi Hendrix came in uh, from Seattle. He had been with a number of different mm-hmm. groups. He was in high, high demand. He hadn't yet been to uh, Woodstock, uh, but he was the opening act at a place called Forest Hills, which is where the United States uh, Tennis Open used to be played, but they'd have concerts. And he was the opening act for the Monkees, which was actually the number one group in America at that time because they had the TV program. And they booed Jimi Hendrix off the stage. They booed him off the stage. Listen, Curtis, what do you think a brand-new Corvette convertible sold for in 1965? All right, uh, that's another good trivia question. A brand-new Corvette convertible in 1965, what did it sell for? Gee, I have no idea, Roger. I was making a dollar fifty an hour at Westinghouse down here in Mansfield, and the car sold for thirty three hundred dollars. Thirty three hundred dollars, a brand new Corvette. Yes, and I was only making a dollar sixty five at the most an hour. But Curtis, I always wanted to call and tell you, why do you think we have heroin? You seem well read, but I know. Why do you think we have, we have heroin since 1963 in New York and Ohio? Where do you think it came from? Well, uh, heroin c- certainly wasn't grown in the United States, that's for sure. Uh, but tell, tell us, Roger. Okay, play coups where the bodies were sent out of uh, Vietnam to Dover Air Force Base. That was, it wasn't the, the mafia or nothing. It was a uh, very useful thing for the depressed troops coming back from Vietnam, heroin. It came in the coffins, man. And at Dover still, the bodies distributed all across America still from Dover Air Force Base. And that's where a lot of that heroin was shot out through here. And why blame the people on it now that use it? My God, it was Vietnam. Can't America take the blame? We got real problems down here in Ohio. In my city of 60,000 people, there must be 4,000 major heroin addicts. But fentanyl, you know, and everything else is in it. I never did the drug. If you would have legalized marijuana back in 62, you wouldn't have this heroin. Well, interesting, Roger, because uh, when you go back to that era, uh, marijuana was considered the evil drug, uh, so much so that when Richard Nixon was president, he uh, would uh, use uh, funds uh, from our United States government to poison the marijuana crops, the Acapulco gold, the other uh, crops that were being grown in Mexico, poison it. Uh, they felt it was so bad. Meantime, you're right. Heroin was coming in and from body bags uh, in Vietnam. We saw that in the... Uh, uh, definitely in that film that uh, the American gangster portrayed on Denzel Washington and uh, Nicky Barnes and some of the big-time uh, black drug dealers out of Harlem. Uh, 
were bringing in the kilos of heroin from the Golden Triangle, Burma, that were being smuggled into Vietnam, that uh, individuals in the CIA, criminals in action, and uh, other military individuals were stuffing in body bags and sending uh, back to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. Roger was exactly correct on that. 1-800-848-9222. That's one 800 848 WABC, let's go to Danny in New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Danny. Hey, Curtis, what do you hear? What do you say? I wanted to call last night. I couldn't get through. Uh, you were talking about Churchill. Yeah, we were comparing uh, uh, because so many people are saying that Zelensky of the Ukraine, who ironically was with Boris Johnson today in Kiev, uh, by the way, Boris Johnson, his hair completely flying in 50 different directions. But so many people are comparing Zelensky uh, to uh, Winston Churchill. That's why we had a long discussion about Churchill. He was full of syphilis. Huh. Did you know that? That I didn't know. And so was Abraham Lincoln. So now, Danny, you you're, no, so you're claiming that Abraham Lincoln had syphilis and that Winston Churchill had syphilis. That's right. What did they do? That's right. Well, did Abraham Lincoln have syphilis when he was assassinated at uh, the well, theater? he wasn't assassinated. You have to understand. Hmm. His wife used to run around two floors in the White House screaming, ranting, raving punching holes in walls. And she was sitting next to him when he got assassinated. She didn't move out of the chair because she was so full of uh, opium and heroin that she just sat there. Lincoln didn't want to go out that way. So he was assassinated on purpose, it was a setup so he wouldn't be disgraced. So now let me and get this straight. Let me get this. Army general, you had a play drop the soap. So let me ask uh, you this, Danny, because you're rewriting the history here. So uh, right. Abraham Lincoln. Uh, had syphilis at the time. His wife, Mary Todd, who we know had uh, strong, was uh, emotionally disturbed uh, often, uh, you say was filled with uh, opium and heroin. Uh, he was having syphilis, move. and he allowed himself he to be assassinated. Sure. He didn't want to be disgraced. He, wouldn't even, he didn't want to go out that way. She wasn't at his funeral. Right, now, where did you learn all of this, Danny? That's a good question, Curtis. That's what I would be Sean, asking myself. Dr. Sean David Morton. Hmm. And Big Brother and Big Brother got to him about two or three years ago. They took a hundred and sixty IQ and brought him down to a forest gump. Wow. That's on Revolution Revolution Radio, Freedom Slips. Dot com. Mm. Now, Danny, how uh, how much time do you spend a day listening to that? Well, uh, not much anymore because I'm like 80 years old. So 
Well, uh, let me let me recommend uh, that since you're no longer listening often to Revolution uh, Radio and learning of those only a couple of weeks, right? Well, I, I want you to wean off of that, and you can hear the same kinds of stories and narratives uh, with Frank Morano, the other side of midnight. Well, I happen to listen to his show once on a night, to be honest with you. No, 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 no. I admired you, though. I always admired you. uh, No, no, I I understand, Danny, but I I really, I want, it's it's an acquired taste, the Frank Morano show, but he would love that kind of a subject. That Abraham Lincoln, now get what Danny was saying. Abraham Lincoln had syphilis. We know that his wife, Mary Todd, uh, was emotionally disturbed. That, he was spot on. Uh, There's so many stories about how weirded out she would get. But Danny insists that on the night that Lincoln was assassinated, that Mary Todd was uh, uh, drug-induced with opium and heroin, and that Abraham Lincoln didn't want to be discovered as having syphilis, so... He either welcomed an assassination or he helped participate in planning his own assassination. Boy, that, sound, that sounds like something that you'd hear on the Frank Morano show. And he'd spend like a half hour on that and actually have a guest who would make that somewhat believable on like Danny. It's all theater of the mind, ladies and gentlemen. You can, uh, you can have these kind of discussions in the wee hours of the morning because anything is plausible at 2 o'clock in the morning, 3, 4, 5 in the morning. It's a little less plausible when it becomes daylight. But we entertain all those points of view. This is a forum for you, the callers. It's not for me to uh, pontificate, talk endlessly. Only 1% it has been determined uh, through the analytics. 1% of people who listen to talk radio ever, ever call a talk radio program, and we want to increase that percentage. It shouldn't just be um, guests or the host of the hostess pontificating and going on and on ad nauseum. There has to be more participation from you. Your turn to be heard. That, uh, that was the battle cry of my mentor, the greatest talk radio uh, show host of all time, Bob Grant. Uh, he, he was the full package. And he always believed that more people needed to express themselves, win, lose, or draw. And so this is an open forum, whatever's on your mind. Danny probably would not have felt comfortable calling other talk radio programs with that kind of loony kazuni belief system in terms of how Abraham Lincoln was uh, assassinated. He also claimed that Winston <gasps> Churchill, <gasps> who was always half in the bag, had uh, syphilis like Al Capone in Alcatraz. Ah! See, it's plausible at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning. But if you were to say that at 2 o'clock in the afternoon or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, they might be coming for you in the white coats. That's right. They might be coming for you in the white coats, shoot you with a little Thorazine, And all of a sudden, you would end up in a mental health asylum. Up next, it's a problem that plagues so many of you. The allergies that come when the cherry tree blossoms show in the beginning of spring. 
how many times you would hear this song over and over and over, especially when you approach Mother's Day, which everybody uh, is focused on. Uh, Father's Day, eh. Mother's Day sells more products. Mother's Day has less product returns than Father's Day, which uh, oftentimes is a dollar short and a day late. And the reason I'm playing this song right now is oftentimes it was mommy who first recognized that you as a little one might have had an allergy problem. And how many times was it that mom ended up taking you to the doctor, whether it was old school or not so long ago, when they would give you a series of allergy tests, which could be very exhaustive, sometimes painful, to try to determine why it was that you would be constantly sneezing. Constantly sneezing. Well, you know, every time the cherry blossoms bloom, and they've been blooming earlier and earlier, uh, it really is a trigger for the spring allergy season, which uh, I can tell you I know right away from my wife, Nancy, who has all kinds of those allergies, especially from tree pollen. And she starts, the eyes start to water. Uh, She finds it difficult to breathe at times. The allergies really take a toll on her. In fact, out of all the cities in the Northeast Corridor, guess which city is considered the worst city for allergies? Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go right to the phones uh, and to Brian, who's calling from New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Brian. Yes, I just want to comment on the uh, the Lincoln thing story. I had a history teacher in seventh grade. He told us a story that uh, after Mary Lincoln died, her, her son found her diary, and he read it. And after he finished reading it, he threw it in the fireplace, and he told her friends that nobody needs to know. So who knows on that? And was that uh, when they went back to Springfield, uh, Illinois, to bury uh, Abraham Lincoln? It could be, yes. I'm not sure. Maybe it was afterwards, you know, after she died. You know, I don't know. But well, around around that time. Yeah, well, she, she was severely emotionally disturbed. She had many episodes, uh, many times that she had lost complete control of her mental faculties. Yeah. Well, who knows? I just figured this guy was knowledgeable. He was a history teacher, and he knew a lot of things. So he, he mentioned that to us in the classroom. How much time did you spend learning about Abraham Lincoln? Oh, not that much. Just recently when I read uh, Killing Lincoln, the uh, Bill O'Reilly book. Ah, so is that where you picked that up from? No, the seventh grade history teacher. Ah, ah. Well, it's interesting because the uh, previous caller, uh, also from New Jersey, the uh, Kaju, who was up there at 80 years old, the... Uh, was quite conspiratorial about Lincoln uh, and Churchill, uh, but you don't necessarily buy into that, uh, what he said. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, I appreciate no, that, no, Brian. I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't know about that, no. No, no. How old are you? Uh, 63. Wow, 63. What great recall from your seventh grade history teacher. Well, I, I have a good memory of some things. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that that keep popping that ginkgo, that Bilbo ginkgo uh, that keeps that memory uh, really fluttering. Well, I take balance in nature, so <laughs> good, good. Appreciate that. Thank well, one, you. Yeah, one one more thing. I have a trivia question for you. You know, close to you was sung by the Carpenters, right? Uh, yeah, in fact, I think I heard tonight, it may have been either on Cousin Brucie or it was Tony Orlando Without Dawn, one of the Carpenter songs, but it wasn't that one. Yeah, yes, correct. Yeah, I think Cousin Brucie, I think, uh, you know who originally sang it and put it out on a record? No, I don't, Brian. A... All right, you ready? Richard Chamberlain from Dr. Kildare. You're kidding. Richard Chamberlain, Dr. Kildare. I have the picture sleeve 45. He sang it originally, but it was much more slower and a little more romantic. Now, let me ask you a question. Were you a Dr. Kildare fan or were you a Dr. Ben Casey fan? Uh, Well, when they came out, I didn't really watch uh, that kind of television much. It was mostly cartoons. You know, now over the years, I watch here and there when they have the retro TVs. They're on DVD, too, you know. The season. I will tell you that when um, I looked at uh, Dr. Penn K- uh, Casey, he was always a really intense guy, Ben Casey. Yeah. Dr. Kildare was more of a laid back kind of guy, much more laid yeah, back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. So he, he was a, a singer in addition to performing as Dr. Kildare. Yes. He, in the early 60s, he, he recorded for MGM because the TV show was from MGM, Dr. Kildare, and he recorded the song, and they made a picture sleeve 45 of it. Uh, you know, and I have it, but, you know, I don't know where it is right now. I got so much stuff, but I remember playing it. It was more slower, laid, laid back a little like Dr. Kildare. I got to tell you something, Brian. That's that's the kind of stuff that Frank Morano, who does The Other Side of Midnight, loves. He loves uh, uh, Captain Kirk. He loves uh, playing mm-hmm. songs that Captain Kirk has done, and Jerry Springer, uh, the former mayor of yeah. Cincinnati, and yeah. obviously the talk show host. He loves playing music from both of them. This would this would be perfect if he could get his hands on the Doctor Kildare song, actually sung by Doctor Kildare. I think it was also on an LP, a soundtrack for Twilight of Honor. He was the star, and he some of the songs are on. I think that might be on there. That record LP. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to reference this to Frank Morano. That's his kind of stuff. You know, the bizarre singers like Captain Kirk, horrible singer. Jerry Springer, worse. And I'm sure Dr. Kildare, probably worse than that. He's no John Tesh, I can tell you that. By the way, when we were growing up, we had our choices of doctors. Did you prefer the Dr. Kildare show? He was uh, always more laid back. Or the very intense Dr. Ben Casey show? He looked like he had anger management issues, Dr. Ben Casey. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Bill in Pennsylvania. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Bill. Hi. How you doing? Uh, uh, You were talking about lobotomies uh, last week? Yes, I was. Uh, there was an actress that had a lobotomy, and she made an appearance on uh, This Is Your Life, and there was a movie made about her. Wow, so she had a lobotomy. Yeah. Uh, was she still able to perform after the lobotomy? 
uh, on This Is Your Life, she was really weird. Uh, she didn't get excited. You, do you remember that show, This Is Your Life? Yes, I do. Yeah, well, you know how people used to get excited and stuff? When she was on there, she didn't get excited at all. She was really, really calm. Wow. She was a nice-looking blonde. Yeah, well, you know, uh, we don't realize this, but oftentimes people would be sent uh, away to a mental health hospital. Uh, they called it nut houses back then, psychiatric institutes. Right. And lobotomies would be performed. People thought that if you could relieve pressure from the brain, that it was pressure in the brain that somehow caused you uh, to be mentally disabled. That if they could relieve that pressure and give you a lobotomy, it would somehow modulate you. Uh, but oftentimes, that's not the results that, that people got. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's uh, curious. Uh, I figured that would be a trivia question to find out who the actress was, because I can't remember her name. Well, we got to throw it out to our listeners. <laughs> okay. Many of whom have probably survived lobotomies over the years. <laughs> At either Pilgrim State or Greystone in New Jersey, <laughs> any number of places. Some of our listeners, absolutely. So I'm going to throw that out there for consumption, Bill. Yeah. Hey, you got a great show, buddy. I Thank like you. Show. Thank you. Which part of Pennsylvania are you calling from? Butler. Oh, okay. All right. Continue. Spread the word. 1-800-848-9222. If there's anybody out there. Who has survived the lobotomy, although I realize that many of you might be a little shy to talk about that. But maybe you know of people in your immediate family or extended family or friends who were sent away to a um, what they used to call a nut house, uh, in which they underwent a metal seizure of a lobotomy. Like one of the uh, Kennedy kids, uh, Rose Kennedy, who was almost never heard from, was sent away to a... a um, sanitarium uh, in which uh, a lobotomy was performed. And back then, people were thinking that that might actually be a route to uh, relieve the brain of the insanity that was plaguing the thought process. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Joseph calling from New York. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Giuseppe. Morning, there. Good morning, Curtis. How you doing? Good, good, Joseph. Joe, good. Good. Listen, hey, hey, how does it feel to be born on the uh, same year the first jet engine flew over the United States July 15th, 1954, yes? Wow. What what flew over the United States? That was the first jet engine after it was um, the the plans were taken after World War II, which never got up, you know, after the ME-262 and all that. But that's not really important. Oh, whoa, 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 wait. I see, I didn't know that. We can get to it. 1954, the first jet engine flew over the United States, and I happened to be birthed in that year. Hey, that's momentous. You didn't know that? I had no idea. No, no, you taught me something, Giuseppe. Well, now you know. And listen, I forgot I left out the, the, the club the other night, Fantasy Island, where I got the autograph from the Tavares that disappeared off my Pennsylvania wall near the Pocono racetrack on the other side of the racetrack. On the wall with other pictures that you would know about. But we'll get to that. Now, now hold on um, and say, hold on. You you, you piqued you right, my right. curiosity. So I'm you going me- back to Manhattan, though. Watch. All right, go ahead. All right, but you're saying that when you were out in Pennsylvania... Yep. Up on your wall, there were pictures of who? 
there was a picture of three people in there, one holding up a certificate from presidential citation from President Reagan. There were others from uh, Master Su Chung Tang. We had the, a store over there in Flatlands down from Pecone, South Shore. That school, all the belt certificates, the Amco, Anthony A. Martino Company, and uh, a certificate of um, a thing to operate small boats with a nice little rowboat on there with a oar, and all around the edges perforated was uh, like the dollar bill, you know, the fancy, like you see on top of the building. That was from my grandfather's certificate when he had four tugboats. What what happened to those What happened to those certificates in Pennsylvania, there, Joey? Well, they were left on a wall in the garage that I rented, and uh, the guy had asked me if he wanted to put a couple of things in my garage, and he wanted to fill in the garage up. So I came back, I let it. When it take a long story short, when he left, he took everything, including my stuff. I probably burned it, whatever, he's dumping garbage all over the property and everything. You know, this, this is going back about 10 years, don't look, 2000, about 10 years ago. And you, uh, to you, you can never forget this. Oh, no, I can never forget that because, you know, you know, it just comes a time when you separate what's bought from mine and you move on. Look, 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 hey, watch this. Here goes an example. Sounds like he's in Poseidon Adventure there, like he's underwater. I was fascinated with that conversation, as I always am. I was trying to connect the dots. Those certificates that were on the wall in Pennsylvania that he no longer had access to, and he is obsessed with that over the last 10 years. Hey, that must have been some pretty important certificates. I was trying to get down there. You know, it's my interview style. I was trying to get down to what the hell those certificates were about. I wasn't getting very far with Joey, was I? Yeah, he's, uh, he's quite a corker, that Joey guy there. Yeah, he's a corker. Let's go to Lauren, who's calling from New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Lauren. Yeah, uh, Frances Farmer is the name of the actress, and uh, the, they did the lobotomy. What a lobotomy is, they cut the two, you have two hemispheres of your brain, and they cut the corpus callosum, the, the part that connects the two hemispheres of the brain. They sever it so that the, they, they're not communicating anymore. But it was Frances Farmer and uh, Jessica Lange made a movie about it. Her mother forced her into it. It was a horrible situation. And why can't we all get along? Wasn't that Rodney King? Yes. Perfect. Rodney King. And Cher is not Cherokee. Oh, she's not? What is she? Navajo? She's, no, nothing. I mean, she's, she's Armenian on her father's side. Her mother's side was French, English, Scottish, Dutch. And there was some... Uh, looking into her Cherokee background, and then finally, uh, oh no, said that it's false. So you mean another Elizabeth Warren? Well, she she it wasn't her fault. You know, her mother said it, and then she checked it out with one of those you know ancestry things, and um, then Cher came forward and said it was false. Oh my after. God, this is like two in a row. Oh, Elizabeth Warren would never admit it. At least Cher admitted it. I could have swore when I could have swore when they had their variety show that was very popular when she was uh, married to the future congressman uh, Bono. No, not Bono. That's right. The short guy. The shorty short guy. She was tall. He was short. Uh, 
But I could have swore that in the variety show, he referred to her as being part Cherokee. Well, they did. They did. On her mother's side, her mother claimed to be English, Scottish, Dutch, French, and one sixteenth Cherokee. But Mm. when, you know, this Ancestry.com thing came out, it turned out when they went all the way back to the 1840s or whatever they did, that it was not true. Oh, God, Lauren. God. Why can't we all get along? Yeah, Rodney King. He took that beat down in the Simi Valley, remember? Uh, by oh, the LAPD, uh, we got it. Now, remember, this that was, I don't think people recognize uh, what happened there because that was in the 90s. There were not cell phones. Uh, there was not what we do now, video everything. I think the person who videoed the beatdown by the LAPD officers of Rodney King uh, in the uh, street there uh, was with some kind of VHS uh, way of filming back then. I forget what uh, the method was. But they certainly didn't have the technology back in the 90s that we have now where everybody has a cell phone and they can video. You know, you're right. I never thought of that. Yeah, and then remember there was the uh, – we saw the beating of Reginald Denny, although I think we saw that when the mob was dragging him out on Crenshaw in South Central. He was driving that big uh, gasoline tanker, and they beat the living daylights out of him in the aftermath of the riots. I think we we saw that video because uh, you know in Los Angeles they always have helicopters following. That's, that's exactly how that one happened. Right. Yeah, they they had a helicopter fly over and the guy was taking footage. But the Rodney King beating, which was done at night, so it was dark. I don't know. Good I'm, question. I'm wondering how the resident in that I believe it was an apartment building was able to film that because. They didn't have cell phone technology back then, uh, and whatever they did have certainly didn't have video capacity. Yep, no, that's true. That's a, no, no. You answered one question, and because of your answer, it led to another question. Now, Lauren, it all started with trivia, right? Oh yeah. Now, my colleague Frank Morano has a statement that trivia never leads to further conversation. He couldn't be more hopelessly wrong. Oh, he cursed. He, he he made fun of me the other night, so I'm not too happy with him. Oh my! I have lung cancer, and he told me I was playing the lung cancer card. Oh my God, Lauren! I apologize. No, that's, the, that's the God's honest truth. I wouldn't lie because I don't oxygenate properly. I didn't get to the the radio, and I didn't get it down low enough. So I was telling him about War of the Worlds because I knew somebody that was part of that with Orson Welles, and he just said. Oh, but you couldn't turn down your radio. And I said, well, I have lung cancer, and I went to do it. And he said, oh, yeah, you're going to play the lung cancer card. (laughs) I Look, uh, Lauren, he is my junior by many years. We think he's somewhere in his 20s or 30s. We still don't know. Uh, He's about 50-something. But if you don't mind, I will apologize on his his behalf. No, you would never. No, that that, that was a little odd. No, no, that was was below the belt. There's no doubt about that. But. He did a excellent recreation of a War of the World scenario for the morning show when Sid Rosenberg was on with uh, John Katsimatidis, uh, who, in addition to uh, being the owner of Red Apple Media, is a great talk show host in his own right. They were both doing the uh, morning show because Bernard McGurk had just gotten uh, chemotherapy, uh, speaking of cancer. Right. And... uh, 
He did. He did a great eight-minute spiel. I I got to give credit to him. He, well, he had... That's why I called him, because my friend Kenny Delmar was the voice of FDR on War of the Worlds. That's the only reason I called in. Wow. Well, you know something? Uh, I want to... He trashed me. I, I don't know. I want to apologize on his behalf. At times, he can be a little immature. Look, uh, we all went through that period of time. But you think he's in his 50s? Yes, definitely. Wow. You know, I look at his Facebook. I don't know if you're on Facebook, Lauren. I look at his no, Facebook. No, I stay off social media. No, no, that's good. That's good. You don't want to get addicted to that. It's uh, sometimes worse than heroin or fentanyl. But he's got a picture is of his high school graduation from Tottenville High School, Lauren. I think he uses that picture to sort of confuse us about his real age. Yeah, he's all, he's all, he's over 50. Tell, I know it. Well, again, uh, Lauren, uh, I want to apologize on behalf of my uh, colleague Frank Morano, who did a great eight-minute eight uh, bit. It had me fooled. I know it had a lot of you listeners out there fooled. Certainly did uh, Sid Rosenberg and uh, John Katsimatidis. So, hey, you know when, you know what it is. When you're very creative, they say you have creative license, right? Because you have to put up with their eccentricities and their faux pas because they're artistically inclined. So that might be the new line here at WABC. For the golden child, the untouchable Frank Morano. Let's go to Dave, who's calling from the Bronx. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Dave. Yes, hello, Curtis. Dave. Curtis? Yes, yes, Dave. Yes, Curtis, it's an honor, it's an honor to talk to you. I, I learned of the Guardian Angels when I was a small kid. And thanks to my grandfather, God rest his soul, Storm in the Beaches in Normandy, World War II veteran, uh, retired bus driver from the Fifth Avenue Depot. He was listening to you on the radio in the early 90s, and that's how I made the connection of you being the leader of the Guardian Angels. So I thank you for all your service from the beginning of time till you started till now. Wow, it's great that we were able to tie that all up through my appearances on the radio over 32 years. Wow. Uh, Curtis, I got to say, as far as Lincoln goes, Abraham Lincoln, the uh, O'Reilly was on one of the talk shows. And from his book, he said that uh, Abraham Lincoln's son was messing around with John Wilkes Booth's wife. So uh, John Wilkes Booth couldn't get to Abraham Lincoln's son, so he wound up getting to Abraham Lincoln. Wow. Now, you see, when when I was recovering, when I had uh, an eight-hour operation for Crohn's uh, disease at Columbia Presbyterian, and I had a recovery period of about uh, a month uh, at our 328-square-foot apartment that we share with 16 rescue cats in the Upper West Side, I and my wife, Nancy. Um, it was, I'm trying to remember, it was, I believe, Bernard McGurk, who is a real avid book reader and follows the series of Bill O'Reilly. Bill's uh, written many books. And uh, Bernard McGurk got me the book about George Washington, the book about Abraham Lincoln, which I uh, devoured. Uh, They were great books. And uh, there was a book uh, about uh, World War II 
that I read that O'Reilly had written. All three of them were really good. I just don't remember that that portion of it about uh, Abraham Lincoln's son. Yeah, uh, he he said it on one of the talk shows. Uh, I think it was in the one when when it came out with Killing Lincoln. Huh. Well, I read that book. Yeah. But then again, uh, the you know, I was on such heavy drugs. I was on fentanyl at that time. Uh, the pain was just so enormous that I may have uh, missed up on that. I'll take your word for it. You heard Bill O'Reilly refer to that himself, correct? Correct. That is correct. All right. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. Thank uh, you. Curtis, I got to say, though, thank you for all you've done. You know, you really are. You know, if more people are like you in the world. The world would be a better place. I got to tell you, uh, I got a lot more to do, uh, Dave. I haven't done anything near of what I'm capable of doing, and hopefully I'll be given that chance before all of a sudden I'm like a cat and I've used up all nine lives. And let's face it, I think I've already used up eight of my lives. Anyway, let's go if we can to Charlie, who's calling from New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Charlie. Oh, is it me, Curtis? Yeah, it's you, Charlie. Oh, wow. Oh, thank you, Curtis, for taking my call. And I uh, I think the Guardian Angels was just was just a really fine idea, and uh, I'm glad you, you did something like that, that organization. Well, thank you. Now, which part of Jersey are you calling from? Uh, Chester. And I called for two reasons, Curtis. One is the kind of – it makes me a little uncomfortable, but I'm a gay. I'm a bisexual gay. And I wanted to try to come out of the closet on your t- on your show. Wow, you want to come out on the uh, the closet uh, on my show now? Uh, uh, you're how old now, Charlie? Seventy one years old. Okay, when did you recognize that you were gay, but also bisexual? Uh, I recognized that I was gay very young. Uh, I must have been about uh, five years old. All right, so you knew when I had you, my first gay encounter. So you were five years old. You you knew yes. you you were gay. Uh, you, you grew up with uh, a mother and a father. Yes. And did they have any idea about that? Did you have any conversations? I mean, that was a no, long time I, ago. I never, I never uh, told them about it. No. Hmm. And so, what did you do through the rest of your life since you you weren't confiding in anybody, right? No, I wasn't confiding in anybody, and I I kind of switched to hetero. Uh, I, I, my first hetero encounter with a lady was uh, uh, at eighteen years of age. And you were how old? I was eighteen at the time. Okay, so clearly you weren't gay. Because you were probably bisexual. Well, I wasn't gay. I was, but I, I did have that gay stuff when I was young, and I also had a second gay experience when I was an orderly in a hospital. Wow! Now when I was older. So you went. You had a gay. Well, first off. When you were five years old, uh, you weren't, uh, I can't imagine that you were open to this kind of experience. Uh, A five-year-old child really doesn't know about these kind of things. So was this forced upon you? It wasn't forced. It was another kid, and uh, uh, we were looking at, actually, we were looking at a porno magazine of ladies, 
And we got horny, and uh, we were masturbating, and I reached over and grabbed his uh, thing there. So. Wow. So now how did he react to that? Uh he didn't he didn't he didn't do anything that I remember. I he he just uh he seemed to be a little gay also. He, he just he seemed to enjoy it a little bit. So I, maybe we were both just kinda of gay when when we were young. All right, but you're not sure. No, I'm not sure exactly, no. All right, but boy, that's that's kinda of young, five years old to uh uh, have uh, had access to a pornographic magazine. Uh, who, whose magazine was it? Oh, gee, I don't remember where we... I think his older brother got a hold of it, and his older brother's name was Kenny, and he got a hold of it and let us look at it. Wow. Hmm, I see. So there, there, there you began the road of not knowing necessarily which way you were going to go. So now you're in your 70s, and if you had to state exactly what your sexual lifestyle is, how would you describe it? All right, you ask a very good question, Curtis, and I'll try to explain. This entails religion a little bit. Huh. Now, I'm I'm a uh, I'm uh, my religion is called Sakhism. It's a branch of Hinduism. Okay. And uh, I believe that I got a message from uh, what is called the uh, Great Goddess. I got a message in my mind, a thought message, that to be uh, religious properly, according to her, I'm supposed to be a sodomy bisexual, not a hetero person. Wow, and you actually had conversations with this person, or was it just a message? Not conversations. I got the thought in my mind, and I think the thought was from her. Hmm. How long have you been a follower of this sect of the Hindu faith? Uh, well, I was Hinduism for about 20 years, but I joined the Sakhism sect about uh, a year and a half ago. Hmm. And uh, what uh, demands does it make of you religiously? What what uh, what is what is expected of you? The goddess wants me to uh, preach uh, Sakhism religion and all types of religion uh, as best I can. So you get the message from this. Uh, I guess we could describe her as a, a princess. Uh, who yes, then, you could say that. Right, who then urges you to go out and preach to the world or whoever will listen to you about the faith. Exactly, Curtis. Yeah, I'm telling you, you're not alone. Trust me, Charlie. Uh, you know, being in the world of politics now, since I've run for mayor, I've run across yes. many uh, officials who claim that they've had conversations with God, that God has guided them in this direction, you're a lucky guy, Charlie, because whenever I try to have a conversation with God, he seems to be too busy or he introduces me to Mr. Click. Oh, yes. But you see, well, you're, I, you're talking to a I, female goddess. That's the difference. Yes, yes. You see, you but know. I also believe I get messages from God. I See, Curtis, uh, I believe there's two divinities, the goddess and the God. Hmm. Well, you know, I've spent a, a time in India where I went to many ashrams and saw the close to 400 gods that the Hindus worship. 
male figures, female figures, uh, many of them with elephant heads and, you know, things that are not uh, unique uh, to us here in the West, but obviously uh, very uh, common to those in the East. And so you see, you're you're now into a world in which you could be subject to multiple conversations from many different gods or goddesses. Yes, but I believe... uh... There's only two true real ones, and uh, I referenced that. I can sort of say the yin and the yang. Have you ever heard of the yin and the yang? Oh, yes, very much. It's uh, part uh, of the uh, martial arts process, the yin and the yang, and obviously uh, Eastern uh, philosophy is oftentimes talked about the yin and the yang. Now, I think... The yin and the yang was an early discovery of the two Holy Spirits, the goddess's Holy Spirit and the God's Holy Spirit. Now, if you had to make a decision, Charlie, at 71, if it, if you had only one god or goddess that you were going to have a conversation with, all of a sudden they said, look, you can only have a conversation with one of them, who would it be? Well, uh, I understand what you said. I would say the goddess first and the God second. Yeah, you're right. Because you know how guys are, they, they're not long-winded. Women sometimes, they're like yentas. They love to talk. And that's important, especially if it's a goddess, that you find out all the information that you're supposed to follow up on. Yes, that's right. Now, I want to point out something. I think I should mention that although, I mean, I'm not allowed to talk to the goddess directly or to God directly. I want to explain this because they're both too awesome to get that close to. No, no, totally understood. They are above the normal man or the normal woman. That's that's to be understood, yes. Charlie. So I try to talk to them through their, ma- their major oracles. Ah, and uh, who might those oracles be? Well, the major oracle of God, uh, it's a man. Uh, I believe he was once a human man, and he's been talking. I've been talking to him when I'm allowed uh, for a couple years now. I don't know. How many years? How many years? How many years? Uh, Oh, gee. uh, That's a good. uh, Maybe. the the one that the one that's been pressed that I've heard from now has been talking for uh, maybe about five years. There was a different one before him, but now we have we I kind of have a new one. Now, because you're a follower of this sect of this uh, Hindu religion, are they speaking to you in Hindi? No, they speak in English. Hmm. All right, so they're easily understandable. Yes. All right. Okay. And uh, uh, how long uh, have they put you on this mission? Uh, I just found out about my mission. Uh, when did I find out about my mission? I think I just found out. Uh, it makes out funny, but I just found out about a year and a half ago. A year and a half when ago. When I started praying to the goddess, Curtis. All right. Well, this is what you have to continue to do because it seems like it's brought peace and tranquility into your life. Yes, it's, yes it, well, it brought uh, happiness into my life, and I feel 
I have something to do that might be important. But as far as peace goes, Curtis, uh, I don't know. The, the world sure doesn't seem peaceful. And I, I'm not sure how peaceful the spirit world is sometimes either. Well, that's why, uh, Charlie, you have to continue to pray to your goddess. Uh, prayer can only help. Yes, I try to pray every day, Curtis. This is good. This is good. You, you've had a, a bit of a rocky road. But uh, a rocky road. Right. But hey, look, this is what life is about. 71 years. You've had your ups and downs. Uh, you thought you were gay, then bisexual. Now you're very spiritual. This is ultimately uh, the direction that we all have to go, Charlie, because soon it's ashes to ashes and dust to dust. You are aware of that. Yes, Curtis. All right. So, uh, Charlie, please continue to pray for the good of all men and womankind and the world. Thank you, Curtis. And please pray to the female goddess because the male goddess has probably got an anger management issue. <laughs> and you know, point, <laughs> you know what uh, a male god has done historically. He can be involved in death and destruction where the female goddess embraces nurtures, brings peace and tranquility as they do to their children. So remember that, Charlie, you have been chosen by that female side of you to speak directly to this goddess. Yes, Curtis. Thank you, Charlie. You have a good uh, good morning, Charlie. You too, Curtis. Thank you very much. Yes, on this Lenten season, as we are now into Palm Sunday... We accept all of those religious belief systems. They have to manifest themselves in terms of bringing peace to the world. Charlie, he was there. He opened himself up to us, said at the age of five, he felt that he had a homosexual experience. But then at 18, a heterosexual experience. But He's not quite sure what he is now at the age of 71, although he's found a spiritual path. He is a adherent, a follower of a sect of the Hindu religion, which I'm extraordinarily familiar with, having witnessed it in India, in the ashrams, uh, Europeans and North Americans flocking there, uh, taking in uh, the smoke ceremony. The idea is to inhale smoke so somehow it cleanses your lungs. And I, as the Weisenheimer said, if I were on the bus and somebody was smoking a cigarette, you'd say, put the cigarette out, I'll get secondary smoke. But now you're inhaling all of these toxins and claiming that it's going to clean out your lungs. Makwan Amai. But he's on the path to salvation. You know, everybody needs salvation. This being Palm Sunday, remember, we are just days away from Good Friday where all the Jews have to hide so that we Christians don't have flashbacks. You got to hide. And then uh, Saturday, that's okay. Easter, the resurrection. Now, remember, you got to understand this. Those of you who may not understand. We Roman Catholics, I say we liberally because I am an AMP Catholic, ashes on Wednesday, palms on Sunday, and then you don't see me for a month of Sundays. Catholics revel in the crucifixion. They really like, wow, they, every aspect, the stations of the cross, they're like totally into that. 
Not so much Protestants. You know, they're not really into the cross. You don't see them wearing crosses like Catholics. Roman Catholics will be wearing like 52 crucifixes. A Protestant, they'll look at a cross and they'll go, eh, eh. They're more into the resurrection. Catholics, the crucifixion, and naturally not eating meat on Friday. Can't do that. You know, that's symbolic of that. You know, Mrs. Paul's fish sticks uh, and pizza, no meat sauce. That's it. Protestants, eh, not so much of that. They don't reject it. But they're more into Easter Sunday, the resurrection. Now, in terms of our friend who is now immersed into the Hindu faith, boy, it's hard enough to follow the Christian doctrine, which is pretty simple. You know, one God. Uh, Sometimes um, multiple spirits. But in the Hindu faith... Imagine if you had to memorize over 400 gods and goddesses. Imagine going for a religious test by a Hindu priest. Boy, there's a lot of studying involved with that. On this Palm Sunday here on the Curtis Slewa Show, where we are open to all religiosity on 77 AM WABC. You're not going to sleep. No, 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 ladies and gentlemen, because you have entered into the zone of having vertigo. We just went into an extensive conversation about religiosity on this Palm Sunday, in which we explored the various aspects of the Hindu faith and somehow tried to merge it with Christianity. And if that didn't give you vertigo, I don't know what would. But we delve into places where no other talk show goes. It is called Theater of the Mind. And this is truly what can tap into your thought process, stimulate your cerebellum and medulla, and to take you to places that your mind has never been. Other than maybe when you were at a dead concert with Jerry Garcia and you were dropping tabs of acid. But we're not suggesting that, ladies and gentlemen. Hit it! Religiosity. I have religious vertigo this morning. Our numbers 1 800 848 9222. That's 1 800 848 WABC. Let's go to Dave in the Bronx. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Dave. How are you? Uh, Curtis, what I wanted to say, excuse me, what I wanted to say was you uh, had a conversation. You don't like the Yankees. Because of Kate Smith singing that, uh, she sang a song in the '30s. Paul Robeson sang the song. I don't know the name of it. It's a, it turned out racist lyrics, and uh, with the Yankee, the you know you said it. They tore down a statue, took down a statue in Philadelphia. They also uh, somebody emailed. Uh, you want to know why? Emailed uh, who's the president of the Yankees? Whatever, Levine, Randy Levine, and he decided not to use it anymore. 
one email, I believe. That is and correct, Dave. Happened. And the song you refer to was sung in 1931. That's almost 80 years ago. And it was part of this uh, performance that, as you mentioned, the great African-American singer, actor, uh, Paul Robinson appeared in, in which uh, I believe the uh, the song was Pickin' Any Heaven, uh, in which they were singing That's Why Darkies Were Born. It was very common then. Again, Paul Robeson, <laughs> he wouldn't call him a step-and-fetch guy <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. He was uh, African-American uh, a All-American uh, football player who went to uh, Rutgers, uh, well-educated. And Columbia Law School. That is correct. Columbia Law School. Right. So if that was the... And I don't think he could get a job as a lawyer. Uh, there, were, I, there were statements made by legal secretaries about, uh, I'm not working for that. Uh, and yep. So, yep, that's I true. Mean, it was, it, it, he was not in the Hall of Fame. He was a star running back for the uh, Rutgers. Right, but you see, he also also played professional football, I think, for Akron before there was the NFL. Um, He was a a well-renowned singer, a baritone, uh, well-received in Europe, across America. His problem was, is he was an avowed American communist uh, who uh, became an apologist for Joe Stalin. But uh, I got to tell you, passport away right they, they wouldn't let him uh 1950 i think or the late 40s yeah no they would not passport. they would not let him travel at all that that was uh part of the uh, penalty that they uh, put upon him because uh, he would not divulge who uh, other american communists were when he was brought before uh the panel that was investigating that it ruined many people's lives they were just tainted uh, as being communists, and they never were able to recover. Uh, it, it was it was so outrageous. Well, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois left the country in nineteen. Well, whatever. I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, this is this is the result of all of that. That was terrible. Yeah. Well, W.E. Du Bois was uh, basically a partner with uh, Paul Robeson in many of their uh, philosophies. But I got to tell you. There were a number of uh, American uh, civil rights leaders who uh, who actually spoke out against Paul Robeson and W.E. Du Bois gave information to J. Edgar Hoover uh, and the FBI and tried to do uh, extraordinary damage to them. Unbelievable. Yeah, no, no, look, look, it was a different, different time. Again, it is so difficult to judge people by today's standards. Listen, I'm going to be 75 this year, and I remember joining the reserves. I was on a list. I was in college. I went to LIU, and I was on a list after high school, at Taft High School in the Bronx, which they closed twice already as a full school. I think it's mini school, whatever, all those Bronx places and mini schools. Anyway, uh, I was told, don't sign anything. I had to sign a document getting in the reserves. I don't belong to the Communist Party, to the KKK, to this, to that, whatever. But don't sign anything, no political, don't sign anything. I was against the war. I marched against the war. I was no communist, uh, nothing. I loved the country. I was deeply against Wallace. Wallace ran for uh, 
for president on the state's rights, 1968 was the most unbelievable year. I mean, no, no, I, like I see. I, I thought you see. You, you, you took me by surprise. I thought you were talking about Henry Wallace, who ran the American uh, Labor uh, Party. No, uh, I got George Wallace. Oh yeah, well, George look, Wallace was. George, George. As a matter of fact, what shocked me was that in the early seventies, he switched the whole role. He, he had so many African Americans voted for him. He became. Uh, 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 an integrationist, or he certainly wasn't anti-black. And, and then he was shot. He was in a wheelchair. Yeah, it was, uh, remember, Arthur Brenner, who uh, yes. had come from Milwaukee, saw him in a strip mill as he was campaigning in Maryland, and then shot him multiple times, paralyzing him, uh, relegating him to uh, a wheelchair the rest of his life. But what people don't know, as racist as George Wallace was, and he was a virulent racist, when you looked towards his social platform, he was for Medicare, Medicaid before almost anybody else was. Almost like, uh, yeah, oh, man, that, that's, that's what fooled a lot of people. So when he came up and campaigned in Michigan, he did well amongst Democrats. He did well. Obviously, a lot of them liked the fact that he was anti-black. But a lot of them also liked the fact that he was so left-wing in terms of his uh, social policies. Crazy guy. I mean, it was it was. I I couldn't believe. You know, the the Sunday Times, the magazine section, used to have significant articles, and the main article one week was how can this uh, a dirt uh, truck farmer can uh, wind up being president. And that with Curtis LeMay is his vice president. Yeah, bombing them uh, into the Stone Age, Curtis LeMay said. Uh, there was a whole movement uh, to take it to the Red Chinese in, uh, remember, Peking. There was General MacArthur in Korea who wanted to blast the uh, Red Chinese into the Stone Age. You had Curtis LeMay who felt the same way. It was also, to a degree, Eisenhower, although he backed off. Uh, but it was uh, Harry Truman who said no a thousand times no. No, no, no. You're not taking it any further. Well, he didn't go any farther. He didn't run again. I don't know if he didn't plan to anyway, but he knew that he was going to take on MacArthur. That would be his death knell in terms of running again, probably. Yeah, but you see, what was interesting is that uh, Harry Truman removes General MacArthur MacArthur comes back to America. It's assumed slam dunk he's going to be the Republican nominee, and he's going to crush Truman. Well, his role in World War II, I had an uncle in New Guinea who had, my family had nothing. I mean, they slept, my uncle slept in the same bed with his uh, brother. Uh, Grandpa peddled umbrellas, luggage, never had anything. And he comes back with $6,000. He, uh, he was uh, a quartermaster. They didn't steal quartermaster. They broke his trigger finger. But my point is, MacArthur was given uh, Australia to run. They they kept him on the sideline. He didn't have a significant role in World War Two, not at all. Well, not you know what's interesting, as I look uh, as a soothsayer, I say, Dave, because of where you grew up. Uh, we used to refer to that as the West Bank uh, along the Grand Concourse there because it was so heavily Jewish. You went to uh, Taft High School. Uh, I would assume that you would have joined the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. David Katz 
and there were five catches and seven cones and all that. And I was the dummy in the group with an 80 average. But Dave, Dave, did you ever have the urge to serve in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade and go off to no, Spain? No, not that crazy. That no. <laughs> no, no, no. That, that didn't cross my mind. But did, did you ever see the movie, The Good Fight? Did yes. That was a great, great movie. The guy was, I think he was 18 years old. And he told his mother he was going to be a counselor or something. So she uh, she happened to see newsreels of him in uh, he was he was up in the Catskills doing uh, some camp work, and there he is in Spain uh, against uh, that Franco was wow. Yeah, well, he was uh, he was with the Republicans uh, when I traveled to Spain. I stopped in Toledo, not Toledo, Ohio, Toledo. And I was stunned that there were eagles attached to the columns of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the eagles were the sign of the fascists, of Hitler, of Franco, of Mussolini. And then it was explained to me that Toledo was the center of operation of Franco and the fascists against uh, the Republicans. That's what they were referred to, who represented communists, socialists. Uh, in the old Soviet Union. It was really the beginning of the huge battle that would take place between Adolf Hitler, Mussolini, and Stalin on the European front. Ah, see, Dave just took me back in the time machine. You remember when that song came out by the Kinks in the 70s? I had no idea what. Dressed like uh, a woman, yet was a man. And it just rocketed to number one on the charts. And we're going to uh, be talking momentarily about a great article in the, the New York Post today about Don't Call Her Harvey. As uh, Dana Kennedy did an incredible chilling jailhouse interview with a trans serial killer who's 81 years old and has made that 83 and has killed three times already. And you wonder, how is it that this person could be incarcerated two times for killing, be out to kill a third time at the age of 83? It is an incredibly well-written story, a visit that the reporter Dana Kennedy took to Rikers Island in order to conduct this one-hour interview. But before I go into the nitty-gritty details of that, let's go to uh, Bobby. Who's calling from Long Island? Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Bobby. Hey, Curtis. You know, I'm going back to the lobotomies. Back in the early 90s, I worked for the VA hospital. And a lot of the patients, they had these, uh, I didn't know what it was, dents in the head. And those, that's what they call the lobotomies. And they couldn't speak or anything. And uh, did you ever find... communicate with you. Did they? Did what? you ever find out why they were being given lobotomies? No, I never found out why. I never found out why, but I also realized that they weren't getting visitors or anything. And of course, the VA when patients come there and they don't have visitors or family, they do what they want to do. Wow! And for how many years did you witness that? 
Oh, from the 90s till, I mean, I was there for 20-something years. Wow, and and they died, till they died off. And they would just sit in a room, not be able in to... In a com- jerry chair, right, in a jerry chair, they would get pushed. They would get cleaned up in the morning, pushed in a jerry chair into a room, and you were supposed to do something with them, but you couldn't do nothing with them. And they had... And they had been given lobotomies. Yeah. They, uh, some of the jokes used to be bowling ball heads. You know, because you could... I mean, these things went in fucking pretty deep, Curse. I mean, excuse me. And, uh, you know, the skin... Ah. Uh, uh, you got a little tongue-tied there, Bobby. Uh, we'll have to use uh, fell snap to soap. Uh, or if you happen to be Jewish, Bobby, Rokish, uh, laundry soap, and uh, wash your mouth out. Can't use that kind of language. Uh, that's a no-no. But it was interesting because what he was saying was so true. In a lot of medical facilities, uh, there were uh, people who were subjected to receiving lobotomies who would just be wheeled out by day, wheeled back in at night and lived in almost a vegetized state. Somewhat similar to the growing problem that we have with dementia and Alzheimer's, a story that nobody really wants to talk about. It's a growing problem. Hopefully, uh, modern medical science can come up with a remedy. I don't care who comes up with the remedy, but I have seen it firsthand. And it is a subject that few, if any, people ever want to discuss. A lot of it is behind closed doors. There have not been exposés. It is a growing, growing medical issue that is affecting a younger and younger group of patients. Used to think dementia and Alzheimer's, okay, you might get affected by it in your 70s or 80s. No, no, no. Now it's affecting some people in their 50s and 60s. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Gene in New York. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Gene. Hi, good morning, Mayor. Yes, Gene. Yes, last week or two weeks ago, you started. You were talking about Lalola, the song Lalola. Yes. The Kinks. Yes. Tonight you started the show. I have a couple of quick answers. The, the Platt song is placed in Cherry Grove on Fire Island. I'm straight, but there's a place called Cherries. And that song never seems to stop playing. It's like their theme song down there. Cherry Grove, that's right. You take the ferry out uh, to the island, and there is a section. Yeah, there's a section there called Cherry Grove. Now, what were you doing out there, Gene? First time we went there was by accident. We were water skiing, and someone said, too bad we didn't have some money. We could go get a drink in the Monster. And I said, I had some money. I had a couple hundred dollar bills in my pocket. We went into this bar. Ordered a round of drinks. I put the 100 on the bar, and the bartender said, I can't change that. So I said, I don't know what to tell you. So he started asking us questions. The place was crowded. The music was great. Tons of women. And we started going back there, just, you know, mind our own business. Like the guy said, if you come down here looking for trouble, you'll find more trouble you can ever handle. And back in the early 60s and 70s, the mob used to give those guys protection. And if we're down there minding your own business, well, if I get to any place else, Curtis, you mind your own business, you're going to have a great time. And to the point that I actually bought a house on Fire Island in a place called Kismet, which is a straight, 99% straight community. And what's great about the place, nobody ever asked you your last name. It's, you know, I, I got introduced to a guy at a party one night years and years ago, an old timer. 
and they referred to him as Lenny. And I found out Lenny later on, this Lenny was Leonard Bernstein. Yeah. And I had a million great. I had, Jimmy Carson had a house there, and he didn't last long because nobody cared who he was. He got pissed off and left. <laughs> but what I started to say the other night, and I had a problem. I used a bad word, and I got cut off. And as a matter of fact, I want to take Frank. Actually, the other night I got to go to the men's room. I turned the bathroom on. I turned the light on. had the radio on. And he started talking about me, about me dropping the F word and getting t- turned off. Well, that happens. You know, that happens from time to time, especially in the wee hours in the morning. That's why we have a crackerjack engineer who can catch you and filter that out, Gene. So there's no concern, no no concern that you have to have that that's going to somehow get through. We got a crackerjack team here. I keep them up as I keep all of you up till 6 o'clock in the morning. It's no surrender, no retreat. It's charged forward to 6 in the morning. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go, if we can, to Stacy, who's calling from Queens. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Stacy. Yeah, hi, hi, Curtis. I live in Forest Hills, and um, we were in an accident tonight. We were going down. You can't get a spot here, as you know. And we were coming down like um, 64th Road and Booth Street. And some woman, young girl, was coming the other way. And she, like, sideswiped us once. And then we were trying to go. And then she backs up and sideswipes us again right into his rear fender, his front front fender. And then we called the cops. And thankfully, we didn't get hurt because then we had our uh, seatbelts on. And... um, now, what 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 became of the young lady in the other car? No, she ran and she took off. But we got my friend got the uh, license plate and everything. So in essence, we called the cops. You can't get to the one twelve precinct. So finally, finally, the cops came. And then they took. Did they take information, Mark? Huh? No. They didn't take really any information. Well, all we could do is what we got the plate number and everything. So I guess tomorrow we have to go to the precinct. And as far as this broad, man, I, uh, I wish we could get a hold of her. But we, we have no problems because the operator said she lives around here, and, and she's all banged up. She has a red car. Hopefully she's listening. She ain't going to get away with it. But, I mean, we were just very lucky we didn't get hurt. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how many of those accidents happen nowadays where people, uh, they just flee. They just flee. They don't They don't stay around at all. Even though there's cameras everywhere, photos uh, that are being registered constantly with all these speed cameras, you would think that people would understand there's no escape. There's no right, escape. Right. right. So, I mean, like, uh, she was a young girl. We were, they were asking us questions to remember what color shirt she was wearing. We were lucky we didn't get... <laughs> Yeah, that a joke. We were lucky that we didn't, you know, if we didn't have our seatbelts on, you know, our necks or whatever, or going into the windshield and that. So what? What do you think we should do? Obviously, we're going to go to the one twelve precinct, and, and well, it is the AM. Yeah, and, well, uh, unfortunately, uh, the cops who arrived should have dealt with it, but definitely go to the uh, one twelve precinct, which is right, right there, right there uh, off of. Uh, I know what, but I'm just saying my girlfriend was a cop. She said to me, cops probably figured, they said they had to go, they had another, you know, another report. She said they probably went to get coffee. 
which is probably true. And they never, yeah, we hung around there a half hour. Like the joke was on us in a way. And then we went across the boulevard, parked in a Kenny parking lot, because there used to be one right around the corner where they took down the funeral parlor on 66. Yeah, no, no, I, I know the area well, uh, but Stacy, you know the area well. well yeah, right. Yeah, just well. do not. I repeat, do not let the cops off the hook on this. Definitely follow through, because a lot of the times they don't respond initially. They don't take any paperwork. They tell you you have to bring that to the precinct, and you know what happens. They're hoping that you won't bring it to the precinct. I will bring it. I'm a Jew from the Bronx with that guy. I went to Taft, too, in that, but that's beside the point. But, yeah, I mean, we were just lucky. Here she, you know, we're going down towards Queens Boulevard, and here she, like, comes up the other way, and she just, boom, just like that, went into us. And then we figured, you know, whatever. And then she pulls back again and just ran into his front, uh, you know, his front of the car and um, tried to get away. I mean, she got away, but she has some damage on her car. Not that I can give a damn about her. Yeah, well, you know what it is. Uh, it is, uh, she was probably ginned up. That so often happens, drunken driving. Should seize the cars, take the cars. Put a stop to that nonsense. 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Roger calling from Manhattan. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Roger. Top of the morning to you, brother. I uh, got some trivia questions for you. Oh, trivia. I see. Three New York City movies. Hmm. Taking of the Pelham 1, 2, 3. Yes. The Godfather. Yes. Taxi Driver. I've seen all three. Okay. Uh, I'll give you the hardest one first. Okay. Taking of the Pelham 1, 2, 3. Who played the mayor's wife? Oh wow, that's a toughie. <laughs> you, you got you got me on that. Who played the mayor's I'll wife? You, I'll give you a hint. Ray Romano. Ray Romano. His TV show. Okay, his TV show. I was never a fan of Ray Romano, the Queens kid. I think he went to Hillcrest High School. It wasn't uh, what's your name who went to Hillcrest High School? Was it? I don't know who went to Hillcrest High School. Uh, what's her name? The Grand Dame. I'm thinking of her. It'll come to me momentarily. But who played? Who played the uh, the wife? No, it's the mother. It was the, his uh, mother, uh, Doris Roberts. Doris Roberts. That was like of the Ed Koch figure. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now I'm on board. Now I'm on board. The Godfather. There was one black person in the movie. One black person in the movie, the Godfather. Wasn't in the movie a long time, but he worked for somebody who wasn't in the movie a long time, but had a pivotal part. Wow! See, uh, part, uh, I'm thinking out uh, of your chair. I'm I'm thinking Goodfellas, but then again, I'm thinking back. I'm going through Godfather One, good. Godfather Two, good. Godfather Three, horrible. Uh, which one was it? Godfather, the original Godfather. There was okay. one black person in it. No, you got me again. Who was it? All right. Remember when uh, Robert Duvall went out to the West Coast? Yes. The Hollywood producer? Yep. Cut off the head? Yep. The horse? The horse's head is in uh, the guy's bed. The stable boy. Ah. Uh, 
Wow, that was good. I had forgotten all about that. He's in there. I was Take still thir- thinking about Shirley Temple there. Taxi driver. Oh, okay, classic. De Niro picked up a passenger, a white man. The white man got in the back of the cab and told him to pull over, and they pulled over in front of an apartment building. They looked up, and the passenger said, look up in the window. You see that woman? And it was like, you didn't see the woman, but you saw, like, the, the shadow. He was having sex. She was having sex with a black man. Yeah, I never forgot that one. Who was the passenger? Oh, interesting. Interesting. See, I just remember the woman in the window having sex. <laughs> That's what I Where's remember. You're a dirty old man. Yeah, no, but you remember De Niro. He was like, oh, man, this guy's a freak. Do you know who the passenger was? No. It was Martin Scorsese. Wow. Man, you are good, Roger. You know what the best part of you losing the uh, mayoral race was? What? You're on the radio again. Ah, you see, I couldn't have done this if I were mayor this many hours overnight. That's for sure. It would have been ask the mayor Friday uh, mid-morning. So that would have been it. Love you, brother. Keep up the good fight. Thank you. Ah, wow. Martin Scorsese, taxi driver, Travis Bickle, total psychotic. I'll never forget that scene. That's right. Look up there. Look up there. And, you know, Robert De Niro was thinking, this guy's a real freak. As I was thinking, too. 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Johnny in New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Johnny. Ah, good morning, sir. I'd like to speak about the U.S. bring up Linden Airport. And uh, you did speak about last week about uh, the gentleman, Perry Como, and his wife. And I have a good idea why. A lot of the Irish bars were happy with him. Wow. So and let's. The situation uh, let's, we'll leave for last. Yeah, let's deal with Linden Airport right, okay. off, of, uh, right off of Route 1 and 9. Exactly. That place is primarily was used for years ago. Um, train travel, and it was very connected to General Motors. Hmm. And that was across the street. There, uh, it was right very close in proximity. As far as plane travel, they had a lot of private Cessnas come in um, many, many times. In fact, I was maybe 12 years old. In fact, it was about a year before Kennedy uh, got shot. And I was with my father in a station wagon with, uh, with, with some representative from Hudson County. We'll leave it like that. It's about 5.30 at night, and I didn't know what the hell was going on. We pull up to the airport. We pull to a certain spot, and some guy gets out with a fedora on, uh, a leather vest, and uh, a leather pouch, a pretty big black one. I didn't say much. One of the, my father's friend gets out of the car. He takes the pouch. He throws it in the back of the station wagon. We go. It, I, I just figured I'm going for a ride. Maybe it has something to do with, uh, you know, business. <laughs> uh, years later, I asked my father. I said, hey, Dad, who was that guy that was at the airport that flew in with the phone? He said, what do you mean? I said, that night we went out with Jimmy to the airport. He says, that was Joe Kennedy. Wow. And he made many flights to private airports, Caldwell, Linden Airport. But that that was an interesting uh, interesting evening for a 12-year-old kid. Did you have any idea what was in that valise? No, I don't. I don't. Well, a big... 
another satchel. Um, I guarantee you there was money in that satchel. And you're probably almost 100% right. Um, one, one other thing just pertaining to that. About two weeks ago, there was a guy called up. You were talking about the Hudson County people that went to jail. There was one or two things that were incorrect. Hmm. Uh, Whalen and a few of the others, they went to prison for 15 years. They actually spent eight years out of that, which is very odd. One gentleman called up and he said, four, you know, no, nah, it wasn't. In fact, they spent the most time in jail as a politician up until that point on anybody that had 15 years. Uh, I was familiar with that because my father used to visit the prison up in Lewisburg, which they called the farm, once a month to bring, the, you know, to go up and see a few people. In fact, I was looking for an apartment in Jersey City at that time, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't admit me. I was up at St. John's Apartments up in the Heights. And my father brought up a, a plate of spaghetti to you at Anisio. And the next day, I got into the apartment at St. John's Apartments. <laughs> I, got, I, got, I got a free bread. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even look, look at me, and I had cash to pay for the apartment for a couple months. I got an apartment I never thought. I stayed there a couple of years and left. But, but that when when, they, when that subject comes up, they spent the most time. They, there was the Hudson Eight. Some of them went up to Lewisburg. Most of the politicians went there. Even Capone spent time there. That was the political prison. Yeah, no, no. You mentioned you had an easy war hero comes back, ends up becoming elected mayor of Newark. He's there during the riots, and then eventually goes to jail for mail fraud. But uh, nobody would have anticipated that. I mean, the guy, you know, war hero, this is what uh, some of the guys would run on after coming back from the war. Uh, and then they would be uh, swept right into office. And uh, just Newark, like uh, like Hudson County, just a history of corruption. People putting their beak in the, in the, in the trough. In, in, in fact, I just got a few. There's been three, three mayors of Jersey City. One was a Jewish mayor back in the uh, the 1870s. He actually went to jail too. He owned a rock rock candy outfit, and he was a prisoner. I don't know what his deal was with rock candy with the city, but they put him away. The next mayor was Krager in '70. When the people got imprisoned, he worked for Shearson Hamill. He was the head mayor Krager. I have a suspicion. They bought their municipal bonds from him, but I can't be 100% sure. Mm. And, and the last Jewish mayor is the one that we have now. And that's uh, Fulop. Fuller, right. Right. He's, uh, I call him Goldmine Sachs. I don't know what it is about Jersey. They love uh, alumni of Goldmine Sachs. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as far as Perry Como, I love that guy. I have his music. My grandfather loves it. I even have the old records along the tapes. Well, the gentleman made a comment. He says he was loved in the Irish bars in Manhattan. Good reason why. His, his, his wife was Irish. Oh. They, they celebrated their 50th anniversary on TV in Ireland. Wow. Uh, well, you know, it was way back. I remember that as a kid. Um, so when that came up, you know, I, I knew he said that uh, why do they love him so much in the Irish bars? He had a great deal of contact, whether it was his wife. Well, he just was a lovely gentleman. You, you couldn't hate Perry Como because uh, he didn't have an inch of hate in his heart for anyone.
Well, what I remember, because it was a fixture in the household, uh, his variety show, it's the only TV program my mom had to watch uh, every week was the Perry Como show. She adored Perry Como and his many sweaters. Uh, was uh, the fact that Bobby Vinton, the Polish prince. I've been to many of his concerts. Right. And you see, I mean, what an amazing artist. Not only is a singer, he can play most of the instruments in an orchestra. And he doesn't have to take breaks, even at, uh, at an old age. He's like a dynamo. But, I went to five of his concerts uh, before he retired to Florida. Hopefully he'll do another one. A lot of them were in Pennsylvania at, a, at a American Music Theater there. But uh, you're right. He could dance. His daughter sang with him. His son was in the band. I don't know what happened to them after he retired. But uh, Well, I, I actually got to see them perform. Uh, John Katsimatidis was hosting a birthday party for his wife, Margot, uh, the entertainer was Bobby Vinton, the Polish prince. Uh, he had his son uh, in the band, uh, his daughter in the band. Uh, but he was he was just amazing. And what I, I learned about him is he grew up in Pennsylvania. He adored Perry Como. He role modeled himself after Perry Como. Uh, he then finds out that Perry Como moves out to Long Island. So he wanted to move out. He wanted to emulate everything that Perry Como did. Another love, a love music hero, believe me. And uh, you could see the following. He had people that followed him. There was a special guy with long hair with a pigtail and, and a woman that had a special seating. No matter what concert you went to, no matter what state they were in, this two couple, and a guy from the post office. He followed him for years and years and years. But I, I miss him. I miss him very much. My last comment, uh, you know, actually you should have called your show uh, – Curtis's truth and trivia. Huh. I like that. Because the bottom line is, it's your truth. And the trivia really allows people to speak. And and I, I enjoy that. Uh, it, it makes interesting comments on most of the diversity you have of people. Well, you know, my belief system is, Johnny, that I grew up as a listener. I had to listen to my grandfather, Fidela Bianchino, because he was not educated. He couldn't read or write. He was from Bari, a town called Andrea on the Adriatic coast. And so he would tell me stories in broken English, broken English in Bari's. And every story would have a moral to it. It was like Aesop's fable. It was great. This is, uh, and then you, you, uh, he, as he would say to me, one yang, fatali fatatu, mind your business, cheat to cheat. Keep quiet. And basically, how can you talk? You're just you're just a, uh, a kid. Feel more. Uh, feel your more. Uh, just shut up. Listen. How the hell are you? You know, because kids right away they want to start talking up a storm. It's better to listen because then you can formulate things to say. And my father, a merchant seaman for fifty five years, was amazing. He would come home. He would tell tales of all seven seas that he would. S- Sail the ports of call he was in from Shanghai to Cairo. It was a, just a, an amazing series of narratives that I would hear. And I would shut my mouth and listen with rapt attention because I could learn a hell of a lot as a kid by just listening without always running my mouth. Well, my grandfather spoke Italian, but he, he, when he came to America, he spoke English. His, his, my best re- impression of him, he painted the front porch. And when I came home one day, there's the sign on the door. 
wet paint, W-E-T-P-A-N-T. <laughs> and I say, hey, Grandpa, <laughs> you think maybe we could add another letter in there? He says, what's the matter? I said, there's another letter in there. He says, doesn't it say? He says, well, if they touch it, then they know it was paint. <laughs> okay. <laughs> By the way, the difference, my grandfather, there's no such thing as paint. It was whitewash. <laughs> he get a little bag of whitewash, put it in a bucket of water, and he'd whitewash everything. There was no such thing as paint. He'd whitewash everything. I know. Well, I'll leave you with my last thought about Ukraine, because I did speak about it a couple of weeks ago with you. Uh, I would hope they'd bring a million people here, because the Ukrainian people, as most of the Eastern European are, just they're self-serving. They work. You can eat off their sidewalks. They practice most of the same faiths. It blends in. And as I said to you a couple of weeks ago, if they put 50,000 of those Ukrainians in Greenpoint, the old Irish and Italian section of the Bronx, 50,000 in the weak wake section of Newark, and 50,000 of them in Elizabeth, you'd have four new senators. <laughs> I won't take much more of your time. I wonder, I'll talk to you some. My father worked for the team since many years. He was a president and a union uh, secretary treasurer. But that's for another evening. Whoa, whoa. Teamsters in Hudson County. Yeah. <laughs> whoa. It wasn't Provenzano. Well, all right. It wasn't Provenzano. It wasn't the 560 but, local. But so maybe, maybe you know where Jimmy Hoffa's buried. Uh, I don't think I, this whole idea that he's buried under Moscata's dump underneath the bridge there, the Skyway, is doubtful because the guy that did the interview on the show about a year ago, if the FBI didn't catch wind of that a year ago because Paula Moscata had that deliberately buried 12 feet off his property line so that if anybody ever would come, they wouldn't be able to blame him directly because it was on what is it from? But technically, his son said it was buried 12 feet down in the container. If we don't know by now, after all the publicity that is on it, it's not there. I got to tell you, it was always eerie. Every time I passed by there, there would be smoldering. It's almost as if you would see smoke coming up from the old, uh, uh, the old uh, the dump. Uh, yeah, and the reason being, they dumped um, uh, anything, the, the residue from, uh, I can't think of what it is, uh, Oh, gee, because they have fire. It's 100 feet deep. Yes. And, uh, you know, it, 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 when it starts smoldering and you start seeing it evidential on the top, well, then, you know, this thing is getting closer to the surface. But whatever. Listen, you got plenty of people. I appreciate the time that I could spend with you, and I'll talk to you some other time. Very good. And uh, as Johnny pointed out, that is the concept of this particular talk show format. It's for you, the callers. Look, I get enough talk time. I've been talking for 32 years in talk radio in all different ways with partners, as I'll be doing in just a few hours with Chris Hahn from 3 to 5, left versus right, as I did earlier on Saturday with Anthony Weiner from 2 to 4. Uh, I also have done solo shows. I've had more radio partners uh, than ex-wives. Have I? Yeah, yeah, more... Uh, Radio partners and ex-wives. So I've done all forms of uh, radio. I've done uh, sports talk radio here at WABC and at ESPN, the Curtis Lee with Super Sports Spectacular. I even did a stint over at WNYC for my Kumbadichich, Rudy Giuliani. 
after I got fired here in 1994 with my wife at the time, Lisa, it was Angels in the Morning. Uh, she went one way, I went the other way. Rudy said to me, hey, I've just been elected mayor. I want to I wanna sell the stick, the broadcasting stick for WNYC because uh, there's no reason that the city of New York should be subsidizing a radio signal like we have in Lodi, New Jersey, the 50,000 powerful watts of sound that can be heard in the wee hours of the morning in uh, 38 states, parts of Canada and parts of Europe. And right there near the Bermuda Triangle between uh, the Bahamas and Bermuda. Now it's about you being able to talk. You know a wealth of information. I don't want you to be like a hen or a rooster sitting on that information and then it only hatches for you or your immediate family and friends. There's no reason that you can't share that with the world. And oftentimes I've found uh, in my history as a talk radio show host that I get far more out of the callers than I ever get out of a guest. The guests oftentimes, they, they've just rehearsed what they're going to say. They get into their own rhythm. You can't really get them to break from their format. Whereas average everyday people have so much to say that oftentimes they don't think what they have to say is so important. And yet it's the most important thing. Your turn to be heard. It's what our country is about. The ability to be able to speak freely and do so on the strongest news talk station in the nation, 77 AM WABC, which next year will be celebrating 100 years in operation, having started very humbly at WJC, started by Westinghouse. It had a factory in Newark, right near Down Neck, uh, near the, uh, near the uh, Portuguese uh, section. Uh, there was a factory that Westinghouse had constructed near the Ironbound that manufactured Westinghouse radios, but they needed more radio stations. So they said, well, we, we can set up our own radio station. And they put the radio station right on the roof of the factory. You had to cl- climb up a ladder in order to broadcast. It was a little chicken coop, and that's how WJZ began. And then within a year... They moved everything lock, stock, and barrel to New York City. I think it was off of 34th Street and 6th Avenue. And then eventually uh, moved over to 32nd and 7th, where we were for years on the 7th, uh, 17th floor. But it's all about talk radio. And talk radio is a two-way, uh, a two-way uh, lane. It's like uh, Ariel Sharon told Halafez Assad at that time in Damascus, Syria, as the butcher of Damascus, he said, remember, there's a two-way, uh, a two-way lane to Damascus, and when I roll those Israeli tanks in, it'll be a one-lane-only route, and you will regret having pushed the might of Israel upon yourself and Halafez Assad backed off. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Oh, great stuff, Axel Rose. Guns and Roses with Slash. And welcome to the jungle that is New York City, where crime is skyrocketing, kids are being shot as we speak. And there's endless carnage in our streets. And as much as our elected officials claim to know what to do, 
They know nothing about nothing, and that's obvious by the stats and the feelings that everybody has. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Tricia, who's been holding on the line in New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Trish. Oh, hi, Curtis. Yes, Trish. Oh, I, I want to ask you, uh, are they uh, fumigating uh, Gracie Mansion? Where does uh, Adams live? Is he still in Jersey or is he in a Cohen apartment? Most people don't know. I mean, uh, on occasion, he's been seen at Gracie Mansion uh, where de Blasio and Charlene vacated, although they're staying at the penthouse uh, in the Marriott Hotel downtown Brooklyn waiting for their home to be rehabbed in Park Slope on 7th Avenue and 11th Street. Uh, I guarantee you, Tricia, we're probably paying for that uh, with tax dollars, although Democrats in this city uh, overwhelmingly cover up for other Democrats. There needs to be an investigation about that. And uh, Eric Adams, uh, he's been all over the place. He's been in Fort Lee. He's been spotted at Trump Tower. Uh, One of his crooked friends who owns a a restaurant in... uh, uh, Midtown Manhattan that he has some of his meetings at. Uh, that's uh, this guy and his brother's apartment. So it's hard to tell. He's uh, he's it never is. in he's never in one place uh, for more than one night. Oh yeah, he's like a gangster. Ah <laughs> uh, no no he's uh he, he's not a he, like a gang he's like a party guy. Uh, he loves yeah, the nightlife. So uh, he's at the Zero Bond Club. He's at Sugar Hill in Brooklyn. This guy is raising the roof until the wee hours of the morning, so uh, he doesn't need a lot of sleep, seems to have a lot of energy, but I can tell you, he's definitely a party guy, no doubt about that. He uh, not only samples the nightlife, that's where he spends an incredible and inordinate amount of attention, uh, given his mayoralty, uh, dealing with nightlife. And I'm so sorry I missed Nancy on Jesse. The other day. Yeah, no, no. My wife, Nancy, uh, did a great I'm job. I'm so sorry. She's so great. She's so reasonable and uh, sound of reason, I should say. Yeah, she was on Jesse Waters on the Fox News channel with another guardian angel, Blondie, promoting our perv busters. They go after perverts in the subway. Uh, she and uh, Blondie did a great job uh, on Jesse Waters. You can go online and probably see the segment. And I will, I will, I will. And, uh, you know, and I think you should go to WR, you know, the Woman's Only Network. <laughs> you, you'd be a blockbuster star there. Uh, going and, over there. In between, uh, you know, you know, Simone and, uh, you know, you know. Well, Mark Simone is a good broadcaster. I've known him many years. He's actually he's great. He's been he's, great. he's been broadcasting longer than I have. Uh, so uh, he's got a few years on me in broadcasting, but he is a very professional broadcaster. I just can't imagine saying this is Curtis Sliwa at Woman's Only Radio, WOR. <laughs> I know that's right. Well, Curtis, thank you for taking my call. Oh, anytime, Tricia. Anytime. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to uh, Joseph, who's calling from New York. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Giuseppe. Is that me, Curtis? Live and in the flesh. Great. Uh, 
listen, I got a great name for your show. All right, well, you got to get you got to get closer. You got to get closer to uh, the microphone. You got to speak right into the. Uh, okay, got it. That's it. Much better. I always say Curtis and Curtis. Curtis and Curtis. I never know whether it's going to be Curtis W, whether B A B or C. Huh. Which Curtis? That's true. I do have multiple personalities. You never know. Absolutely. I've been listening to you for years. It drives me crazy. <laughs> well, remember, the whole idea is I got to keep everybody going and pumped up sometimes, and wide awake and sometimes push. Sometimes I say, start to zeet. Ah, start to zeet, as my grandfather would say to me. Start to zeet, one yon, isa fora, kesa kais. Okay. Uh, listen, I call for a reason. Sure. And here, here's the thing. You were just talking about um, the lobotomies. Yes. I'd never had a lobotomy. Although there were people that would love to have given me a lobotomy. I'll bet. They were they were um, exploiting my finances. Oh. I'm a senior, and they were stealing my money. And, uh, and they, did you have a, a conservator? Yes, I did. The conservative was stealing my money. <laughs> was it a lawyer? Uh, no. A family member? No. Oh, wow. Although, although I had family members steal money, lots of it. Yeah, so how did you how did you eventually find out that they were purloining your money? Well, uh, this started with me. Uh, my finances were being stolen in 2012. Through 2017, every week, and I knew, and I couldn't stop them. The person had power over me. She said, the man is Lulu, and she locked me up. Wow. Now, under what every grounds? Time, every time I, excuse me, every time I brought the, the, the situation to light, she shut me up, locked me up. Right, but what what did she charge you with? <laughs> Mental illness. All right, all right, and you had nobody. No, it's not all right. No, it's not all right. No, no, no. She what I mean me is three times. Who, who she locked me up three times. Right, but who represented you? Well, I can't get into that right now. I will tell you privately in a conversation because I don't want innocent people to be injured. Oh, no, understood. Uh, where uh, are you uh, secure now? Yeah, I'm in my home. I own it. Nobody has any uh, clutches on me anymore. Good. Did anybody pay any price for having taken your money? I don't know. I've been trying to find that out for a year, for, uh, since uh, I heard that the woman uh, that was stealing my money got caught. Wow. money from four other people. Wow. Uh, I don't know what the repercussions were for her. Were they senior citizens? Conse consequently, I haven't gotten my money back yet. Hmm. And my money was going to a good cause, hmm. it, which brings up the lobotomy. You ready? I was putting my money aside to build a home for autistic men. I have a piece of property here where I live in the town of Newburgh that I wanted to build a home on. Four bedrooms, two kitchens, four bathrooms. That's my dream. She put my dream to a, a stop. Mm. 
by stealing my money. Now, do you have enough resource where you can realize that dream? Yes, I do. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's a struggle for me. She made it difficult, stole my money. No, understood. Understood. But you don't know what became of her. No, I, uh, uh, I'm afraid if I push it, they'll, they'll lock me up again. <laughs> How long were you uh, taken out of uh, circulation? Three times, two weeks each time. Wow. And did you think you'd get out of that situation? Well, I always knew I would get out. You know, I do have people in my life that are lawyers. Right, but I'm saying you were, you weren't locked up into a, a mental health facility, were you? Yes, I was. I was locked up in what they call a behavior unit. Yeah, well, I, I know I know about those things. It's not easy to get out of those things. Well, um, they put me in there for two weeks. They figured they'd uh, scare me and shut me up. Oh, sort of like they couldn't shut me up. I got a big mouth. So it's sort of like scared straight for seniors. You got it. Well, you know, that happened to my dad. My dad was at Maimonides Hospital. I told the staff, don't let any of the Russian nurses, uh, the male nurses, come into his room because he's going to have flashbacks of World War II when they were sailing up uh, through the North Sea in the Morantz, and he never liked the Russians. I said, just have the women, especially the Filipinos or the Jamaicans, uh, check up on him at night. One night, two Russian orderlies came in, males, he knocked them both out. They dragged them off to the psychiatric facility, which is in the back of Maimonides. And uh, wow. once, you, once you're in there, you're like a ward of the state. It's not like you can go visit your dad or your mom uh, like you can if they're in a normal hospital. And I remember visiting my dad, and he was sitting in the room, and people were roaming around in the hallways in really bad shape. Uh, they looked like they were zombieized. And he looks at me, wow. and he goes... Get me out of this nut house. I said, I said, Dad, Dad, if you keep calling this place a nut house, you're never going to get out of here. You need to be pleasing, pleasant, and polite. So nice you'd give a diabetic insulin shock. Just regale them with stories. Entertain them. They have nothing to do all day, the staff and the clients. Well, a week later, I come back from my visitation. They loved my father. Uh, the patients, the doctors, the shrinks, and they released him back to Maimonides. And I said, you see, Dad, if you kept calling it a nuthouse, you'd have ended up being in this place probably in perpetuity. So you see? Wow. You see, that's, that's the way you got to somehow deal with situations because when you become a ward of the state, no matter what the circumstances were that lead you into that, don't think that the whole world is going to stop what they're doing in order to help you. You got to use, uh, you got to, you got to talk your way out of it. Remember, they're dealing with people in mental health facilities who have all kinds of problems. So if you create a feeling of normalcy, if you have normal conversation, if your behavior is such that you're compliant that you're actually uh, responding to any of their requests. You'd be surprised how quickly their observations about you can change. But if you're belligerent, if you give them a hard time, be a dark day in hell before you end up getting out of there, that's for sure. 1-800-848-WABC.
Let's go to Tom, who's calling from New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Tom. Curtis, how are you? I was uh, up a little late tonight, and I'm, I'm, I'm watching one of the news shows, and I see a widow of an officer by the name of Joe Piagentini um, and um, an assassination that happened uh, in the summer of 71. And I happened to live with his cousin in the summers of 71, 2, and 3 in Belmar. And uh, his partner, Waverly Jones, was also assassinated. This guy was paroled, which is bad enough. But now he's speaking at colleges. I don't know his new name. He's got a new name. But I do remember his old name, Anthony Bottom. Uh, And it stuck with me my whole life, Uh, maybe because my dad was a cop. But that this guy is out and speaking in colleges, it does kind of connect the dots between what was going on then with the BLA, which he was a member of, and what's going on now with the cops. I can't figure this out, Curtis. Yeah, well, Tom, Tom, uh, it's uh, figure eight. Uh, History repeats itself. Uh, the Black Liberation Army that was led by Joanne Chesimard, a.k.a. Asada Shakur. Uh, she it's got into me. right. She got into quite a few uh, shootouts, eventually was found guilty of kill, killing a New Jersey state trooper. She was represented at the time by William Kunstler. She was uh, incarcerated in Clinton, which at the time was an all-female prison in Jersey. She was sprung loose by members of the Black Liberation Army. They took her to a safe house in Pittsburgh. Uh, She was then uh, transferred uh, off probably to Mexico City and then flown uh, to Cuba, where she is a celebrated, uh, as uh, they call her, a political prisoner, where she lives off of the generosity of the Cuban people, and she is public enemy number one. Uh, So, uh, yeah, that's the same kind of feeling that exists now. Although imagine, I told you the story yesterday, if you had a chance to listen, how uh, John uh, David Hinckley, uh, who uh, had attempted oh, God. right, had, att- had attempted oh. to kill Ronald Reagan. It's, just, it's insane. Yeah, he got released. Remember, he went to a psychiatric facility. They claimed that he was uh, sane uh, and uh, okay, released him to his mama. He's a real mamaluke, a real mangalooch, uh, a real mashat. Uh, joined the bowling league for two years. I don't know who the hell would want to bowl with him, but they did. Uh, then got his own apartment, and now he's coming to Brooklyn and will be putting on a concert of his uh, folk music and country western music on July 8th. Curtis, how do you think Jody Forster feels about this? Don't really know. Imagine how uh, totally frizzled uh, she was knowing that there was this guy, John David Hinckley, who was trying to get her attention, which obviously when she was uh, uh, at uh, Yale University in New Haven, she wasn't going to give him any play at all. And then he suddenly decides, well, she'll pay attention to me if I attempt to kill the president of the United States. I mean, that guy is a real kukulamunga and he has actually sold out a concert in Brooklyn. Uh, no, and people don't tell me that. Yeah, please people don't say that. People are asking if he can perform concerts in Chicago and Boston. And they're asking Tom if he's got any merch available, any shirts, any oh, mugs. My sweet Lord. Yep. 
Yep. You know, you remember back in the day when that happened with the president. It was right around the same time that uh, the other guy uh, tried to kill the pope. That's right, the Turk. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I don't know if he's out or not, but, uh, I mean, are we in bizarro world now, Curtis? Help me out with this one, please, because I'm an old man now, and I'm not as sorry to leave the world as I thought I would be a few years back. No, it's uh, it's uh, we're going full circle. Uh, this happened uh, in the 60s and 70s, and then all of a sudden there was a, a period, uh, uh, let's call it just in terms of this kind of uh, anti-social, uh, anti-police activity. They, it took a little bit of a break, but a new generation has resuscitated, brought it all back. Black Lives Matter certainly has done that. All they've become is uh, big, large mansions. They took the money and <laughs> oh God Almighty! They just bought. They just bought his real estate. I mean, Toronto, <laughs> California, everywhere that they could buy real estate. I mean, you say that corporations were giving millions and millions of dollars in the summer of 2020 to Black Lives Matter, and it was all one big ripoff to buy big, large mansions. Anyway, uh, up next. The American pastime baseball, we'll be talking about that because uh, I'm upset not only with the Mets, uh, but with my beloved Yankees. And then we have to talk about Don't Call Her Harvey. It's a chilling jailhouse interview in today's New York Post with a trans serial killer who killed for the third time at the age of 83. And wait till you hear what he, no, make that she, had to say about her three killings and why she feels she should be back in the streets again to go for a Quinella. That means five. Oh, yeah. Sugar Hill Gang. This is when rap was talking about partying, having a good time. It wasn't a booty call. wasn't talking about guns in the air like you just don't care. And throwing cash all over in the sky. And not asking where you got that cash from. And this all came out of the Bronx. This came out of the Bronx. At a time that I started the Guardian Angels in February of 1979. It was almost synonymous with rap music. And then look at the direction that rap music has taken. As it has become polarizing, negative, promotes killing, shootings, death, destruction, You name it. (laughs) Sexism, racism, separatism. You uh, go right on down all the isms. And that's what rap music has become. Meantime, look at what our American pastime has become. Baseball. And when you think of the Bronx, you think of what George Steinbrenner Sr. did in determining to keep the Yankees in the Bronx off 161st and River Avenue. There was a time in the 70s where the Yankees were always suggesting that they were going to uh, move to the Meadowlands. And I remember hearing that as a night manager of Mickey D's as I was wrapping up the Big Macs as they'd come off a tray, uh, taking care of a run because the customers were backed up nut to butt. And I remember hearing, why Judge Steinbrenner is going to move to the Meadowlands? The only thing in the Meadowlands is garbage, swamp gas, And it's a burial ground for mobsters uh, who are choking on their lobsters. 
But, oh, no, he kept saying, uh, we're going to move. We're going to move because the Bronx is uh, burning down, and it was. i never forget the World Series against the Los Angeles Dodgers. Reggie Jackson always lived up to the hype. Man, uh, he talked a lot of smack, but he could deliver when uh, everything was on the line. Reginald Martinez uh, Jackson had three home runs. I think it was game six uh, against uh, the L.A. Dodgers. Uh, And once again, Yankees win, Yankees win, Yankees win. And as he was rounding the bases, there was uh, flames licking at the rooftops of some tenements in the distance beyond uh, the crown of Yankee Stadium. And Howard Cosell was doing the broadcast on ABC National TV and commented that that was uh, near the very building that he grew up in, what used to be called the West Bank. It was predominantly Jewish along the Grand Concourse until all of a sudden Co-op City was built on what was the greatest entertainment complex in my entire life, Freedom Land. Oh, I so desperately miss Freedom Land, which had uh, every day a conflict between the uh, the blue... Sh- the blue uh, the Blue Jackets and the Gray Jackets, a Civil War reenactment. Every day they would reenact the fire that consumed uh, Chicago when uh, Elsie the Cow kicked over the lantern. And Freedom Land was the absolute best, 62 to 64, right before the World's Fair opened up in Flushing uh, Meadows, Queens. Uh, and then that was the end of Freedom Land. Then came up Co-op City. Uh, all the Jews who lived along the Grand Concourse said sayonara, and they moved to Co-op City or they moved down to Miami and other parts unknown. But the reason I bring all of that on is that the Yankees were on the cusp of leaving the Bronx. There was no doubt about it. All the handwriting was on the wall. There was a time when I was a kid, it walked down to 161st before a game, And you could see Phil Rizzuto walking down the block. You could see Yogi Berra actually coming out of the cleaners with his clothes. Uh, You'd see other ball players, Moose Scarron, actually going in to get a pair of shoes from the shoemaker that was right there on 161st. It was a whole, whole different era. And even before my time, many of the visiting ball players, the teams that would come in to play the Yankees at Yankee Stadium, would stay in hotels right along the Grand Concourse. What a different time period it was. And all through the ups and downs, I remained loyal to the New York Yankees. Not just in the glory days of the early 60s, when the Yankees would win World Series after World Series, and it was the team of Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris, but also after uh, CBS, Michael Burke, bought the uh, Yankees and almost single-handedly destroyed them before they were rescued by a consortium coming out of Cleveland, Ohio. The American shipping company that was owned by George Steinbrenner, his consortium, rescued the Yankees and put them back on track. But I remember years in the late 60s where we were down with baseman Bertha. And I would go to Yankee Stadium, which at times could uh, house close to 55,000 people. And you'd be lucky if there were 3,000 people in the stands. And I remember one of the vendors, some of the vendors were selling Roy White Canisius. Roy White, who was like from uh, Southern California, really bright guy, would do a lot of reading, was a good uh, punch and Judy hitter, 
a good overall baseball player for the Yankees, but these were desperately tough times. And yet, I still stood with the Yankees. And I stood with the Yankees when George Steinbrenner had his ups and downs, illegal campaign contributions to Richard Nixon, suspended from Major League Baseball, then dealing with uh, Howie the Horse uh, and trying to set up uh, at that time uh, a baseball player that he was constantly at odds with, constantly at odds. Uh, And he was like constantly creating uh, problems uh, within the team that eventually was referred to as the Bronx Zoo. Through all those ups and downs and all around, I was a Yankee fan. And then all of a sudden, they took down the house that Ruth built, the old Yankee Stadium, which was great. And they built uh, what is a mall now, the house of uh, Jeter and Aroid. It's a mall. You go to Yankee Stadium, you you can get a pork loin uh, in a butcher shop in the left field stands. That's crazy. It's just not the same. The prices are outrageous. You need to take a reverse mortgage. You can't you can't sneak down after the seventh inning break and go to the box seats because there's like a moat with alligators that separate you. It's just not that. And kids, they can't even go anymore. And they haven't gone for quite some time on their own. Uh, it's unaffordable. Unaffordable. And the game goes on forever and ever and ever. It goes like three, four, five hours. A baseball player will get out of the uh, on-deck circle, and they got to play his music. Then he's got to walk up to the uh, uh, home plate. And then he's got to adjust his jock strap. He's got to take his gloves on. He's got to take his gloves off. You can get in the damn box and swing. And then the pitcher's got to be on the mound, and the pitcher's got to ask for a timeout. And then they got endless numbers of relief pitchers. Hey, manager, do me a solid. Crazy glue that manager to the bench. It's just not the same game, but I will tell you this. Baseball, for me, was everything when it came to sport. But in the summer of 2019... This is before Black Lives Matter. This is before the summer of George Floyd. This is before the rioting and looting and demonstrations of 2020. Had nothing to do with that. I'll never forget hearing that during the seventh inning stretch, they would no longer play God Bless America by Kate Smith. This had been requested by George Steinbrenner Sr. And I was no fan of George Steinbrenner Sr. I'll tell you a story later on that will prove to you that this guy was manic-depressive. In many ways, he was just like former President Donald Trump. Be manic and then depressive. Manic and depressive. But anyway, the point was is that uh, George Steinbrenner Sr. had said he wanted Kate Smith's rendition of God Bless America played during the seventh-inning stretch. That was his desire. I would have thought his sons, Hank and his other son, who I don't think is any uh, longer with us, would have uh, honored his father's wishes, but they didn't. They didn't. And all of a sudden, with no demonstrations, no notification, there was no more Kate Smith, God bless America. None. I don't even know what they do now during the seventh inning stretch. And I'm not talking about when the field crew goes out and smooths over the infield and they play YMCA. I mean, that's entertaining. Although, let's face it, For many years, people had no idea the meaning of that song. 
why it was sung and what the real meaning of the YMCA was, what was going on in the YMCA. Let me tell you something. (laughs) If most people had known, they would not have been singing that. And then, like a one-two punch, Kate Smith, where a statue had been dedicated to her outside of the Forum in Philadelphia, she was a fixture during flyer games. Remember, she had already passed away. A statue was like taken down as if it was the statue of Saddam Hussein when uh, we invaded Iraq. What a what a disaster that was invading Iraq. But the point was they took down this statue and they did away with it. And they said the Kate Smith, it had been determined, had used some racist terminology in singing some songs back in the 30s. The 1930s, 80 years before, times were so different. Singers were singing in blackface back then. But somebody made this decision because there was no demonstrations, no justice, no peace. I didn't hear anything from Al Slim Shady Sharpton about it or Jesse Jackson or Black Lives Matter. Nothing. It's as if Kate Smith didn't even exist. And she was called over and over a racist. And I said to myself, this is when I break with the Yankees. And I attempted to call up Randy Levine's office, who's the president. I attempted to do outreach uh, to other suits within the Yankee organization, and I could never, ever, ever get anyone to answer my inquiries as to why they no longer sang. You used the song version of Kate Smith during the seventh inning stretch of God Bless America. And then I did my uh, due diligence and did a deep dive about Kate Smith because I hadn't grown up with Kate Smith. Found out she had grown up in Virginia had never married, was single, that oftentimes when she was uh, uh, performing as a vaudevillian, she would weep with humiliation in her dressing room because uh, her fellow uh, thespians, her fellow uh, performers like Burt Lair, I think Burt Lair was in uh, Follow the Yellow Brick Road, Follow the Yellow Brick Road. That's right, The Wizard of Oz, Burt Lair. In fact, what character? did Burt Lair play in The Wizard of Oz? Because apparently he really, like, verbally abused her because of her girth. And yet it turned out that uh, as she became a more popular singer, not so much in movies, again, because of her girth, Kate Smith dedicated herself in World War II to raising money by selling war bonds. She was the number one generator of income for war bonds amongst many entertainers who were trying to do such. She sold over $600 million worth of war bonds to help our effort in World War II against the Germans in the, uh, in the Atlantic front and the uh, Japanese in the Pacific front, which would be the equivalent of $10 billion today. And yet, the answer I got, well, she she sang some racial lyrics. So I did even a deeper dive. In 1945, at the end of World War II, Kate Smith called for racial tolerance on the radio. She was a fixture on the radio. She said race, hatred, social prejudices, religious bigotry, they are the diseases that eat away the fibers of peace. It is up to us to tolerate one another in order to achieve peace. 
She converted to a Roman Catholic in 1965. And in uh, 1982, she received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from then-President Ronald Reagan. And I said to myself, I can't even get an answer from the Yankees about this. Nothing. To this day, this is a stain. Well, you know, I want to do a salute. I don't just want to take it from the uh, Yankees because I really have no interest in what they do any longer. I'll follow it from time to time. But, you know, Stanton hits a home run. Yeah, right. Stanton hits a home run. He'll soon have some kind of muscle tear. Or all of a sudden, he'll be on this. I can't never figure this out. I'm going to get into this momentarily. But I want to open up the phone lines on this. Also about Wildwood, New Jersey. The Quinella. Wildwood. That's right. Right on the Jersey Shore. Wildwood, New Jersey is historically important for a number of reasons. And I want to salute everybody who's... In and around the Wildwood area, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. First off, uh, I remember uh, listening to my sister Alita's uh, 7-inch vinyl 45 record, the Wildwood Anthem. It was about 1963. I think on the reverse side was the Cha-Cha-Cha. It was sung by Bobby Rydell. A great tribute was done earlier on uh, Saturday evening by both uh, Bruce Morrow, a.k.a. Cousin Brucie, and Tony Orlando about the loss of Bobby Rydell. Earlier in the week, Frank Morano had said some really positive things about uh, the times he had met Bobby Rydell in Atlantic City. But I don't think a lot of people know that Bobby Rydell, in addition to being a Philadelphia boy, was like almost synonymous with Wildwood and, in fact, created a song called the Wildwood Anthem. I didn't quite memorize the words, but when it was played recently, I remember, hey, that's that's the uh, seven-inch vinyl 45 record that my sister Alita used to play over and over. She loved Bobby Rydell. Remember, Bobby Rydell would perform at Palisades Park, swings all day and after dark with the world's largest saltwater pool that had an artificial wave. Yeah. And who was it? I think it was Bruce Morrow who was the MC there, a.k.a. Cousin Brucey. Or was it, uh, hmm, was it the guy from the Swinging Soiree? Well, uh, I don't know. I'm mixing it up a little bit here. The Fifth Beatle. By the way, who was the Fifth Beatle? Now that I'm mixing it up, 1-800-848-9222. So you had Wildwood there which was synonymous with Bobby Rydell, one of the greatest rock and roll singers of all time, who has now passed into the hereafter. By the way, didn't realize until tonight that he had a double transplant. I think a liver and a kidney. That's amazing. And was out of the hospital in a month. Unbelievable. Then if you remember recently in the uh, political history book, I think it was in January of 2020, that then-President Donald Trump had a huge rally at Wildwood's Convention Center. Huge. People said, oh, no, 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 not that many people are going to show up. And I remember thousands and thousands of people showed up. They expected inclement weather. People waited out there like two days. It's an incredible rally. Incredible. 
And then Wildwood really came through in 2019 when the Kate Smith uh, statue was torn uh, down outside of the Forum in Philadelphia for Philadelphia Flyer games, and she was made persona non grata and worse by the Yankees, in which her rendition of God Bless America was never to be sung again during the seventh-inning stretch, uh, reasons still that have not been uh, totally uh, stated. The mayor in Wildwood uh, said, no, 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 every morning uh, on the boardwalk here in uh, Wildwood, the first thing we're going to do when we raise the American flag is we're going to play Kate Smith's God Bless America. And they have kept that tradition alive. And then I remember Wildwood, was where they had the aggressive laughing gulls, sort of like the aggressive progressive that I have to debate in a few hours, Chris Hahn, uh, who I'll be on from 3 to 5 this afternoon. But they have these aggressive laughing gulls that I've seen on the boardwalk in Wildwood in which they'll snatch your food right out of your hand. Yep, they come uh, diving at you. I'm sure some of our listeners out there have had that, the aggressive laughing gulls. Apparently, the largest breeding ground is right behind Wildwood. And they had to bring a falconer out to try to chase the uh, aggressive laughing gulls away. They had to use netting. They had to use all kinds of uh, forms of technology. I'm not quite sure what they were, but I'm sure there are many people out there who were walking along the boardwalk of the Jersey Shore in Wildwood and saw to the lengths that Wildwood went to chase the aggressive laughing gulls away who would snatch food out of your hand as you were walking on the boardwalk. God bless Wildwood on the Jersey Shore for keeping the tradition of Kate Smith's God Bless America alive. But I say a double oofah to the Yankees for dropping her like like a bad habit and not living up to the wishes of uh, boss uh, George Steinbrenner. I I told you I was going to tell you the George Steinbrenner story. So here it is, June 19th in 1992. I'm shot five times with hollow point bullets in the back of a yellow cab. On my way to WABC, where I was doing the morning show with my wife, Lisa, at the time, it was Angels in the Morning. This is after I was railing against John Gotti Sr. every morning before he would go to trial in the Eastern District in downtown Brooklyn. It was the last trial. He was being prosecuted by John Gleason, who is now a federal judge in the Eastern District. And because of the testimony of his underboss, Sammy the Bull Gravano, who ate the Parmesan cheese and Memorex tapes, that had been secured from a meeting location above the Ravenite uh, Social Club, which uh, today is a dress shop for transvestites. Serves them right. Uh, put uh, John Gotti Sr. away, triple life without parole. And you know the rest of the story from there. He ended up developing throat cancer and went straight to hell without a asbestos suit where he belonged. But the most interesting thing about all that was in my recovery period because it took a long while. I mean, I had the colostomy bag. I had to have reverse surgeries. I mean, I was in bad shape. I was on morphine. Morphine to just deal with the uh, always existing pain. The morphine drip. I'll never forget. I had that pump in my hand in Bellevue, and I couldn't hit that pump enough times in order to get that morphine going throughout my system because, man, it was, you know, I was in pain. So I decided at that time I was going to visit Yankee Stadium. So the Guardian Angels accompanied me up there. 
And we walked up to the box that WABC had at that time because we were the broadcasters on radio of Yankee baseball. And so I remember I was coming in through uh, where the media enters, which was near the old parking lot in the old Yankee Stadium, where you would actually get a chance to see some of the Yankees coming in after they parked their cars. No longer. They go right underground. You don't see any of the Yankees. But they were forced to deal with the public and oftentimes sign autographs. God forbid they sign autographs. Oh, how much money am I getting for this? You millionaire, selfish ball players. But anyway, I digress. So I'm moving very slowly, and George Steinbrenner sees me on the second floor as I'm trying to go to the low section first. And he goes, oh, Curtis, I heard what happened. Uh, I feel so bad about what happened. Hey, look, anything I can do, I'm here. You know, I'm going to be going up and down. I'll check up on you at the WABC box. Wow, the guy couldn't have been nicer. If I were a diabetic, I would have had insulin shock. Then all of a sudden, it's about the fifth inning, and I step outside the box, and I see that all the staff are having X-lax attacks. They're nervous. I go up to this one guy, Charlie. I say, Charlie, is there a problem? He goes, yes, yeah, Steinbrenner is on a tirade. He just fired one of the guys. He's just, like, uh, harassing people. It's like he's out of control. I said, oh, okay. I said, does this happen often? He goes, yeah, yeah, you know, one minute he's, he couldn't be nice, and next minute he's an ogre. So we get into the elevator. I'm leaving with the Guardian Angels. I decide, hey, by the seventh inning, let me get out of here because the way I'm uh, moving at such a slow rate like a a turtle uh, that I may may end up getting succumbing to the stampede of people who are trying to get out early. And I remember we went down in the elevator. And on the second floor, the elevator opens up, and it's George Steinbrenner. He's got fire coming out of his nostrils. What are you guys doing here? Guardian, what are you guys doing? He's screaming at the top of his throat. Well, you guys shouldn't be here. I said, George, George, it's me, Curtis. What are you doing here, Curtis? George, you just greeted us before the ball game started. You know, you said you were going to stop by the WABC box to see how he was doing. You know, I got shot multiple times. <laughs> I guess he didn't have his Prozac. You guys got to get out of here. Okay, George, we're leaving. You know, I can't move too fast. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. I don't know, Mike. There was a big article in the Daily News written by John Hinckley. No, no, not David Hinckley. (laughs) Never trust a guy with uh, three names again. Uh, David, (laughs) John David Hinckley. No, 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 not him. David Hinckley of the Daily News. He's no longer writing, but uh, he wrote a big piece about that. And you know something, George Steinbrenner didn't remember any of it. All the people had to remind him, yeah, George, you were so nice to Curtis uh, before the start of the game. And then towards the end of the game, my man, you would have thought that he was the enemy. Like he was the IRS trying to take your money. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Al in Fort Lauderdale. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Al. Good morning, Curtis. You're fantastic. You're Mr. History. I just wanted to add something about Kate Smith. In her later years, she lived here in Fort Lauderdale. She had a house on the intercoastal. And uh, every day when the Jungle Queen used to go up the New River, they would always point out Kate Smith's home. And her singing God Bless America 
was and is incredible. As a matter of fact, last night, after the Newsmax channel covered uh, President Trump's rally in South Carolina, didn't they play God Bless America by Kate Smith? Wow. To their credit. Yeah. There's been never the been way, never been a better rendition of God Bless America. Oh, absolutely. By the way, I keep remembering, Curtis, you were on Larry King years ago, weren't you? Yes, many times. Ah, I remember seeing you there. Yeah. Well, he had an affinity wow. for me because I was from Brooklyn and he was from Brooklyn. He he went to Lafayette uh-huh. High School. Uh, he lived over in Bensonhurst. I lived in Canarsie. I actually first met Larry King when he was doing overnight radio. Remember? Yeah. yeah. So I I, uh, I was in the American scene, which was in Time magazine, and his producer called me up and said, we'd like to have you on our overnight uh, radio uh, program, uh, which would repeat itself after two hours. So you'd almost like get a double hit. And I I took the bus, I pounded the hound down to Washington, D.C., and then I went over to Arlington where the studios were, took the the metro, the subway, and went up to the studios, and Larry King was ready to start the show. Larry King was sleeping under the console, sleeping. (laughs) The moment the lights went on with five seconds left, his producer runs in, Larry, Larry, Larry. Larry gets up, it's like he hadn't even been asleep Oh, and I have here Curtis Slewa, fellow Brooklynite, and he did a great interview. And, you know, I'm getting uh, all kinds of calls from Saskatchewan and Canada all over the place. It was great. But every time there was a break, every time there was a break, Larry King would then go under the console and sleep a little bit. And then the producer would have to run in. And wake him up. And then, naturally, his tag offline was always, you know, you can catch me at Duke's, uh, the saloon, uh, over there in, uh, I forget where it was, uh, uh, in uh, in downtown uh, Washington, D.C., where he would hang out after his show. Uh, uh, yeah. But, yeah, no, no, I got, I, got a, I got along great with Larry King because, again, we would swap stories about Brooklyn. Well, it must have been like when the Guardians were just starting because uh, it seemed like he was, uh, very into what you guys were doing, and uh, and it was a great. Uh, I remember that show. Yeah. yeah, no, no. Every time I was jammed up, every time the walls were closing in, Larry King, his producer, would throw out a lifeline from CNN. I'd appear with Larry King. The other guy who was great was Tom Schneider, uh, who was on oh, NB- yeah. NBC. But Tom Schneider, what a what an interesting character. He loved the Guardian Angels. He loved me. So every time I was jammed up, he'd have me on. But the interesting thing is Tom Schneider was there in Rockefeller Center, you know, the studios where they would broadcast yeah. from. And when the lights were off, he would be screaming at the pages, all kinds of invectives, all kinds of curses. The moment the lights went on, he'd show the pearly whites. You'd never know he was in a rage before that. I'm like, what the hell is going on with this guy? <laughs> now, you know, you're where you are in Fort Lauderdale when I was a kid. That's where Yankee yeah. spring training would take place, Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. 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 You go down there. They had uh, they called it Little Yankee Stadium at the time. You would see like Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris. 
Tom Tresh, Bobby Richardson, Elston Howard, Yogi Berra. They were all there. Yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, Boss Steinbrenner said, no more Fort Lauderdale. Everything's coming up to Tampa. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I remember. I remember the Yankees were a fixture in Fort Lauderdale during spring training. One eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let's go to Howard in New York. Your turn to be heard here at WABC. Howard. Hello, this is Howard Israel. Okay, um, I just wanted to um, say I grew up in the Bronx, and it, it was terrific. We'd go to Yankee Stadium. My first mission was to sneak sneak in the bleachers, so we'd wait till somebody had a fight, and when the police were busy with him, we made the big hit. And from there, we go to the Concourse Plaza to get autographs from baseball players, which was sometimes a little difficult. We'd have to sneak past a very lanky uh, doorman. His name was Charlie. He said, didn't I tell your kids to stay out? Every time you'd yell that. But we'd always sneak past him. We'd go up to their rooms, and and the baseball players weren't there. And then we, uh, you know, the wives were always half-dressed, you know. And uh, so then we'd go down to the bar and catch them in the bar and waited for them as they came out of the cars. Uh, one time I met Yogi Berra coming out of a place called Addie Valens, which was a great lunch and breakfast place right near Yankee Stadium. And he he, had, he shared a ride with some women. He said, I'm sorry, kids, I can't give you. I, uh, these women are waiting for me, you know. And uh, another great memory from the Bronx was... Um, was Freedom Land? Oh, the I, best! I was, I was always, I was, a, I was afraid to take off from school. I was always afraid I'd get in trouble. Anyway, I was going to play hooky one day, and I did the big thing, and I got real scared because I saw somebody that looked like my teacher <laughs> on the subway on the, I forget, on the number six line. I think it was the number six line. I'm not sure. Anyway, we we went to Freedom Land. We had a time, and it was so beautiful, you know. And it it, it was just an adventure for us, you know. Oh, it was, it, was, it was so good. Remember, Howard? Every day they would recreate the Civil War between the gray coats and the blue coats, and then right. at, at night they would recreate the Chicago Fire when uh, the cow kicked over the lantern. Yes, that's right, and. And also, you know, I remember my mother, Kate Smith, was a, not only in our household, was a fixture on our, on our TV. And her voice was incredible. And I still remember it, you know, from, from my childhood. You know, and it, it was just something we couldn't turn the channels to anything else. We couldn't watch Howdy Doody or anything. But we could only, you know, we had to listen to Kate Smith. And she was beautiful. Yeah, and what, what, what really befuddles me is that there were no demonstrations. It's not like you had Black Lives Matter, you know, uh, putting graffiti on Yankee Stadium, threatening to burn it down if they didn't stop having Kate Smith sing uh, God Bless America. There was nothing. There might have been one complaint. They used that as a rationale to get rid of the tradition. That's really all it was, to get rid of the tradition, Howard. Oh, yes. It's a shame, you know, and uh, life was really great in many ways. I mean, the buildings were getting deteriorating, but and they determined that they said eventually people will move out of the Bronx, you know, but. Uh, oh, anyway, I, I, you know how it got so bad 
You look around Yankee Stadium. I remember Red Barber was part of the broadcast team, and he told the truth. There was only like 5,000 people in a stadium that held 55,000, and he said, you know, stadium is very empty today. There's only about five to 10,000 people, and he got fired. He got fired by CBS. Michael Burke, who single-handedly, they used to tell a story, I remember, in the broadcast room. Oh, yeah, he was part of the CIA right after the Second World War. Get out of here. The guy almost single-handedly destroyed the Yankees. I, I could, I hated this guy with a passion. And you know me, Howard. When I hate somebody, I hate them to the day they die. I know. <laughs> i never forget. All of a sudden... We lost to the Cardinals in 64, the World Series. This was ironic because we had two brothers. We had Cleet Boyer playing third base for the Yankees. The St. Louis Cardinals had his brother, Ken Boyer, who was the MVP. They had Bob Gibson on the mound. We had Mickey Mantle. Joe Pepitone was just coming into his own. It was a great World Series. And... I say to yourself, boom, and then right after that, the Yankees lost the World Series in seven games. So what? Uh, they had won so many World Series before that. They swapped managers. I had never heard of anything like that. They took the Yankee manager, swapped him, uh, swapped him out, and they brought in the St. Louis Cardinal manager to the New York Yankees, and it went all downhill, all downhill. I remember that. Yes, that's true. Phenomena. I hate them. I'll never forget. Nor will I forgive but Kate Smith. Let's go to Lou in New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Lou. Thank you, Curtis. Great show. I love you. Listen, three points, three quick points about Kate Smith. Number one, she saved the uh, Boy Scouts of America. Every dime she made on God Bless America, it went to the Boy Scouts of America. She supported them for years. Number two, she helped an enormous amount of of, uh, of of black actors and actresses in Hollywood break barriers and get into films. And a lot of them stepped forward, or a family of them stepped forward at the time uh, the Yankees and the Flyers tried to try that uh, scam. I think it was a, she was a victim of wokeism. And third and finally, uh, about what's going to happen with the Yankees, this is the curse of Kate Smith. They will never win a world championship again until she's restored. And so will the Flyers never win a world championship again until she's restored. And, and, and her honor is, is restored for what they did to her. And as far as the Steinbrenner kids go, their father's got to be spinning for how they're running the team and what they did to her. Thanks. No, it makes sense. Look for years. It was the curse of Ruth. The Red Sox gave up. Greatest player ever in baseball history. He was a great pitcher, a great ball player. Didn't fit the mode. Heavy. Chase prostitutes all day. Eat dirty water hot dogs right in the dugout. Drink. I get hit home runs. He was a great right fielder, and he was a great pitcher. He was the full package. I wonder how much penicillin he took. I mean, he had a, hey, come on, man. He had to be getting a lot of letters from the Board of Health. My, oh, no, my, that guy didn't know a whorehouse that he uh, wanted to stay out of. Grew up in a boys' home in Baltimore. Baltimore. Wow. Wait, when we come back, you know, I've spent my time criticizing my beloved Yankees, and rightfully so. But the Mets, who I hate, I despise, I loathe, there is another reason to hate them even more. 
And it has nothing to do with their owner, who I loathe, I hate, I despise, Stephen Cohen, who's replaced uh, the Will Ponzi's. Friends are the biggest rip-off artists in the history of white-collar crime. <laughs> the Will Ponzi's. Fred and his son, right? <laughs> Bernie Madoff. Crook! Thank God he's dead and went straight to hell with an, without an asbestos suit. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. What happened the other opening uh, night in Washington Nationals uh, Stadium was a double disgraziato. It was a double shanda. I'm going to tell you what happened. And you want to kill what used to be America's pastime baseball? Because we know it's not anymore. It's uh, American Smash Mouth football. But it's like dying by a thousand cuts. An opening day at Washington National Stadium where Fauci was there with no mask on. I'm like, yay, Nationals, yay, Nationals. And it took an hour before the game would even start. And I'm going to tell you why. It's going to blow your mind. But you know something? It's so pertinent to how badly baseball has been damaged. 1-800-848-9222. Oh, this is the perfect song for Aaron Judge, who, what, walked away from, what, $225 million for a long-term contract because he thought he deserved more. But every year he has a strained quad. Never heard of that years ago in baseball. Now they all have strained quads. Uh, Stanton, Aaron Judge. I don't know what they're injecting themselves with, but uh, never heard of these things before. Never heard of these things before. Uh, I'm going to get to the Mets momentarily. Uh, I could not believe what I saw on opening night. An hour worth of introductions in a game that goes on too long to begin with, with all the machinations that take place. But first, let's go to Joseph in New York. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Giuseppe. It's actually Joe from Ronkonkoma, Curtis. Happy Palm Sunday to you. Uh, well, I don't know if it's happy for me because, uh, Joe, it's uh, one of two days I go to church, so I got to get my palms today. Yeah, yeah, same here. I do the same thing you do, Curtis. I was calling about your trivia and one other thing. You were talking about Burt Lahr. Um, He was in The Wizard of Oz. He was the cowardly lion. Yeah, well, uh, according to Kate Smith, uh, he was a nemesis uh, uh, to her. He would always get up on the stage, make fun of her weight to the point that she would go off into the dressing room and cry her eyes out. But, oh, you know, come back out and perform. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, he was uh, a real mean SOB. Now, you were talking about the whole thing with Kate Smith. My uh, grandmother... And my mom were big fans of our so was I. They also used to listen to uh, Mahalia Jackson uh, albums. Um, but the thing that pisses me off, Curtis, is, you know, they want to take Kate Smith from us. They are trying to take Columbus Day from us. But I'm watching TV, and it says, Happy Arab History Month. Now, they're getting a month. We can't get a day for Columbus Day, us Italians. I, I just don't understand it. The world is going to, uh, you know what, in a headbasket. Yeah, no doubt about it. And again, the uh, traditions that help keep our nation together. 
unification under one flag, no matter what our differences are, uh, no matter how politically divided we are, it's the flag uh, that acts as a point of unification. And uh, Giuseppe, they've even taken that away. They've even taken that away. What? You got to fight for this. You got to fight for this. When they took uh, Kate Smith's uh, singing of God Bless America in the seventh inning stretch away without any explanation, uh, Yankee fans just continue to pay outrageous, outrageous amounts of money to see these spoiled millionaires owned by billionaires. But it's no different than with the New York Mets, who I really hate, I loathe, I despise. It'll never be City Field to me. It'll always be Shea Stadium. And it'll always be like a demolition derby uh, uh, <laughs> when you look at the parking lot of the Shea Stadium slash City Field uh, Stadium fans. So I happen to look at a replay of the opening night festivities for the start of the baseball season for the Washington Nationals. There was uh, Dr. Fauci, Nationals fan, with his glove like he's a little, like he's a little boy. Uh, no masks on, I might add. No masks. And then uh, the announcer, they lined up everybody that was part of the teams down the right field line, down the left field line. And these were some of the people who were introduced to show you how crazy the game has gotten. The Mets performance dietitian, the Mets massage therapist, the sports science coordinator, the assistant performance coach, the head performing coach, the reconditioning therapist, the coordinator of rehabilitation and reconditioning, the Mets assistant athletic trainer, the head athletic trainer, the director of player health. Now think, just in those categories, how many Met injuries have there been? Now, I don't follow the Mets as closely as I follow the Yankees, but they've had a lot of strains, a lot of pains, a lot of elbow inflammation, and you would think with all these so-called therapists and the homeopathic and holistic methods they're using, that clearly they got a huge bureaucracy, but it doesn't stop. The director of field operations, two clubhouse managers, an equipment manager, visiting clubhouse manager, umpire's room attendant, two clubhouse attendants, a clubhouse assistant, a clubhouse and travel assistant, a quality assurance coordinator, a manager of advanced scouting, coordinator of video and technology, a major league video assistant, a major, excuse me, a manager of major league strategy, an executive director of medical services. It doesn't stop a director of athletic training, both athletic trainers, strength and conditioning coaches, assistant major league strength coach, corrective exercise specialist, and a partridge in a pear tree. (laughs) They left out the batting practice uh, pitcher. All of those people were announced before the start of the game, never mind uh, the starting lineup and the substitutes. Now, the game went on for like four hours because of that. The game goes on too long. And there's really little skill level any longer. They have this shift where if you're a pole hitter, whether a right-handed hitter or a left-handed hitter, uh, the infield shifts over to your power point, and the batter doesn't even try to go the other way. If you just bunt it the other way, it'd be a guaranteed base hit. And they constantly... 
Oh, the manager gets up, the pitching coach, let's change. Uh, let's go to the bullpen again. Pitcher comes out, throws three pitches. Let's change him. It's endless. The game has become boring. I have three sons, Anthony, my oldest, 18, who just got his senior ring. He'll be graduating in a few weeks from high school. Uh, there's Carter, my middle son, he's 13, just got bar mitzvah. And then there's Hunter, who's 11. All of them started to play a little baseball. I helped them out a little bit. None of them like baseball. None of them. They like games, Fortnite, roadblocks. And my youngest son, Hunter, just loves soccer. None of them want to watch baseball. None of them care about baseball. None of them want to play baseball. When I've had conversations with them, because you don't want to force the kids to do something they don't want to do, they say it's too boring. So America's pastime for us baby boomers, which was replaced by Smash Mouth American football, will no longer be a sport played by our children or grandchildren, guaranteed. Thank God for youngsters in Venezuela, the Dominican Republic, other parts of Central America, parts of Asia that play this game because, and not for them, uh, the American uh, baseball dream would be over. 1-800-848-9222 is so disappointed, so disheartening. It's a game that oftentimes I don't even want to look at anymore. Hey, it takes you, you play the song. They have to have their own theme song. Then they got to, you know, they got to put all kinds of rods in on their gloves. Then they got to open their glove, close the glove with the Velcro. Open the glove, close the drill. Between every pitch, they got to uh, put their hands on their jock strap to make sure that their three-piece set is still there. And it's endless. 1-800-848-9222. That's a double oofa. Let's go to Peter in Staten Island. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Peter. Hi, Curtis. We've been on a lot of topics. I'd like to speak to you on uh, with Tom uh, Snyder. I worked at Tomorrow's Show with him, and uh, I used to be very funny. What you said with the pages, that's so true. But uh, what he would do, he'd wave at the audience when they were going out, and I'd be down by him. And he had a little uh, box that had all his alcohol and liquor, his Jack Daniels and stuff. And he would always offer us a drink after the show. So he'd be waving to the uh, people going out the audience, and he'd be like, buy you so-and-so. You think I like you people. I can't stand you. And we'd be cracking up, you know. And it was just the way he was. But he had a kind heart, too. I had an accident. We were doing uh, uh, the plasmatics, and uh, Cindy O'Rourke or somebody like that, they, uh, we had uh, a pyro, you know, and uh, one of the charges was left in the car. They blew the hood off on the uh, car while they were singing. And one of the charges were left in, and I had to walk out to take a mic out. And um, it blew up in my face, and I actually slashed my cornea in my right eye. So when I was on the floor, he came over, he took his suit jacket on, put it under my head. He was holding my hand, telling me I'm going to be okay, I'm going to be okay, and everything. And I had surgery done, and I was all right for a couple of years. Now the eye is uh, has a major problem. I need emergency surgery on it to repair it, but... With the culprit and everything, I've been putting it off. That was one topic. And now with the song, uh, you played a song the other night with, um, 
uh, Louis Armstrong, uh, give me a kiss for just a moment, and my imagination will pardon on that kiss. Now, I knew the song with Richard Chamberlain, Dr. Kildare, because he did a song, uh, 45, that I had. I don't know where it is now, but he did uh, Three Stars Will Shine Tonight, One for Just Lovers. That was the theme to the Dr. Kildare. And on the reverse of that was the... Uh, Louis Armstrong, but that Dr. Kildare, he said, Richard Chamberlain sang, of uh, give me a kiss for just a moment, and my imagination will thrive upon that kiss. Now, let me, ask you, uh, let me ask you a question, Peter. Which was your favorite doctor show at that time, Dr. Kildare, who was mild and meek, or Ben Casey, who was aggressive with anger management issues? I like Ben Casey more better. Hell yeah. Uh, now, 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 Peter, Peter, uh, I expect that you and your wife and your friends are going to come out to the Staten Island Ferry Hawks when they open up their season in the stadium right there by the Staten Island Ferry. Uh, they have just signed this phenomenal female baseball player, Kelsey Whitmore. I could walk there from where I live. I I forget about the Yankee game. I get free tickets. I got a friend of mine who offered me to come to the opening day. Forget about it. With everything, the prices of the food and everything and all the crowd and the there could be fights and stuff. I don't feel comfortable. I, so I will I tell you, though. I will tell you, you you will be surprised. This woman, I actually saw her play once for Cal State Fullerton. She wow. is an excellent baseball player. She's going to pitch for the Staten Island Ferry Hawks and be a utility player. Uh, as you know, the team was recently purchased by uh, Red Apple Media, our own uh, owner, uh, John Katsimatidis and Margot Katsimatidis. So on opening day, this woman for the Ferry Hawks, it's right around the corner, is going to be one of the few women ever to play in a professional baseball game with men on the field, and mark my observation. When I saw her playing for Cal State Fullerton, this woman can compete with men. This woman can hit, run, field, pitch. It's like that Japanese ball player who's on the California Angels, uh, Oha, Oha, I forget his last name. He uh, pitches, excuse me, Ohani, yeah. Anyway, he's great. He pitches, and he plays in the field, and he hits home runs. This may well be the keeper. i got to find out from John Katsimatidis how they found out about her and how they signed her up because, man, you got to attend the opening uh, day in Staten Island, the ballpark right there in the North Shore next to the Staten Island Ferry for the Staten Island Ferry Hawks. I'll be there. The question is, will you? That's right. Even though it's five in the morning, it's my job to keep you pumping and jumping until the six o'clock hour. So it's time to get on your feet. Coming from work, coming from the clubs, 
Not as active as it used to be. The city is still dead as a doornail at night. But uh, slowly but surely, the nightlife may crawl back to where it needs to be. do is I take you to the underbelly of the city. Everybody else glosses over these things, and what they do is they read and tell you what they've read, whereas mostly I've experienced these things. So when we talk about going to Rikers Island, it's so funny because uh, so many politicians and those wanting to run for office tell you about what they think is happening on Rikers Island, and they know absolutely Jack Diddley squat zilch because they've never been locked up on Rikers Island like me. That's why I want to give props to this New York Post reporter, Dana Kennedy, who actually decided to go out to the rock Rikers Island and do a interview with a inmate who uh, is quite interesting, uh, needs to be put away forever. But can you imagine there's an 83-year-old person who killed for the third time? And you got to say to yourself, what do you mean the third time? You mean they weren't locked up the first time? You say, well, the second time you say, well, how the hell did they get out? Especially after a second time. Well, this will explain to you the problems of our criminal justice system. It has nothing in this case to do with uh, no cash bail. It's judges who are liberal and progressive who give the benefit of the doubt to the accused and not to the people who need protection. Most of these cases are not necessarily even going to be concerned with bailable or non-bailable offenses. Let me talk about the 83-year-old serial killer who was born Harvey Marcelin, but now identifies as a lesbian named Marceline Harvey. Notice how they flipped the name. 83 years old. Harvey is quick-witted, flirtatious, and sometimes terrifying when explaining her anger management issues. And she has two identities. Think of Sybil. Think of... (laughs) James Kahn in that movie, remember, where uh, Nurse Ratchet was there? I forget her name right now, but uh, I loved every time she hit James Kahn in the feet. Uh, I'll explain that uh, on another occasion. But Dana Kennedy was able to get an interview representing the New York Post with this 83-year-old serial killer who identifies as a man and as a woman behind a glass wall at The Rock. Check this out. Harvey's not a good guy. He's a tough guy, the inmate said. Marceline's nice and gentle and loving. You know, lots of laughter. Fun to be with. She's the one who's perfectly normal. This is coming from the inmate. The inmate claims that he is a he-she with two different personalities. The killer who served more than 50 years in prison for murdering two girlfriends 
1963 and one in 1985, is now accused of a new homicide, the gruesome dismemberment of 68-year-old Susan Layden. He gave a 55-minute jailhouse interview to the New York Post reporter Dana Kennedy. She said she's in touch with both her masculine and feminine sides. Reminds me of that caller we had on uh, earlier in the evening uh, who was 71 years old and said he has a feminine and a masculine side. Luckily, he's not violent. But her male persona gets her in trouble. Though Marceline wore a wig and lipstick after her most recent release from prison in 2019, she said she's housed in the men's unit at Rikers. She pled not guilty on March 30th to charges of first and second degree murder, tampering with physical evidence, and concealment of a human corpse in the death of Layden, a former jewelry designer from Teaneck, New Jersey, who struggled with mental illness and drug addiction in recent years. Marceline said the two met, guess where, in Tompkins Square Park in the East Village, where you noticed the cops and the sanitation department went in there to break up the homeless encampments. I used to live right across the street on Avenue A and St. Mark's Place when the anarchists had riots in the park. I remember when the then-Mayor David Dinkins put up a fence around the park because he imposed a curfew on the anarchists and the hippies and the homeless. Lucky there was a fence up in that park because when I was attacked with baseball bats on April of uh, 1992, on the orders of John Gotti Jr. and the Gambino crime family, three guys came up to me. It was like a United Nations crew of John Gotti Jr. There was McLaughlin, the Irishman, with a bat. Kaplan, the Jewish guy. What the hell was he doing with the bat? I thought he'd have a number two pencil. You know, he'd be doing the books for the Gambinos. And then there was uh, Ruggiero with a bat. And they tooled me up. They must have hit me like 38 times as I tried to struggle away. And then I made it to the fence across the street at Tompkins Square Park, jumping over cars, nearly being hit by incoming and outgoing traffic, and then climbed up that fence as they wailed away at me, flipped over because the fence was locked, and then they uh, jumped back in the car, told me to shut my mouth, uh, and then popped some wheelies and took off. There was this one white guy and this Rastafari guy, I guess he was trying to score uh, some drugs from him, uh, and they were frozen in what they had seen. I was bleeding profusely from the forehead, and I told him, hey, get the cops. Uh, before I was passing out, uh, they did the bird on me. And then eventually a cop from the Ninth Precinct had the key to open up the gate in the park. And I guess, hey, looks like to me, Sliwi, you're not really Superman after all. Phenomenal. Let me get back to this story about Marceline, uh, who identifies as a woman. And then the true hidden person in her, Harvey the man, who is out of control. Uh, Let me take you to Tompkins Square Park. I'm sure many of you have been in there in the uh, Lower East Side. At one time, the Alphabet Jungle Avenues A, B, C, D. And then you had the projects on the Ds. Remember when there were the abandoned buildings there? Remember when the P-Dope guy would show up with uh, all kinds of heroin? When they'd be shooting galleries, 
base heads would be uh, laid up in windows after freebasing cocaine. It was horrible. And then up on 11th Street, uh, after Saturday Night Live, Belushi and Ackroyd and a lot of the crew would come there and they'd party hardy in some of those tenements in, in which they were doing bass. That was, that was the drug. Remember, bass was the drug. Let's see if any of you are attentive. Which was being smoked by a very infamous, famous comedian at the time. And he ended up uh, turning into a torch as a result of trying to torch the cocaine with oxygen, which uh, created the freebasing effect. Who was that comedian? 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. So let's get back to Marceline, who is the uh, female, only because she identifies with being a female as a male, Harvey. I know this is a little difficult to follow. Hey, it's more difficult for me uh, as it is for you. But it got to the point where Marceline was ruling Tompkins Square Park. She was released from an upstate correctional facility in 2019 on lifetime parole. Quote, a lot of women claimed ownership of me. I was the queen. It's a very magical park. Her problems in the past, she said, arose when girlfriends took her for granted or disrespected her. She always has been attracted to women and vice versa, she said. But it doesn't always end well. There's a point where they want to rule me, and they take advantage of my softness, Marceline said. They misinterpret it. They start henpecking me. Yeah, that's what husbands understand, being henpecked. But then her feminine side kicked in, and she said, help kept a lid on Harvey sometimes. But her women friends provoked her into violence, she said. Harvey could not be controlled. Now, remember, she's got a split personality. I tell them there's a side of me you don't want to see. It's Harvey. But they don't want to listen. Imagine, they're probably uh, listening to her and saying, what a schoolboy. She dresses like a woman, like Lola. She acts like a woman. But she says, beware of the other part of my personality, Harvey. And then Harvey erupts in rage. Sometimes it's liberating, you know, Marceline said. You get all that dirt out. You know, the pent-up stress. You can let your macho side come out. If it isn't what you want, it comes on out through. You're covering it up by being a woman because you don't like this male with this male rage that's deep inside of you. You don't want that person loose. Of the two identities, she said she prefers Marceline, but laughs when asked about her male <laughs> part, Harvey. Imagine how crazy that is. Are you Marceline or are you Harvey? She said about her male part, Harvey, he's a pimp. You like him, don't you? She said to the reporter. She then suggested that this Post reporter, Dana Kennedy, actually go on a date with her to Anton's Wine Bar downtown. <laughs> presuming she beats her current homicide rap. She's 83. She's murdered twice and been released. She's going to be locked up a third time, and she's snacking on Dana Kennedy, the Post reporter, hitting up on her, saying, hey, by the way, when I get out of here, let's go to the bar downtown Anton's. Drinks are on me. <laughs> Split personality.
Marceline admitted to the Post that she did kill her two previous girlfriends, but she insisted she did not chop the head and limbs off of her third girlfriend in February as charged, even though police have video of her shopping in a motorized scooter while sitting atop Layden's severed leg. She goes into a dollar store. She's sitting in a motorized wheelchair that no doubt Medicaid paid for. And her girlfriend's leg is sticking out from underneath her. And the store attendant says, ma'am, you know you have a leg that's sticking out from your tuchus. She goes, oh, don't pay any mind. That's my girlfriend. (sighs) She then claims she's being framed because of her long rap sheet. She shows flashes of anger that surfaced at times and contrasted sharply with her otherwise feisty and jovial manner. A psychiatric examination by three doctors at Bellevue in 1963 concluded she had schizoid personality with sociopathic features. But get this was not deemed criminally insane nor psychotic. (laughs) A hospital record from 1962 suggested she might have delusional grandiosity, suggestions of chronic schizophrenia, and paranoid reaction personality. And yet she was not, she was not sent to a psychiatric facility. Now, her third girlfriend was one of three women who occasionally crashed at Marceline's East New York apartment. One of the trio, called Jillian, is reportedly cooperating with the police now in the 75th Precinct. The other one, according to Marceline, is the murderer. It wasn't me. She was jealous of Susan, Marceline said. She added that while it's too bad that her third girlfriend is dead, she resents how the deceased is being presented in the press. She's giving an interview on Rikers Island. She says, my girlfriend that I killed, she was no Mother Teresa. They make her look like a saint, like a sweet little darling. Well, let me tell you. So her third girlfriend's dismembered body parts were found in several locations around Brooklyn. Surveillance footage showed her third girlfriend, who lived in a LGBTQ senior center in Fort Greene, entering Marceline's East New York apartment on February 27th. That's the last time she was seen alive. Prosecutors in Brooklyn, poor Eric Gonzalez, say that Marceline discarded a black shopping bag containing her third girlfriend's torso later that week. The victim's head and other limbs were discovered in Marceline's apartment, along with blood, cleaning supplies, a hammer, and the box for an electric saw. Police found one of the third girlfriend's legs near a garbage can about three blocks from Marceline's home on March 7th. During Marceline's two previous prison stints, she often acted as her own lawyer. She was a jailhouse lawyer in a number of the lawsuits, asking for new trials, complaining that one all-female parole board was sexist in denying her release in 1997 because even though anatomically she was a male, she identified as Marceline the female. 
And she was trying to get in on a class action suit because she was at Attica State Prison during the 71 riots. You remember the film Attica, Attica, Attica. Oh, my God. Marceline admitted to a parole board in 1997 that she had problems with women. <laughs> really? <laughs> she killed her first girlfriend. They let her out of jail. She killed her second girlfriend. They let her out of jail. She killed her third bro, uh, wo- uh, woman uh, girlfriend. And now she acknowledged she had problems with women. <laughs> See if you were a guy, if you could get away with that. She told the New York Post that she first dressed up as a woman for Halloween when she was just 13 or 14. It felt so good, Marceline said, but her feminine side remained latent until she met a transgendered inmate at the Auburn State Prison in 1993 who encouraged her to start taking Primarin hormone therapy. Marceline has also been vocal about not being allowed to have tarot cards in prison and complained again during this New York Post interview with Dana Kennedy that she wants her current deck, which is in her apartment. She doesn't want a new tarot card deck. She wants her current deck. She said she doesn't like her current lawyers who are public defenders. Wow. This woman is a piece of work. Harvey Marcelin, that's the male in her, was born in Manhattan in 1938. His mother was a seamstress, and his father, who died when Harvey was 10, was a shipping clerk. Her parents grew up in Harlem, but later moved to 158th Street in Washington Heights. Quote, they spoiled me. My mother was soft-spoken and tried to raise me. I was just cantankerous. I was an only child. So she's blaming her mother. She traces her childhood trauma to a daycare center at St. Aloysius Catholic Church on 132nd Street in Harlem, which she said was run by strict nuns who whipped her, sexually abused her, and forced children to eat bad food. Quote, my mother had to literally drag me there. I'd be pleading, no, no, no. One time I ran away, but they chased me down the street and caught me. They treated me very badly, those nuns, very bad. So I think I flipped out there. Lucky they didn't ask her to join the convent as Marceline. (laughs) Intellectually, I'm all right. (laughs) But emotionally, I'm a, a bit torn up. A court record shows that Marceline was first examined by a psychiatrist at the age of 14, apparently at the behest of Catholic charities, and had been involved in truancy, theft, heterosexual, and homosexual activity, and cross-dressing. Marceline's life of crime began with assorted felonies, like burglary in 1957. On April 18, 1963, Marceline went to her girlfriend's apartment in Harlem and shot her in the hallway with a thirty-two caliber revolver. Jacqueline Bonds ran into her bedroom, where she was shot again. She staggered into the living room, where she collapsed and died. Three bullet wounds were found in her body. Marceline was married to a woman named Florence Jackson at the time. There are no records immediately available showing that they divorced, and the Post was unable to locate Jackson. 
According to a court document, six weeks before the shooting, Bonds told Marceline that she wasn't to go out with her anymore. The relationship was off. Marceline pointed her finger at Jacqueline and said, I'll get you. Bonds was murdered the same day she was supposed to appear in court to bolster Marceline's alibi in an attempted rape case. She raped somebody. But the charges were later dropped. She was very popular, Marceline. And I had images of her just being nice to somebody else. Yes, sexually, you know, she was beautiful. I didn't want anyone else to have her. So because I didn't want anyone else to have her, I killed her. I killed her. She admitted this in court. Marceline was sentenced to just 20 years, although it was to life, for her girlfriend's murder and got out on lifetime parole in 1984. A year later, she was arrested for murdering another living girlfriend, Anna Laura Sierra Miranda. God, four names. She chopped Miranda up into pieces, put her remains in black bags, and dumped them near Central Park. She told the Manhattan judge that Miranda had been late with the rent. I was very nice to her, but then she'd go out for two or three days, and I didn't know what she was doing. So I figured, you know what? I'll kill her. And yeah, I killed her. Marceline pleaded guilty to manslaughter and was sentenced to 6 to 12 years in 1986. But because she was still on lifetime parole (laughs) for the 1963 murder, she was denied parole for more than two decades for the second murder. What the hell was she being given parole for any of these murders? She recalled being overjoyed when she was granted parole in 2019. It was like having orgasms, she said. Lord, I never thought I'd get out, and neither did we. When asked how she managed to win release, Marceline laughed again. By sucking ass. Her next court date is April 19th, and Marceline wants the world to know she needs a better lawyer and some good food. Uh, Forget bail. You had two judges who released this woman. After she killed her girlfriends and admitted it in court. It wasn't maybe, possibly, could be. She slipped and fell. I really had nothing. No, 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 Judge. I I killed her. There's no doubt about it. I killed her. And she deserved it. (sighs) 1-800-848-9222. It's 1-800-848-WABC. This is New York City. This is what we're dealing with. This spans the decades. This goes back to the 60s. This is an 83-year-old serial killer who was born Harvey Marceline, but now identifies as a lesbian named Marceline Harvey. Again, quick-witted, flirtatious, sometimes terrifying when explaining her anger management issues as Harvey but then flips the script to her female identity, where she's soft and nice and gentle. Now, can you imagine what it's like being out on the rock as a correctional officer, having to deal with Marceline some of the time and Harvey the rest of the time? Can you imagine what it's like for some of those inmates who all of a sudden get hot to trot because, you know, they haven't seen a female in a long time, and they start getting hot about Marceline, and then all of a sudden she goes, 
I'm Marceline now, but in another hour, I'll be Harvey. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let's go to Ron calling from New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Ron. Yeah, I'm going to comment on the uh, comedian that uh, overdosed on the drug. Oh, very good. Uh, you were very, uh, very patient in waiting for an opportunity at giving us this uh, this uh, response to my tr- trivia request. Yeah, the, the the guy's name was Richard Pryor. That is right. He torched himself up freebasing cocaine. Yeah. That is really Now, do you know what town he was from? Oh, Irvington. Uh, say that again, please. Irvington. No, no, he was not from Irvington, New Jersey. Richard Pryor, it is a town in Illinois. Oh, Forget about that, then. I, All uh, right. Well, stay on the line, Avery. I want you to make sure that we get Ron a uh, good booby prize, a courtesy with booby prize. Don't, t- don't ask, don't tell, because remember, I throw nickels around like manhole covers. Uh, if I'm in the mood, I'll give you some belly button lint. We will hermetically seal it in an envelope, and I will take scotch tape going round and round and round. If you think uh, not, I'm a kukulamunga. I'll send it to your COD, cash on delivery. You'll pay for it just to have it. So please get Ron's information. By the way, uh, which town did Richard Pryor not only uh, grow up in, but perform in? Let's see if Henry in Long Island knows. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Henry. Yeah, would that be uh, Evanston, Illinois? Uh, which town? Did you say Evanston, Illinois, maybe for e- Richard Pryor? Evanston is the uh, town that hosts Northwestern University. It's uh, beyond the north side of Chicago. You couldn't be more hopelessly wrong, Henry. <laughs> Oh, it's a wild guess. No, no, hey, good, good. Hey, you know, that's a, that's a, a place of academia. Northwest University, a great school of journalism. Let's see if any of you out there know that. 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Al in New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Al. I would say, um, I know it's Richard Pryor. Joliet? Joliet. Big prison in Joliet, not far from uh, where the Sliwa compound is in Lockport, Illinois, after they left the south side of Chicago, 46th and Rockwell. Uh, Joliet, a scary prison. I've been in there, not locked up, uh, but uh, I was given a tour by the screws, the COs, the correctional officers there. Big walled prison in Joliet, but no, Al, not in Joliet. You couldn't be more hopelessly wrong. Well, it's a bit of a, a bit tricky here. What town was uh, Richard Pryor not only raised in, performed in, and performed in whorehouses there? one 800 That's one 800 wabc Let's go to Frank in New York. Your turn to be heard here on WABC, Frank. Yeah, I knew the, I knew the question regarding uh, Richard Pryor. As far as the town goes, I got to be honest with you, I don't have a clue. But I, one more thing. You rule the airways. Curtis, man, you're a pleasure to listen to. Well, thank you, and Frank. Wife, and uh, as you know, my job is to keep the adrenaline pumping. 
My job is to keep you all awake until 6 o'clock in the morning when all of a sudden, at some point in the day, you say, what the hell was I staying up till 6 o'clock in the morning? Because once I start at 12 midnight, it's endless. I just keep amping it up. The energy levels are such, I don't care how many Red Bulls you took, I don't care how many, how much meth you smoke. I don't care how many lines of coke you do. You're never going to get charged up like this. I think I could charge up uh, an Elon Musk uh, electric car. Yeah. Yeah, just plug it in. Uh, no, 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 no. You're not plugging it in there, pal. No, I don't go that way. 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Diva, who's calling from New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC Diva. Oh, how you doing, Mr. Um, Sliwa? Peoria, Illinois. Yes, Peoria, Illinois. That's where Richard Pryor grew up, learned his comedy, entertained in horror houses, probably sampled some of the product there. Now, Diva, let's see if you can go for the Daily Double, Diva. What other great comedian was also born in Peoria, although he was uh, a Caucasian persuasion? Uh, I would say, oh, God, what was his name? Oh, this, this, this is good. Imagine two great comedians born in the same small city. Peoria, I wouldn't call it a small city. It's a mid-sized city. I've been there right on the river. Uh, but George it's, Carlin. Hey, who? George Carlin. Not George Carlin. No, no, no. You couldn't be more hopelessly wrong. But, Diva, stay on the line, Avery. We got another Curtis Lewa booby prize to give out, a Curtis Lewa hat uh, that has the WABC logo on it. And Diva, if uh, any guys ever get fresh with you, you tell them, hey, don't mess with me because I know this guy up here who will hit you so hard, your mother will feel the vibrations. can be very effective at deterring crime. Again, we have Richard Pryor as the comedian. Uh, growing up and uh, developing his comedic craft in uh, Peoria, where he entertained in horror houses as a uh, a young teenager, probably sampled some of the product. Uh, but who is the other great comedian? It was a white guy who also grew up in Peoria. One eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let's see if Harvey in New York knows. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Harvey. Yeah, good morning, Curtis. Um, uh, I'm from Amsterdam, New York, and uh, you, I spoke to you the other day, and you, you, you gave me this Harvey, Harvey. Anyway, um, I was going to say Richard Pryor and uh, Peoria, but the uh, um, the other, uh, uh, what's his name, the singer, uh, Michael Jackson, he also uh, lit himself up. No, 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 Michael Michael Jackson, the uh, pedophile on a pedestal, uh, grew up in Gary, Indiana, next to no, Chicago. No, no. no, but I'm saying he 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 burnt himself up with the uh, somewhat. And um, what's his name? Yeah, years ago I was a taxi driver in Manhattan, and I picked up Burt Law, and oh. this guy was was he must have looked like he was seven feet tall, but not that quite, you know, not quite that. And uh, when he got out of the cab, he he wouldn't say a word to me except the way he's going. And he got out of the cab and he walked down the street and people were, oh, look, you know, and nobody came over to him and said anything. 
Yeah, well, he used to make uh, Kate Smith cry in vaudeville yeah. by making fun right. of her girth. This was the uh, the frightened lion in The Wizard of Oz, Bert Lett. Now, yeah. let me ask you a question because it's interesting. Harvey, your name uh, is just like Harvey Marcelin. I just told you this the story. Harvey Marcelin has a dual personality identifies as Marceline Harvey at times as a woman. The other time as a man killed three of her girlfriends. You don't ever have that problem of having a double personality, do you, Harvey? <laughs> well, wait a second now, Harvey. Don't laugh. You were a, you were a cab. Were you a cab driver, Harvey? Yeah, I was actually a bus driver after that. All right, but still, how long were you a cab driver? About four years. Did you ever watch the film Taxi Driver? I bit some pieces of it. Yeah, Travis Bickle came from Pennsylvania to drive a yellow cab. He was a total psychotic, Harvey. Yes. Do you understand? That could have been you, Harvey. Yes. Sure, of course. Harvey, be careful. um, Look, this this person, how old are you, Harvey? How old are you? 80, 82. Hey, this uh, this the serial killer's Harvey Marcelin is 83. Yeah, I know. Maybe you were somewhat related. Hey, hey, Harvey, you got to be careful. You know, you never know. You might have one of those senior moments. Right, 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 right. Hey, um, this guy, Harvey, uh, uh, I don't see how he could have got put in jail, released. You know what I mean? I'm just saying. I know he is the liberal um, faction out there, but uh, Harvey, uh, he, he he should have been hung by the nearest tree. Harvey, uh, it's Marceline to you. And by the way, right. this is New York. This occurs on a regular basis. You can kill, be released, paroled, come back, right. kill, in this case, and get released again. This makes absolutely Jack Diddley cry. So we talk about no bail, no bail, no bail. This has nothing to do with bail. They had him. He was doing time for murder. Chopping up body parts. They let him loose with lifetime parole. What does lifetime parole mean? He went out and within a few years killed another girlfriend. And then they let him out of jail again. So he could score the trifecta at 83. And he swears you can't hold him guilty because Marceline didn't do it. It was his alternate personality, Harvey. 1-800-848-9222. Again, we've got uh, part of the uh, riddle solved. It is uh, uh, Peoria, Illinois. That is the right answer. Uh, You nailed it for the comedian who torched himself up freebasing cocaine, Richard Pryor. And now I just ask, who is the other infamous comedian who also came out of Peoria but having to be uh, a mighty whitey. 1-800-848-9222. Now, would it be Harvey that would be uh, hurting? Or Marceline, that dual personality? It was like Sybil. And uh, you think this has to do with no bail? Absolutely not. These judges in New York State, they're turning criminals loose on a regular basis. Just think. 
Here is a 83-year-old man who identifies as a woman half the time, and the other half of the time, he's Harvey. And then look out. He kills. He's killed one girlfriend. Was sent out on lifetime parole, a second girlfriend. And then given another parole, only to come back and at the age of 83, kill a third girlfriend in which he was in an electrified uh, wheelchair. Went into a nearby dollar store in East New York, and the uh, person behind the counter said, Ma'am, you seem to have a female leg protruding from your tuchus. And uh, she said, oh, that's uh, my girlfriend. I killed her uh, just a few hours ago. Want to bet that some judge will say, look, for various mental reasons, she is a dual personality. You can find Harvey Marceline guilty of murder, but Marceline has nothing to do with this. So as a result, the prevailing personality today is she identifies as a woman. You must release her and you will get a jury here that will do that. Let's go to the phones. Uh, question was, we already resolved the uh, comedian who had torched himself up like a human flame, uh, freebasing cocaine with oxygen uh, from Peoria, Illinois. And I said, uh, well, who, who, pray tell, was a white comedian who came from Peoria who was uh, just as... Uh, controversial uh, as Richard Pryor. Let's go to Ricky in the Bronx. Your turn to be heard here at WABC. Ricky. Okay, good morning, Curtis. That comedian from Peoria, Illinois, I think it's got to be uh, John Belushi. Ah, well, good guess. Belushi uh, and his brother Albanians, uh, but they are from the uh, greater, I think, the greater Chicago area, not Peoria. You couldn't be more hopelessly wrong, Ricky. No belly button lint for you. Uh, let's see if we can uh, go to uh, Leo, who's calling from New York. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Leo. Good morning, Curtis. I have a trivia question. Uh, what movie was starring uh, Father Son? Uh, team Sylvester Stallone and Sage Stallone that the movie gave name to model of famous brand of watch. Name of the movie and name of the brand of watch. Well, you know, uh, Leo, what, what what country are you from, pal? What country are you from? I came 30 years ago from Germany, but I was born in the Sudeten originally. Ah, the Sudetenland. Yep. The wow. grandparents was German. One was checked. Wow, the Sudetenland. Boy, that's uh, shades of World War II. Yeah, the history is repeating in uh, Ukraine. Very similar. Yeah, no, no, no. That, that, that's how, Okay, so uh, you're asking me the name of the movie? Yes. Okay, I don't know that answer. What is the name of the movie? Are you asking me? No, 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 no. Of course, oh, okay, okay. of course I'm asking you, because you asked me, and I said, I don't know. Oh, okay. The name of the movie is Daylight. 
And then this sunsage with him and the brand of the watch is a Panerai. They they named the model after that movie because Sylvester Stallone was wearing it in that movie and he was promoting in next year's the the brand Panerai. Mm. With Italian Swiss watch. You know some Leo, I think you've been to too many beer gardens of late. And it's not even Oktoberfest. Leo from the Sudetenland. Oh man. Conjures up images of World War II and the march through Europe by Adolf Hitler. I know many of you think that Putin is Adolf Hitler. He's not. He's not Joe Stalin. He's a bad mother, but he's not Hitler. Wow, we can't seem to get the name of this second comedian who grew up in Peoria, Illinois, right off the river. I've actually been in Peoria. They got a casino there. It's a barge casino. And let me tell you, what a dive that was. They had river rats, river rats on the barge. Women, old women with no teeth were playing the slots, the penny slots. These big river rats were like running around. And all they did was lift their feet because they had to keep playing the penny slots. No teeth. Chewing tobacco. And spitting it into a can. Yeah, that's uh, Peoria, Illinois. I mean, I thought the Ozarks in uh, Arkansas, I thought the Appalachians were bad. If you ever been to Peoria, oh, my, don't, oh, my. Let's go to Dougie, who's calling all the way from Florida, a place where many people are fleeing to, to DeSantis land, from New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Connecticut. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Dougie. Hello, Curtis. Yes, Doug. Yes, Doug. Which part of uh, Florida yeah. are you calling from? Central Florida, Curtis. It's a little cool down here. It's about in the 40-degree weather. Oh, my I'm God. Cold as New York. Now, now, which part of Central Florida? Near the villages, a place called Leesburg. Oh, sure. Sure, I'm familiar. Uh, now, where are you from originally? New York. Uh, which, part of, which part of New York? Well, I, uh, Newark. Newark, New Jersey. All right, Newark, and how long ago did you escape? Five years ago, buddy. Hmm. And uh, will you ever come back? Uh, just to visit the grandkids and, you know, see the kids up in uh, New Jersey. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I, I'd love it if uh, Murphy, the governor who calls everybody a knucklehead, would appeal to yeah, you. Yeah. yeah, he'd say, hey, knuckleheads, come back. Come back to Newark. Nah, I... I I would have voted for Cittarelli. <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. Cittarelli, he would have made a much better governor. But anyway, uh, you seem uh, – hold on one second. Hold on. Hold hold uh, Doug on there for one second. Hold, hold Doug, Doug there. We'll get back to Doug. We finally have a woman who wants to enter into this contest. It became too macho maniacal for me, too much testosterone. We had no estrogen. And I think we we have, I think Doug is a gentleman, originally from Newark, who escaped five years ago. He ain't going back to Ras land. Hell no. But I think uh, Doug will defer to to Nancy. Nancy calling from New Jersey. Uh, Nancy, you have a choice because you're the only woman who has participated in this trivia contest. Oh, okay. How are you, Curtis? All right. You got to get closer to the microphone so we can hear you, Nancy. Oh, okay. 
Jay, you share a so very... I just wanted, yeah, I just wanted to say how are you, and I'm so happy to see you. Well, thank you. You share uh, something very special to me. You have the same name as my wife, Nancy. I know. And I also am a native New Yorker, and I was very young at the same time that you organized the Guardian Angels, and I was so thankful for that. Now, what neighborhood did you grow up in? I grew up in Staten Island, but I spent a lot of time in Manhattan and Brooklyn. Ah, and what high school did you go to? St. Joseph by the Sea. Oh, St. Joseph by the Sea. I See, I remember Staten yeah. Island when all it had was uh, Monsignor Farrell. Monsignor Farrell, that's and, right. And more. And more yep. Catholic. That was it. Yep. Yep. All right, so what is your guess? Which comedian came from Peoria, Illinois, who is white? Opposite uh, the comedian that we uh, spoke about earlier, who torched him up himself up by freebasing cocaine, Richard Pryor. Um, the only one that I could think of was Lenny Bruce. Hmm. Nancy, you couldn't be more hopelessly wrong. Wow, I thought for sure Nancy was going to nail that. Staten Island, St. Joseph by the Sea. Well, let's go back to Doug. Uh, true gentleman, true gentleman. Uh, Doug, are you still there from uh, Central Florida? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. See, uh, we, you had to be a gentleman, right? Yeah. You had to defer to the lady. Absolutely. I, I appreciate that. So, Doug, who was the white comedian who also was raised in Peoria and may well have uh, developed his comedic craft in the whorehouses there? <laughs> How about Sam Tennyson? Yes. Yes, the screamer. Yeah. yeah. I what? remember him in the movies with uh, Rodney, Rodney Dangerfield. Good movie. Oh, Sam Kennison was so good. He yeah. was, I mean, oh, yeah. you, you talk about a guy with anger management issues. <laughs> but isn't that ironic that you had two guys, really great comedians, Richard Pryor, Sam oh, Kennison yeah. had similar problems all throughout their career, but they always claimed that it helped their craft, um, who both came out of really a, a mid-sized city in Illinois on the river of Peoria. Right. It's amazing how those comedians were, you know, so good in those days, too. I mean, today, comedians don't compare to them at all. Yeah, I, I, I don't think uh, they have as many opportunities, uh, and I'll tell you why. Uh, there was a boom, a boom, Doug, uh, in the uh, 70s and 80s. There were so, so many comedy clubs that uh, they didn't even have enough comedians for open mic, uh, amateur night. Uh, oh, yeah. And yeah. now you've seen all the comedy clubs close up, uh, very few comedy clubs out there. So a lot of the uh, men and women who are developing their craft or even the older uh, folks who decide they want to try their talent, they don't have the same opportunities that the comedians had in the 70s and 80s and 90s. That's true. Yeah, there needs to be more of that. There needs to be more of that. They need to have places where they can be booed off the stage. Because remember, it's a lot harder to make people laugh when they've paid money. And now they've had a few drinks... In them, it's almost becomes a contest where they're not going to laugh. I remember I did a charity event up uh, in the Greater Albany area for a radio station at that time, and they had a comedy night in Colony. And they said, "Curtis, uh, can you just come and do like five, seven minutes? You're a pretty funny guy." 
I, I was schwitzing up on that stage. I mean, this was a hostile audience. It's sort of like, we paid good money. You better make us laugh. And I was struggling. The only one I got them to, to laugh at is when I uh, created this great theater of the mind invite in, in involving Al Slim Shady Sharpton at that time. Uh, the way he looked then, not slim and trim uh, now. That's why I call him Al Slim Shady. Uh, but when he uh, was massive, he had that uh, afro. He had the velour jumpsuit. And he had the Martin Luther King uh, gold medallion that he would rock around his neck, which I think eventually ended up in a pawn shop. Anyway, let's go to the phones. It's Rob in New Jersey. Your turn to be heard here at WABC, Rob. Uh, hi, good morning, Curtis. How are you? Now, Rob, you know, there are Robert rules of order when calling me and any of the various shows that I host. Never ask me how I'm doing because you know what I'm going to tell you. I've had better days. Secondly, never thank me for taking your call because I've been soliciting phone calls for the past six hours ad nauseum, giving out the numbers, 1-800-848-9222. I could virtually say it in maybe the three or four hours of sleep that I'm going to get in between shifts. Uh, and never say, hey, first time call, a long time listener. Hey, Kabish, Brab, Kabish. Gabish. All right. All right, boy. I think I think I might have the answer to the comedian from Peoria, Illinois. All right, let me rephrase it. Uh he's the white guy. Richard Pryor was the black guy. He ended up uh freebasing cocaine and uh turned himself into a human torch. So which uh, white comedian do you think uh, grew up on the other side of the tracks in Peoria, Illinois to Richard Pryor? Uh, uh Andy Kaufman? Wow. Andy Kaufman was a great comedian. You talk about somebody who did great theater of the mind. That was Andy Kaufman. Uh, Rob, you couldn't be more hopelessly wrong. <laughs> I was, hey, I'm driving. I haven't had a chance to look at Google or anything. So it was a purely speculative. Right. And remember how good Andy Kaufman was, especially when he came on Dave Letterman. And it was, uh, he was incredible. He, it, he was he was a man ahead of his time. Absolutely. You know, uh, I never thought that Andy Kaufman died. I think he's still alive. Yeah, that people say that. That's true. I believe that Andy Kaufman has pulled the greatest trick uh, on all of us. Uh, a greater trick than Harry Houdini uh, ever conducted in his lifetime. We know he's dead because he's he's buried in uh, Highland Park, the cemetery right behind Franklin K. Lane. By the way, do you know what the acronym Franklin K. Lane stands for? Uh, no, honestly, I don't. Of course, you can you can be honest about that. Very few people know Franklin K. Lane which is uh, right off uh, City Line Avenue, separating East New York from Roodhaven, stands for Fun, Kicks, Laughs, and No Education. And let me tell you, if you happen to have gone to Franklin K. Lane in the 60s during the riots, the race riots, oh, Madonna, my. They caught a teacher in the stairwell and stomped him to death. And I don't ever remember them finding the guy who was responsible for that. And then the uh, former uh, New York State Party uh, chairman, 
Michael Long, had a package store on City Line Avenue, liquor store, and he got shot in an armed robbery. I have a feeling it was by the wise guys around the corner who were affiliated with the Bonanno crime family, but Michael Long uh, never divulged it. Man, that was a rough area in East New York, and it's the same East New York that the 83-year-old serial killer who was born Harvey Marceline, but now identifies as Marceline Harvey while residing in a cell in Punk City Protective Custody on Rikers Island. you got to read the story by Dana Kennedy today. It'll, uh, it'll just blow your mind. This is what we're dealing with. Judges who release murderers over and over again. It's not just a no-cash bail issue. It's the liberal, progressive judges who have no freaking common sense. Maybe they ought to have Marceline come over for tea. And she might suddenly turn into Harvey. And that'll be it for that judge. Here come the judge. Remember? Here come the judge. Here come the judge. Here come the judge. Ah, I kept you all awake. I'll be back in just a few hours with Christopher Hahn from 3 to 5 and then from 9 to